This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, we've got some sponsors for the pod now. Wait, what? Every link you need for the things we talk about here is at artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors. First up, books. If you're into this podcast, Odds are you're probably a reader. We've got links to buy new books from bookshop.org and used books from alibris.com. And if you want to listen to your books, we recommend and use audible.com. It's great and the catalog is huge. All right. So if you're listening to this, you are online. Maybe you're very online. You probably have a website or are thinking of starting one. Maybe you want a website like artofdarkpod.com. We built that with WordPress, which is by far the most popular way to create websites. And the single best host for serious WordPress is WP Engine. I've personally used them for over a decade now, and I don't host my websites anywhere else. Go to artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors and click on the WP Engine link to learn more. Finally, the best way to support the show is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Get the bonus After Dark content for every episode, access to the book club, and more. Thanks for supporting Art of Darkness. And I, I don't think that was too painful. I think no, we did a pretty good job good. there. Yeah. Yeah, that sounded good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it. And we are back with another episode of Art of Darkness, the podcast about the dark side of creativity. This is a core episode, going to be very exciting. I'm Kevin Couchman, joined by the man in Michigan, up in Michigan today, and always, well, most of the time, most Brad Kelly, time. Brad, how are you? Yeah, most of the time. How are you? I'm, do I'm doing pretty good, man. Uh, how are you doing? I am excited and mm -hmm. The way this podcast works, of course, is that you and I pass the core episodes back and forth. We work to do, we each do one a month, which I find is just enough time to feel like you've forgotten how to do it in between each of the core episodes. But once you get in the ring and you're eye to eye with that bull, mm -hmm. you can, you and, and the bull is snorting at you and you got your cape and you're ready to, you're ready for the bull to charge. You flick the cape out of the way maybe 10 minutes in you flick the cape and hopefully the bull doesn't get you in the groin i don't think that's going to happen today we may have a few not. head we may not. yeah we have may have a few head injuries today okay but okay nothing nothing that could really damage us too much anyway uh so it might improve the quality of the pod uh but before we get into the subject i'm already beginning to hint at it uh, i have to introduce a very special guest who we are thrilled to have with us friend of the pod novelist Substacker, some call him the judge of Substack, Aaron Gwynn. Aaron, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, guys. Oh, it's our pleasure. We're we've been looking for a reason to have you back on since the last time. So I'm really excited to have you with us today. Thanks, Aaron. Awesome, man. Aaron is the rare bird, I feel, who could 
come with us on practically any any episode and and hang. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we get into it, Aaron, uh, tell people a little bit about yourself, what you got going on, where they can find you. Yeah, so um, I'm a novelist. I've been doing a Substack devoted to Blood Meridian, and it's just Blood Meridian Substack. And you can uh, get caught up on my latest endeavors at American Gwen on Twitter. And that's just American G-W-Y-N. And if you're interested in my book stuff, if you're interested in my Substack, it's it's all there. Dynamite. Yeah, let me let me put in a word for your Substack for people who are familiar with Blood Meridian. Um, and even if you're not, but if you're if you've read Blood Meridian, you're like, oh, that book is something else. Read the read Gwen's Substack. You're gonna open up an entire world that's inside that book that maybe you didn't even quite realize was there. It's it's impeccably well done. So thank you so um, much. Thank yeah. you so much. It's very sweet, man. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it. and it's a breakout <laughs> Substack too. It's uh, achieved popularity very quickly, and it's extremely exciting. We're hoping Aaron will come back and join us at the end of the year for Patreon. Uh, we're hoping to do a Blood Meridian special, so we may mm-hmm. have to uh, strong arm Aaron to come back on. I'm uh, in. I'm in. Right. I'm all in. All right. Oh, Excellent. dynamite! Yeah, let's get into it. All right. Before further uh, any further ado, uh, mm-hmm. without further ado, uh, today we're going to a bullfight. It's going to be a boxing match. We're going deep sea fishing. We're going to write drunk and edit sober. And we're going to look at a life that changed the way Americans express themselves. Brad, one thing you say is that writing well is thinking well. Mm -hmm. Well, what does that mean if there was, imagine if you will, a figure who changed the way that we write in the English language. Did he also change the way we think? I would argue, perhaps. We're going to get into it. Uh, And we're going to talk about one of the great troubled men of the 20th century. Some call it his century, Papa's Mm -hmm. century. Ernest Hemingway. Big air. I am excited. Ernest Miller Hemingway. Before we get into it, I got to bump Patreon, patreon.com slash art of dark pod. Check us out. Every episode we do an after dark, you get an additional 20 or 30 minutes. This one might, might even go a little bit longer. You you also get access to our bookends book club, which uh, involves if you, if you care to join us a private zoom link, you can uh, join in reading literature that is both contemporary and adjacent to the subjects we covered. Uh, and yeah, if you can't attend, we put those recordings up online for Patreon subscribers as well. We also have a telegram, which is quite active and interesting. And, uh, that is at t.me slash art of dark pod. And of course, Brad is at the helm of our Twitter account, twitter.com slash art of dark pod. I will tease the after dark in a little bit, but first I have to ask the, opening question to brad and i expect you know a few things about this guy (laughs) being an american novelist yourself brad Mm. what do you know about ernest hemingway uh yeah i was gonna jokingly say who but (laughs) uh yeah as you said you know as somebody uh, a, a 
you know, I think everybody kind of knows the name of Ernest Hemingway. You know, uh, you talk to people uh, in my real life who maybe touch in on the show and check out what we're doing. And a lot of times they don't know who a number of our figures are. Somebody like Maya Deeran, who we did a few weeks back. They're not going to know who that is. Um, but Ernest Hemingway, I bet. I don't think I could find somebody who has not heard the name and Ernest Hemingway. Mm. Um, and as a, as a writer, he, his presence looms enormous. Um, so, you know, American writer born, I don't know exact year, but probably right at the end of the 19th century um, figures hugely in the movement of literary modernism, all this stuff that came out after world war one, um, uh, you know, s- known for his sort of his, Oddly enough, his revolution in literary style um, that has sort of echoed and permeated. I mean, I think anybody, any writer who's sort of finding their voice, whether they know it or not, they're in conversation with what Hemingway was up to when it comes to when it comes to the economy of language um, and the whole sort of iceberg theory. Um, you're always kind of even people who are um, choosing a style that's more elaborate than Hemingway they know that they're doing it sort of against Papa's wishes <laughs> a little bit, you know, there's okay. a little bit of like, I know Hemingway did this, but I'm going to do something a little different. I'm um, leaving that adver- adverb in. Yeah. What's that? I'm going to get, I'm going to get, oh, no, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm going to get a little florid. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yep. yeah. So no, but huge, huge figure, huge figure. Looming, towering, mm-hmm. troubling. Yeah. Uh, Gwen, do you, uh, do you co-sign? Is that all fair? All of that I co-sign. I mean, Hemingway changed the way that we thought about what an American novelist can be. He obviously changed the prose style uh, in in ways that people who deny it still use it to deny it. And he also changed the idea of literary celebrity. There's... There's probably no one before Hemingway except for Twain and to some extent Hawthorne who has the kind of uh, media savvy uh, and people, you know, young men want to be, you know, a lot of people, a lot of guys move to Paris and try to become writers because of reading the Hemingway story or just seeing pictures of Hemingway. Um, and so his, his effect on the imagination of young men in America um, has never been replicated, I don't believe. Totally agree. And that's, it's very interesting because you're um, predicting something that I'm going to start to tease. And actually, it's a nice segue into the After Dark for Patreon, patreon.com. Slash Art of Dark Pod. Somebody in our uh, Telegram just now, Sar Kira uh, Vandenvoid. <laughs> oh, we love our Telegram. Uh, asked, was Hemingway a KGB sleeper agent? And I believe you want to touch on this uh, in the After Dark for Patreon. Correct, Aaron? That's right. I've I've read the book. I've seen the documents. Oh, you've got the documents. I have the documents. <laughs> Rachel Maddow and I have the documents. Very good. Well, awesome. and, and Maddow has what you might call a, a Hemingway haircut. He would approve. He absolutely of the has a Hemingway haircut. Hemingway, and we're gonna get 
weird with it. There's a lot of interesting stuff. Everybody thinks they know Hemingway. Unless you've really dug into it, you don't know Hemingway. And mm-hmm. so by the end of this episode, I hope you you will feel like you leave knowing a little bit more about the great man. We're going to try to take the two-dimensional image people have and, uh, and uh, I guess, square the circle. We're going to try to give it three, four, five dimensions, at least four dimensions, for one for each of the wives. Uh, and just a little <laughs> bit of housekeeping yeah, here for, for the three of us. We're probably going to go long. I don't stand on ceremony. If you got to get up, just call it out, go on mute and do your business. I'll probably have to at some point too, so no stress. Um, So on the After Dark for Patreon, we'll go an additional 20, 30 minutes, probably more on this episode. And we are going to answer the question, was Ernest Hemingway a KGB sleeper agent? We're also going to delve further into Hemingway's time at Mayo Clinic receiving Mm electroshock therapy. We'll cover that a little bit on the main episode. It's very important, but we're going to go a little deeper. Fun fact, uh, some years ago, I wrote a play for a theater in town here called History Theater. Uh, A journalist from town here, uh, John Rosengren, picked up the story and went and did some original research, wrote an award-winning piece of journalism, which I'll cite on this episode and probably in the After Dark too. uh, And found some of the last known images of Hemingway. They hmm. were going to be published in his piece, but at the last minute, the family who holds the images asked that that, that he did, he would not do it. And I Amazing can, I, I will talk a little more about that. So that, that to me is really uh, quite precious, frankly, that yeah. there's this little tiny bit of the Hemingway myth that maybe I inserted myself into and and uh, John in particular and John uh like you said Aaron is precisely that read Hemingway at a young age moved to Paris uh-huh. and uh, is a working freelance journalist the real deal I'll get into a little bit more of that uh, as we go and then on the after dark we are also on the after dark going to talk about Hemingway's gender bending sex life and role switching Ooh. uh there was a novel that was only published posthumously, which I believe he wrote in the 40s, uh, called The Garden of Eden, which I think, uh, if you don't know, will surprise you. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> That's not what you expect from Hemingway, is it? Uh, no. It does not really square with the macho image. Uh, and then finally... We're going to hear from the great Hunter S. Thompson about Hemingway and his time in Ketchum, Idaho, uh, which is where he would. And I don't think I'm giving this away. He would finally commit suicide. Mm -hmm. So patreon.com slash art of dark pod. This is not a vibe pod. We put in the effort. We put in the work. Please support the pod. It starts at five dollars a month and your support means the world to us. We love doing this show. We want to do it as long as we can, as long as we can remain cogent uh, and and or until uh, our agents come to pick us up. And we will <laughs> we'll get we'll get into that, too. Before we dig into the bio itself, I have to mention the source material. Uh, I can't think of a writer, uh, an American writer or probably any writer who is more well documented. Uh, I have a stack of books here that is just absurd. Uh, I'm not even going to try to fiddle with it, uh, including his writing, but then writing about him. I have uh, his his last wife, Mary Welsh Hemingway's uh, autobiography. I've got the Lynn biography of Hemingway. I've got a book called Hemingway on War. I've, the, I've got the great Hemingway's Boat. 
by Paul Hendrickson. Fantastic. Um, the best yeah. Hemingway book that's been written, really? in my opinion. Um, mm, it, yeah, a really wonderful book. And uh, for the spine of the bio, I principally use two sources. I'm going to refer to Wikipedia. The Wikipedia is robust, uh, but I'm not just going to read it you know, A to Z. There's going to be detours, and our friend Aaron is going to be uh, reading from some of the work as we go along. And I also watched the great Ken Burns PBS documentary. Yeah. Uh I would say that's a great primer, uh, but it maybe doesn't go into the work as deeply as as we will or in, or intend to, because obviously they they wouldn't have enough they didn't have enough time. I mean, you could do a twenty part documentary on Hemingway and really I not even get the whole story. So, all right, we ready to rock? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Ernest Miller Hemingway was born on the 21st of July, 1899 in Oak Park, uh, excuse me, excuse me, Oak Park, Illinois, uh, an affluent suburb just west of Chicago to Clarence Edmonds Hemingway, a physician, and Grace Hall Hemingway, a musician. She was an opera uh, mm -hmm. singer and she wanted to have a career. We're going to get to it. Um, his parents were well-educated and well-respected in Oak Park, a conservative community about which resident Frank Lloyd Wright, future subject, no doubt, said, so many churches for so many good people to go to. Aha. Uh -huh. When Clarence and Grace Hemingway married in 1896, they lived with Grace's father, Ernest Miller Hall, after whom they named their first son, the second of their six children. His sister Marceline preceded him in 1898, followed by Ursula in 1902. That's a name you don't hear anymore. Ursula. Yeah. yeah. Madeline in 1904, Carol in 1911, and Lester in 1915. Like the cheese, Lester. <laughs> uh, now, Grace, and we're going to get into this. She followed the Victorian convention of not differentiating children's clothing by gender. The past is the future. With only a year separating the two, Ernest and Marceline resembled one another strongly. Grace wanted them to appear as twins. So in Ernest's first three years, she kept his hair long and dressed both children in similarly frilly feminine clothing. All right. So I'm going to pull from the, uh, the Lynn... Uh, Hemingway, Kenneth S. Lynn Hemingway a biography here about this twinning. Uh, I don't think there's, again, I don't think there's a writer who's been more psychoanalyzed than Hemingway. Um, it's almost sort of uh, inevitable that we're going to touch on a little bit of this. Okay, so let's see here. At Walloon Lake, which I believe is up in Michigan, at Walloon Lake, they, they would spend summers up there. In 1900, and you, you were spot on, Brad, end of the 19th century. Yeah. The summer of Ernest's first birthday, he and Marceline had played naked on the narrow beach in front of their parents' newly completed cottage. Dr. Hemingway's snapshots of them in the buff, duly pasted into scrapbooks by Grace, are charming. But while splashing his feet in the water and exploring the rowboat pulled up on the shore, it can be presumed that Ernest had ample opportunity to notice, if he had not done so already, that he and his sister were not built identically. Did the infant boy take pride in the equipment that set him apart from Marceline? Or did the sight of her smoothness make him think that she had suffered some sort of dreadful accident which might soon befall him as well? Or were pride and fear intermingled in his turbulent imagination? 
Familiar Freudian speculations, these, which acquire extra force in this case because Ernest would soon become aware that he and Marceline were being treated like twins of the same sex. And in years to come, the horrific image of phallic loss would be made light of by Hemingway in tall tale jokes about such matters as the hazards of skiing in sub-zero temperatures and dealt with seriously in two anguishing works of fiction, God Rest You Merry Gentlemen, and The Sun Also Rises. His developing relationship with his older sister may have been a source of emotional turmoil in other ways, too. Marceline was a much steadier walker than he was and could easily out-wrestle him. Far more often than not, in authentic boy-girl twinhoods, the girl is larger and stronger than her brother until puberty. In the spurious Marceline-Ernest twinhood, Marceline's genetic advantage was compounded by the fact that she was 18 months older. It was Grace's belief that her twins were the same size, but the photos of them belie that idea. As late as their freshman year in high school, Ernest was a whole head shorter than Marceline. Uh, so hmm. be careful what you do, what you do with your kids. <laughs> well, yeah, this, this is a, a recurring theme on Art of Darkness. Yeah. Um, now, in Oak Park, his father would sometimes perform emergency C-sections, which is a theme that would return in Hemingway's work a number of times, both in uh, the the short stories and in um, in the fiction. Uh, mm -hmm. A Farewell to Arms, or he famously concludes with, uh, uh, I believe, a C-section and and uh, the death of the the mother and the child. Uh, and then I think there's a story Indian Camp. We'll come to it. But so Hemingway had kind of a he had a, a a mixed upbringing. He was sort of mixed. Uh, you know, they would, there would be tea parties <laughs> and there would be uh, air guns. He would say, afraid of nothing, right? Not afraid of anything. Um, Ernest's mother, who we've already seen maybe was a little bit delusional or uh, just kind of oblivious or in her own mind, uh, you know, these kids are the same. Well, okay, they're not the same size. Um she would always remind the children that she gave up her career as a performer for them. Uh, although apparently she couldn't perform because she had a condition with her vision where she couldn't stand the stage lights. Hmm. My reading also uh, told me that she made more money than their, than their father as a teacher. She hmm. would tutor uh, people in music. Oh. Uh, and so, yeah, there was this tortured dynamic uh, between them and Hemingway would come to revile his mother. Uh, very famously, he called her an all time, all American bitch. Oh, uh, <laughs> we're getting, we'll, we'll get into it. Oh, this is an episode. We don't have to go looking for the darkness. No, no, we already hit, hit a little bit of it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, as I, I've already said his childhood was very gender bendy up to a point. He, his hero was Teddy Roosevelt. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But there was this weird twinning with his sister. So he had dolls and dresses and air rifles. Hmm. Fun. Hemingway's mother, uh, who, who were, were not going to escape, uh, was a well-known musician in the village. She taught her son to play the cello, despite him refer refusing to learn. Later in life, he would admit that the music lessons contributed to his writing style evidenced in the contrapuntal structure of for whom the bell tolls people had noted this uh the influence of bach I, I think he was he was listening to an awful lot of that when he was writing that novel if i'm not mistaken mm -hmm. um 
As an adult, Hemingway professed to hate his mother, although biographer Michael S. Reynolds points out that he shared similar energies and enthusiasms. Each summer, the family traveled to Windermere on Walloon Lake near Petoskey, Michigan. Where is that, Brad? Uh, Petoskey, Michigan is right right where I got married. Oh, right. Uh, up at the almost the tip of the pinky. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I was there and it was a lovely mm-hmm. ceremony. Mm-hmm. Yes. I don't think there was a fraction of the psychodrama happening there that that Hemingway, <laughs> Probably that, Hem- <laughs> that Hemingway had at any of his uh, uh, weddings. Yeah. Um, well, there in near Petoskey, uh, young Ernest joined his father and learned to hunt, fish and camp in the woods and lakes of northern Michigan. These experiences instilled a lifelong passion for outdoor adventure and living in remote or isolated areas. I think it's tempting we uh, associate Hemingway, I think, mostly with Paris. Uh, mm-hmm. The reality, though, is that he spent most of his adult adult life outside of Havana and not even inside the city proper. Uh, mm-hmm. After leave, living uh, after leaving Paris, he would never live in a in a truly big city again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's sort of a curious accident of history, his, that perception you associated with Paris, but he didn't really spend all that much time there. He liked to live away from people. And of course, at a certain point, the degree of fame that he enjoyed yeah. mandated it. Uh, he, he, this, this was, we're talking about Elvis levels of fame. We're talking about Kanye levels mm-hmm. of fame. You like in Spain, he would be mobbed. Uh, mm-hmm. and yeah, it, it was no writer alive enjoys the the degree of notoriety that Hemingway did during his lifetime. Uh, All right. Hemingway attended Oak Park and River Forest High School in Oak Park from 1913 until 1917. He was a good, see, this is where it gets a little mixed. Some accounts say he was mediocre. (laughs) There's a, um, there, there's a like a 90 minute documentary, like a PBS. I think it's like a PBS documentary that one of his uh, granddaughters narrates, and she talks about him being mediocre. I believe the Wikipedia says he was a good athlete. Mm. I he embellished. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, and we're we're really going to get into this. He he was involved in a number of sports: boxing, track and field, water polo, and football. Uh, he performed in the school orchestra for two years with his sister, Marceline, and he received good grades in English classes. One of the biographies claims he was a medi- mediocre athlete and would inflate his accomplishments. This is a lifelong theme for Hemingway. Mm-hmm. He was a fabulist, most of all around his own myth and legend. Uh, it's a cliche, but Hemingway very much created and cultivated a persona. And in a way, that persona we may see in the course of this episode consumed and might have finally destroyed him. Mm. Uh, and as Aaron so aptly mentioned at the top of the pod, he went viral before going viral was a thing. I believe uh, John, when I spoke with him recently, John Rosengren, the journalist, mentioned the same thing. Mm. Uh, I've got another little bit of reading from the Lynn bio here about his first dates all right so we're talking about the time he was about 15 uh let's see here back in oak park there were perhaps as many as half a dozen girls who were Ernest's pals 
He did not have his first date, though, until he was 15 and a half when he escorted a freshman named Dorothy Davies to a basketball game. All his bachelor friends were nearly in a state of apoplexy over it, his mother remarked with amusement. Uh, Let's see here. The following May, he invited, and I think the implication is that there might have been some summer flings going on in Michigan. Mm. Michigan is for lovers. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Up in Michigan. The following May, he invited Francis Coates over uh, for a couple of moonlight canoe rides on the uh, Des Plaines River. But his mother saw to it that he took his sister to the junior-senior prom on the 19th of that month. Ernest and uh, Marceline went together. Also, Marceline had other invitations, Grace noted with satisfaction. <laughs> Why did he make Dude. him uh, go together? That's weird. <laughs> it's a little much, isn't it? Mom I mean, really wants... I don't know how the conventions were back then, but... I think it's a matter of propriety. Your right. father is a doctor, and right. I am a musician. I am a right. thwarted musician. You children have thwarted my career, and right. I am a lady of Oak Park, and right. we are, a, yes, indeed. Um, I didn't pick out what denomination they are, but they're not they're not Catholic, no. uh, the one true faith. But I, I think there's some sort of like high church. Yeah, sorry, I had to do it, Aaron. I'm I, by contract. I have. To do I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> had to be done hey it's uh it's lent everybody uh very good very good okay uh, reading on here um to his friends the adolescent Ernest liked to appear supremely self-assured yet the expression on his face was often tense and his sleep was often broken by nightmares an especially bad one that had him yelling bloody murder occurred one night at Windermere after he and Marceline and another boy and girl stayed up late reading aloud to one another another from Bram Stoker's Dracula and with the girls of Oak Park High, he didn't compile much of a record in the role of a swain. I need to bring the word swain back. That's a great word. Mm. Uh, wherefore, his woodland trysts with Prudy uh, Bolton. So there were these up, upstate Michigan uh, trysts. Somehow he didn't feel threatened by her, possibly because she was of a lower class, possibly because she belonged to a conquered race. So Prudy uh, must have been, well, in any case. So this is this is about his um, his early uh, uh, romances. Uh, so are we getting a taste for Ernest? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. This is all kind of squaring now. It's interesting, you know, uh, I don't know that Ernest was the first uh, performative, performatively hyper-masculine man to have uh, maybe be compensating for some some childhood uh, issues. It's very interesting. Mm. Uh, sort of like Lovecraft a little bit. Lovecraft uh, didn't have the performative hyper-masculinity, but as a boy was kind of treated like a girl, like Hemingway's mother treated him. So very interesting. Mm. Do we know anything else really much about this tradition or this practice? Uh, I, I, it's just, yeah. You always hear this like, oh, well, they used to dress, boys used to wear pink and wear girls clothes. And I, I don't I don't know if that's actually true or not, or if it's just isolated cases. I don't know. I would I mean, see like... photographs, family photographs growing up of very, very small children. So this would have been, this would have been my great uncles when they were infants in and what looked like sort of like nightgowns, but I'm talking hmm. about 
babies, right? right. And, <clears throat> and once they, I just got the sense that it was easier to change kids when you were using cloth diapers without like little trousers, Right. You know, um, and you get a bunch of you have a larger family. You've got a bunch of kids. You don't need to buy them all new outfits for the first six months of their lives. Right. Yeah, just... It's sort of like a, a some kind of like, uh, you know, big or not big, some little night shirt mm-hmm. for boys and girls sort mm-hmm. of makes sense. Um, yeah. But when you have a bunch of kids, you can't afford it. You know, my people were like, uh, hill people in the Ozarks in Missouri at that point, right? And so they certainly didn't have, you know, the resources to be going to. Well, I don't know if there was store bought stuff for kids. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's a little different than okay, we're we're a middle to upper middle class family, and we're gonna right. you know we're gonna style our son's hair like a girl's until right. he's you know walking around, yeah. This is uh, something may, by. Like, oh, I'm sorry, Kevin. No, not at all. Go ahead, Aaron. Oh, I was just going to say, um, film I really love, uh, based on a Charlie Kaufman script about Chuck Barris called um, "Confessions of a Dangerous Mind." Mm-hmm. He finds out Barris finds out later in the film, or the Barris character, that his mother dressed him as a girl until he was, you know, five, six, seven years old. Sure. Yep. Yeah. Fascinating. Very interesting. Yeah. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go back a little bit in the Lin bio because I want to cover this business with with Prudy. It feels important. Uh, mm-hmm. And some of the language in here might be the kind of thing that would be boulderized now by the AI. I'm mm-hmm. just gonna read it. Uh, <laughs> another of Ernest's Indian acquaintances was a muscular and thoroughly disagreeable lout named Nick Bolton, a sawyer by trade, whom Doctor Hemingway and this is Ernest's father sometimes hired to cut up the legs that drifted onto the Hemingway's beach from the big log booms that were forever being towed to a sawmill at the foot of Walloon Lake by a majestically slow-moving steamer called Magic. Most people would believe that Bolton was half Indian, changing what they used. Mm-hmm. Um, although some of the farmers around the lake were certain he was a white man. Bolton lived in the Indian settlement in the woods and had had a son by one uh, Native American woman. Uh, and a daughter, I am boulderizing it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, it's happening. And a daughter, uh, uh, you know what, with Hemingway, it's going to get real. Let's just say that. There's just no way to avoid it. And a daughter uh, and a son by another. His daughter, Prudy, who is three years younger than Ernest, occasionally did housework at Windermere. One summer during his middle teens, Ernest frequently went hunting for black squirrels with Prudy and her brother, Billy. Prudy may have fallen into the habit of putting an exploring hand in Ernest's pocket while the three of them sat quietly in the middle of the woods listening for squirrels in the top branches. She she may even have lain on her back on a bed of pine needles and allowed Ernest to climb on top of her while Billy watched. Okay. And this would come out a little bit in the in the short stories. So yeah. just a little huh. touch of uh, childhood youthful shenanigans up in the woods mm-hmm. and uh trying to dr- get a little bit of a color trying to paint in Hemingway's uh sexuality and his and his uh psychology a bit all right during his last two years at high school he edited the trapeze and tabula the school's newspaper and yearbook where he imitated the language of sports writers and used the pen name <laughs> ring lardner jr a nod to Ring Lardner of the Chicago Tribune, whose byline was linotype. Uh, 
Like Mark Twain, Stephen Crane, Theodore Dreiser, and Sinclair Lewis, Hemingway was a journalist before becoming a novelist. After leaving high school, he went to work for the Kansas City Star as a cub reporter. Although he stayed there for only six months, and this is critical, he relied on the Star's style guide as a foundation for his writing. Use short sentences, use short first paragraphs, use vigorous English, be positive, not negative. And this is critical to understanding Hemingway's effect on American and ultimately English language style, and probably even beyond English. He brought journalistic precision to literature and wrote stories anybody with a high school education could read and enjoy with enough depth and nuance that the stories, the novels too, uh, serve as a kind of bait and switch, right? You get sucked in by what appears to be an easy reading level. I don't know if you all remember Mm -hmm. from grade school, they're all about reading levels. You should Mm -hmm. be reading at this level. They're reading Mm -hmm. at this. Okay. It's easy to read Hemingway. And then by the time you're done, you are absolutely destroyed by the metaphor and by what is left unsaid. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we're going to come to this in a few years when he began to write in earnest. Ha ha. Um, Had to do it. Now, uh, we're coming up to the big turn here. Well, Brad, what's coming up? I mean, what event? World War One is on its way. Yeah. And there it is in my yeah. outline. Yeah. Uh, so we're coming up to World War One. Hemingway suffered psychological wounds during his childhood that predated uh, by many years the traumatic experiences he encountered in World Wars One and Two and all his subsequent injuries. Dr. Clarence Hemingway was a strict vicious disciplinarian who spanked his son and beat him at times with a razor strop. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Ernest did not escape uh, in a, like an abusive, what we would call an abusive childhood. Um, I'm going to read a little bit about this. A marvelous marksman. This is from the Lynn bio again, with both shotgun and rifle, an accomplished fisherman, a master of every technique for surviving in a, In a wilderness, Dr. Hemingway was a complete woodsman. As the father of two boys born a decade and a half apart, he might have contented himself with passing on his lore to each of them in turn, but he was far too ebullient a teacher not to impart what he knew to his four girls as well, especially to Marceline, his first child, and to the tomboyish Madeline, his fourth, whom everyone called Sonny. Virtually everything that Dr. Hemingway taught his children to kill, he taught them to eat. Uh, besides introducing them to such recognized culinary delights as venison, quail, partridge, dove, duck, turtle meat, frog's legs, and a various and various kinds of fish, he persuaded them that stewed woodchuck was very similar in taste to stewed chicken, and that baked opossum with sweet potatoes around it was delicious. Uh, so he was um, pretty. He was he was a woodsman, and now we're going to get right. in and do a little bit of the uh, physical stuff. It's interesting because I I don't know you think about a doctor in a Chicago suburb, but it's a different time too. Okay. Um, one thing about Hemingway that I'm just say is that it was not ever really a LARP. Hmm. Uh, like you think we're going to come to the big sea fishing that he would eventually do. The man set world records. Right? Oh really? Oh yeah. Yep. I mean, he, I'll get to it, but at one point he got seven Marlin in a day right. and that w- broke the record. And he also, this is off B- Bimini, uh, and he would also, uh, or Bimini, uh, mm-hmm. and he, he would also, um, I mean, I think he 
he broke a number of weight records and he kind of changed the way that people did it, if I'm not mistaken. And huh. he, the, the, the man was the real article. Yeah. Um, in any case, as Marceline phrased it, daddy could make any walk a pleasure. But as she and her siblings learned the hard way, Dr. Hemingway's high spirits could disappear without warning. My father's dimpled cheeks and charming smile, said Marceline, could change in an instant to the stern, taut mouth and piercing look, which was his disciplinary self. Sometimes the change from being gay to being stern was so abrupt that we were not prepared for the shock that came. When one minute daddy would have his arm around one of us, or we would be sitting on his lap laughing and talking, or a minute or so, and a minute or so later, because of something we had said or done, or some neglected duty of ours he suddenly thought about, we would be ordered to our rooms and perhaps made to go without supper. Sometimes we were spanked hard, our bodies across his knee. Always after punishment, we were told to kneel down and ask God to forgive us. For serious infractions, she added, he went at them with a razor strop that he kept in the closet, washing their mouths out with bitter tasting soap and refusing to speak to them for days at a time were other devices he resorted to for making them pay for their transgressions. Their mother sometimes spanked them too. There were times when she even used her hairbrush instead of her hand. Nevertheless, her chastisements were not nearly as violent as those administered by her husband, and her anger was controlled, whereas his was explosive. That Dr. Hemingway had been a strict disciplinarian was the circular explanation for his appalling outbursts that Marceline would give in her memoir. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, in any in any uh, case, that that's what we were dealing with. Now, yeah. <clears throat> tough. It's tough stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. Also of a time right yeah yeah physical was... discipline I, um mm. that would we would i think if we saw that today the three of us mm. we would be like that's child abuse yeah. yeah um i i grew up uh rural oklahoma on a ranch um my friends uh and i we got we still got whooping you know, we got, I got switched by my grandmother. Uh, my granddad would, you know, take off the belt, he never used it. It was just enough for him to take off the belt <laughs> right. sort of, and sort of, you know, do you want me to take my belt off was a thing that, you know, fathers mm -hmm. and granddads said, but I never saw them or my friend's parents out of control. And mm. I never saw them like, discipline their kids in that way however you want to talk about corporal punishment whatever um like in anger right. it was never this kind of explosive rage and so that 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 the use of explosive kevin when you said that hit me as being like okay that's scary yeah there is something different about about uh, a little bit of physicality as a part of a deliberate discipline regime. And you can say it's wrong still, but that versus just getting the crap kicked out of you because dad's mad about something. That's is, very different. Yeah, right. Because right. it's different. it's a much scarier environment. It's 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 a psych it's a psychodrama instead of a military camp or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah, and uh, Kevin with your experience too, I'd like to, I was raised, uh, a blue collar kid, uh, raised by my grandparents. My granddad was a welder and a pipeliner and all my friends were, you know, blue collar working class kids. And 
I don't know why. I don't know why this is the case. To me, it seems somehow more terrifying to think of being physically disciplined by like a doctor or a lawyer than it does by like a carpenter. And I can't say why I feel that way. Mm. You guys know what I mean? Does anything there? Well, do no harm. Doctor, yeah, anyway. yeah, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's it. out of step with what one expects from, you know, a quote unquote, you know, professional. Yeah, there's right. like a high, it's supposed to be like a higher standard or something. Right. Uh, though we know right. there, you know, there really isn't. But, there really isn't, yeah. of course. Yeah. But, but yeah. you know, <laughs> that class, that class mm. thing definitely mm-hmm. was even more prominent then. Right. Yeah. 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 I took some whoopings for sure yeah. from my, yeah. yeah, for sure. I never took one myself. And this is my own experience. Mm. I never, I never took one that I thought that, that was right. across the line. I, I felt sure. like, oh, I'm glad they didn't know what else I did. <laughs> right. <laughs> I felt like I was quite deserving and, yeah. and they were pretty restrained. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. If you're in that situation where it's like, yeah, I probably had that coming. It doesn't feel as traumatic as if, yeah, it's it's like wild and unpredictable. I I was in grade school and high school in the 70s and, you know, through the 80s. I graduated in 90. We got Mm -hmm. licks at school still. I mean, I know that. Oh, really? If that, yeah, if that happened, they, you know, they'd call the Pope in to to do an exorcism. (laughs) Um, Right. but, But we still got, we still got beat, not beat. I shouldn't say that. We still got, you know, swatted by the principal. Really? And, you know, and then you had the, yeah, you had a one principal, like he had like speed holes drilled in his oh, paddle right. and all this. There's, I mean, how much of that is the um, embellishment of kids talking about, oh, you know, if you go see Mr. Gunter, he's really going to lay into you. And how right. much of that is like, I got swatted in seventh grade. It was no big deal. And I was so relieved that it didn't hurt that I laughed while Mr. Lindemann was swatting me. Just <laughs> nervous energy. And he said, don't laugh. I'll right. really let you have it. I was yeah. like, no, no, I'm yeah. good. I'm good, man. Yeah. That's a tremendous insight about the, I guess, the high contrast of it. This idea that it's somehow more garish or it feels more inappropriate from a doctor somehow but maybe there's a tinge of sort of classism there that we're we've just internalized as well but i think yeah. it's a it's a very interesting insight so. yeah mm-hmm. well cool. uh hemingway would would visit the the rage uh that his parents evidenced to him right back in return hmm. uh the young hemingway developed such rage that he adopted a ritual in which he played out an assassination fantasy against his abusive father. At the age of 18, Ernest would hide in a backyard shed and draw a bead on the doctor's head with a loaded shotgun. Whoa. Yeah. That's something I did not do. (laughs) I didn't know, like, yeah, putting a, putting a gun on somebody. Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, loaded. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, all three of us have, you know, grew up handling firearms. And mm. the first thing is don't ever point a gun at yeah. something you don't wish to destroy. And I'm sure right. Hemingway was taught that too, but he did it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Reading from the Lynn bio, young Ernest's view of his father gradually ceased to be worshipful. 
At first, his adolescent rebellion against the hero of his childhood followed a normal developmental pattern for boys of his age. The estrangement between them was encouraged by Dr. Hemingway's decision in 1911 after Grace gave birth to baby Carol that as the father of five children, he would no longer afford to take long vacations at Windermere, thus reducing drastically the amount of time he and Ernest were able to spend in one another's company in the woods. Far more significant, though, was Ernest's growing realization of his father's degrading subservience to Grace, for it resulted in a loss of respect, which was then intensified by Dr. Hemingway's abject departure from home in 1912 to take a rest cure for his nerves. And working within Ernest's new attitude of condescension toward his father was a swelling anger about his disciplinarianism. Uh, Nick Adams' characterization, and this is Nick Adams is the stand-in for Hemingway in the early in the short stories of fortitude as the book in which the boy's old man is after him all the time was no accident. There was no aspect of Peter Westcott's experience with which Ernest more fe uh, fervently identified. And that's these are characters from the short stories. <clears throat> Unfortunately, the feelings that made for trouble between son and father were never resolved. To the contrary, Ernest's condescension and anger grew abnormally stronger with each passing year, which suggested uh, suggests that another sort of emotion was involved. From the tool shed behind Windermere, he could observe his father sweatily at work in his sunlit tomato patch. In the summer that Ernest turned 18, so he later confided to uh, Bill Smith. He occasionally sat quietly in the doorway of the shed with a loaded shotgun uh, beside him and from time to time would pick up the gun and carefully draw a bead on his father's head. Perhaps these mock assassinations arose out of a boy's desire to destroy the man he feared he himself would one day become. Sure. Little uh, taste of things to come. Little yeah, foreshadowing. That's heavy. All right. Well, I did say we would get to the writing, but first, Ernest goes to war. And in December of 1917, after being rejected by the U.S. Army for poor eyesight, maybe something that runs in the family, mentioned his mm -hmm. mother, Hemingway responded to a Red Cross recruitment effort and signed on to be an ambulance driver in Italy. In May of 1918, he sailed from New York and arrived in Paris as the city was under bombardment from German artillery. That June, he arrived at the Italian front. On his first day in Milan, he was sent to the scene of a, mu a munitions factory explosion to join rescuers retrieving the shed uh, shredded remains of female workers. He described the incident in his 1932 nonfiction book, Death in the Afternoon, and this is him. I remember that after we searched quite thoroughly for the complete dead, we collected fragments. There were 35 dead, and he described seeing the corpse of a headless, legless woman, mm. 18 years old. A few days later, he was stationed at Fasulta di Piave in the north of Italy, near Venice and the Alps, in the fight against the Austrians. He drove an ambulance and for the first time experienced the camaraderie of war among the fellow ambulance corps. He wanted to be near the action, so volunteered to bicycle up to the trenches to distribute candy and cigarettes to a forward listening post. This is in the, in the evening. This is at night. A mortar exploded three feet away. One mm. soldier was killed outright, and another had his legs blown off. 220 shards of shrapnel hit Hemingway. And he would, uh, I think I have a note about this, but I'm going to want to get it in. He would keep these shards of scrapnel and he had them as memento, 
Maury, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and he would make little jewelry out of them. I think he would wear them as necklaces and things. This wow. is concussion number one, too. This is couldn't be more like significant um, to where we're headed. You know, this is the first time he was concussed. We know a lot about, more about TBI, traumatic brain injuries, than we, you know, and yeah. so um, concussions are a problem, obviously, but repeated concussions and concussions that aren't separated by a period of rest for the brain are particularly um dangerous and cause uh, deterioration. Anyway, yeah, that's a good to, point. Yeah. 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 There's no question that he had uh, TBI and thanks for calling that out, Aaron. Uh, you predicted what I was going to say next. Mm, uh, mm. They also say it's sort of like, is it called sub concussive or something? Mm -hmm. It's like mm -hmm. not quite uh, a mortar shell, but even little things like a jab to the head, mm -hmm. uh, boxing, sport, football. Sure. And one thing we'll come to much later, but uh, we're talking about a uh, friend uh, of the pod, John Rosengren, the journalist, in those final pictures of Hemingway. He said it, he could not believe that he was only 61 at the time. Mm. He looked like a man of 80. And who knows, that could have had something to do with these brain injuries, which we will track in mm. Exhaustive detail on this episode of of Art of Darkness. All right, could I, could I mm. uh, pop in with just a paragraph from mm. uh, one of Hemingway's letters to Scott Fitzgerald um, in December of twenty nine? Yeah. Do it. So, to the boxing thing and to the um, damage that causes. One of the first times I ever boxed, a fellow named Morty Helnick. After the bell for the end of the round, I dropped my hands. The minute I dropped my hands, he hit me with a right swing full to the pit of the stomach. After the fight, I was sick for nearly a week. The second time I boxed him, I was winning easily. He had the fight anyway, so he fouled me deliberately. Never had such pain in my life. One ball swelled up nearly big as a fist. That is the way boxing is. Look. In so-called friendly bouts, you are never trying to knock them out, yet you never know, but that they will knock you out. You get completely the habit of suspicion. Boxing in the gym with a fellow, he let his thumb stick out beyond his gloves. The thumb caught me in the left eye, and I was blinded by it. He blinded in his life at least four men. Never intentionally, just the byproduct of a dirty trick. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Again, not a lark. He actually boxed. This yep. wasn't, yeah. uh, these weren't like friendly spars. I mean, he would go at That's people. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. For real. Uh -huh. mm. All right. Back in World War One. Uh, thank you, Aaron. And Aaron's going to be, Aaron's going to be reading some, some of, uh, Hemingway for us as we go along. Mm -hmm. uh, despite his wounds, Hemingway assisted Italian soldiers to safety, for which he was decorated with the Italian War Merit Cross. So he was decorated at 18 by the Italian military uh, for his service. And this is another point of embellishment. If you listen to him, well, I'll get into it. Uh, again, he's still only 18. He later said of the incident, when you go to war as a boy, you have a great illusion of immortality. Other people get killed, not you. Then when you are bad badly wounded the first time, you lose the illusion and you know it can happen to you. <laughs> 
he sustained, uh, sustained severe shrapnel wounds to both legs, underwent an immediate operation at a distribution center, and spent five days at a field hospital before he was transferred for recuperation to the Red Cross Hospital in Milan. He spent six months at the hospital where he met and formed a strong friendship with Chink Dorman Smith that lasted for decades and shared a room with future American Foreign Service Officer, Ambassador, and author Henry Serrano Villard. While recuperating, he fell in love with Agnes von Kurowski. This is the first real love. A Red Cross nurse, seven years his senior. When Hemingway returned to the U.S. in January of 1919, he believed Agnes would join him within months and the two would marry. Seven years his senior and a nurse in Italy. Who I yeah, think... is, this, is, is this like one of the situations where like the waitress is nice to you? So you think <laughs> <laughs> she reciprocated. She okay, leads okay. him on a little bit. Okay. And I think she may have even been engaged to a doctor, but but then ended up settling or, or, or marrying someone else. Oh, we'll get to it. Okay. He received a hero's welcome in the U.S. A reporter from the New York Sun met him in New York City, and he made headlines in New York, and I assume in Chicago. Uh, in Oak Park, he received a hero's welcome and embellished his war stories locally for a fee. He spoke in front of various civic and vet veterans groups and so forth. Uh, it really got to his head. Uh, he claimed he managed to carry an injured man to safety, which isn't really verifiable. He was also blown up. Uh, mm -hmm. And he also claimed that he fought alongside an elite unit before the shooting stopped. Uh, <laughs> In short, he's, he's on a little bicycle with candy and, <laughs> and cigarettes, right? I imagine a little bell on it. Ding, ding, ding. Yep, hey, yep, fellas, yep. Chocolate. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. If you're feeling cynical, you could say he lied. If you're mm. feeling generous, you could say he was a natural storyteller. Mm. Uh, I like that. I like mm -hmm. that. Can we, mm. would it be um, to just inject a, just a yes. hair about World War One, real quick? Do it. Bring it on. So it, it's very hard to put ourselves back in the, the headspace of trench warfare and the kind of casualties that we're seeing and how dangerous this is, right? And this is before antibiotics, right? So there was no, there's still no good germ theory. Uh, or at least there was, you know, no treatment for uh, sepsis. You know, that that didn't come till right before World War II, right? Um, mm -hmm. The carnage was unlike anything anyone had ever seen. At Passchendaele in Yeep, there were 1,000 bodies per square foot. Per square foot, yeah, right? So that kind of horror, right? And, you know, Hemingway, of course, didn't see that. He saw a different front, but he still saw real fighting. He still saw real combat. Um, and I had forgotten that he went so late, right? This is 1914 to 1918. So he just, he just got a taste before it, the armistice was signed, which is, I don't know, I just found that, fascinating i thought just a little eject a little historical um a little more context on that yeah on yeah that no, i appreciate that yeah, I mean, yeah. you're you're right he is right at the end yeah when you said 1899 I, or a little earlier on i started doing some math i was like well, how yeah. is he in world war one he's like barely old enough to barely yeah. got there before it ended yeah. right yeah <laughs> mm. 
Yeah, and this is a motif that would go on throughout his life. Hemingway mm-hmm. and war are uh, unavoidable. You can't mm-hmm. really talk about uh, the 20th century and the way it was covered and handled without talking about Hemingway, and you can't talk about Hemingway's life without talking about the various wars. Uh, thank you, Aaron. He... Sorry, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, d- do not apologize. You are here for a reason. Friend ah, of the pod, love Aaron it, Gwynn. Love it. Love great it, love Aaron it. Gwynn. Um, Hemingway received a letter in March. Ernie, dear boy, I am writing this late at night after a long think to myself, and I am afraid it is going to hurt you, but I'm sure it won't harm you permanently. For quite a while before you left, I was trying to convince myself it was a real love affair because we always seemed to disagree, and then arguments always wore me out so that I finally gave in to keep you from doing something desperate. Now, after a couple of months away from you, I know that I am still very fond of you, but it is more as a mother than as a sweetheart. It's all right to say I'm a kid. That was his nickname for her, but I'm not. And I'm getting less and less so every day. So kid, still kid to me and always will be. Can you forgive me someday for unwittingly deceiving you? You know, I'm not really bad and I don't mean to do wrong. And now I realize it was my fault in in the beginning that you cared for me and regret it from the bottom of my heart. But I am now and always will be too old. And that's the truth. And I can't get away from the fact that you're just a boy, a kid. I somehow feel that someday I'll have reason to be proud of you. But dear boy, I can't wait for that day. And it was wrong to hurry a career. I tried hard to make you understand a bit of what I was thinking on that trip from Padua to Milan. But you acted like a spoiled child, and I couldn't keep on hurting you. Now, I only have the courage because I'm far away. Then, and believe me when I say this is sudden for me too, I expect to be married soon. And I hope and pray that after you've thought things out, you'll be able to forgive me and start a wonderful career and show what a man you really are. Ever admiringly and fondly, your friend, Aggie. Uh, that's the Michael Jordan of <laughs> fucking dear John letters. That is every, t- I mean, I'm sorry. Every time you think, Oh my gosh, it gets worse. It gets worse. He comes back and does a fucking 360 and yeah. dunks it and breaks the backboard. I mean, how do you fucking survive that? Good grief. <laughs> Absolutely bodied. Yeah. Bodied. And- body and in a letter a letter a very succinctly written a a letter that in a way it is in the hemingway style either yeah there was no amazing filigree there's not a a word uh an extra word in there Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of wishy-washiness not a lot of like you know Mm mm-hmm Yep, and for young people, uh, and 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 I guess even uh, even older people, you you think about yourself and your life, and you think, oh, I'll never be uh, Hemingway, and I'll never never match him. Even Hemingway got friend zoned, all right, <laughs> hard, so mm, hard, yeah. And that letter is savage. brutal, brutal. Oof. Oof, she knew what she was doing too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that she could have done, she could have been a lot gentler. I think I think there's a lot of like. A lot of bite in that letter. The uh, boy thing, right? The constant yeah. infantilization of mm. him really yeah. hits, hit me hard. Just, you know, the repetition of, you know, I'm a woman and you're a boy and you're a boy and you're a boy. I'm like, 
Woo! Your friend. Ooh. It's like, yeah. oh my gosh. Yeah. Whoa, doggy. Yeah. It Whoa, was, doggy, indeed. She thought about that. She, she did thought not about just, it. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> she hints at these arguments uh, that right. they had. So I think she finally had her chance to just, yeah, <laughs> rip the band aid off. Yeah. And we're... this is how Gamergate started right here. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, nothing changes. All right. Nothing moving changes. along, nothing changes. Biographer Jeffrey Myers writes, Agnes's rejection devastated and scarred the young man. In future relationships, Hemingway followed a pattern of abandoning a wife before she abandoned him, with one notable exception, which we'll come to. <laughs> uh, that that was a serious love affair, and this is his first heartbreak, uh, which <laughs> coincided with his first really serious physical injuries. So it must have been an absolutely heady time. His legs were torn up. He very well could have died. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the heartbreak literally gave him a fever. Uh, wow. He started drinking, drinking liquor, and he described the way that he got over it was cognac and two girls he violently rushed. He called it cauterization oh my god whoa whoa mm -hmm. yeah what is violently rushed mean? yeah that's what i was uh, saying does everybody else know what that means I don't know. i'm gonna i'm gonna think it was just some sort of uh maybe not even a youper you a youper a euphemism <laughs> i can't talk it's not even a euphemism it's like a hyper euphemism Euph yeah. oh my god euphemism yeah. Yeah. uh but in any case um huh. wow yeah yeah violently rushed hashtag me too uh, yeah hashtag, hashtag violently rushed uh, <laughs> good grief yeah good grief is right uh, again and we've yet to touch on this um and i think maybe we'll leave a little bit of time in the after dark to talk about the re the recent boulderization of the rural doll mm -hmm. uh and how let's actually frame this in right now hemingway was left in conrad mm -hmm. was removed and replaced with steinbeck now let's just remember that as we go along and describe mm -hmm. the life of hemingway mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it really does make one wonder it really truly does they got rid of Kipling, they got rid of Conrad. Mm -hmm. Conrad doesn't stay in, right? Hemingway stays in. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, I mean, we covered Conrad. I don't think in Conrad's personal life, there was anything remotely he, as... He uh, was a, yeah. he, he had moments of being a bit of a jerk, but there was no like, there's nothing that, you know, he could have been brought up on charges for. Right? And, <laughs> right. And with Hemingway, there will be. Yeah. We're going to see. There will be. All right. So we'll talk about that a little more in the after dark. I'm sure we all share the same opinion on that matter. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. In any case, what does a young writer do, a young man do, uh, when he's been to war, received a hero's welcome, kind of got, I mean, kind of lied about it, gets his first heartbreak, starts drinking. What's, what's he going to do? He's going to start writing. Mm, better, <laughs> man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he better. That's right. That's right. So he started writing short stories and he received a rejections from the Saturday Evening Post and Red Book. Hemingway got friend zoned and Hemingway got rejections. There's hope Man. for you. Mm. And and uh to sort of uh, deepen it a little more, he was he was messed up at this point. At night he needed a light. He had been oh. wounded at night. He was traumatized. Yeah. Uh, 
Ursula would sleep in his room and he was frightened of sleeping alone. Like hence, henceforth this is one of the reasons he always had a, a new woman lined up uh, after he had burned all of his credit with the, with the previous one. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's that again, great... not, mm. oh, I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm sorry. Not um, there's that great uh, sentence um, that Jake Barnes thinks at the end of that chapter in Sun Also Rises, where um, he he runs uh, Brett back home and he comes home and he needs to go to sleep, but he lies there in the dark and then he lights a lamp and he says, you know, it's it's all well and good to be hard boiled about something in daylight, but at nighttime, it is another matter. So mm. like it got to his characters as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Hemingway returned home in 1919 to a time of readjustment before the age of 20. He had gained from the war, a maturity that was at odds with living at home without a job and with the need for recuperation. One of his biographers explains Hemingway could not really tell his parents what he thought when he saw his bloody knee. He was not able to tell them how scared he had been in another country with surgeons who could not tell him in English if his leg was coming off or not. In September, he took a fishing and camping trip with high school friends to the back country of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Oh, he was. Speaking of Uper. There you go. Yeah. 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 Yep. yep. <laughs> the trip became the inspiration for his short story, Big Two-Hearted River, <laughs> in which the semi-autobiographical character Nick Adams takes to the country to find solitude after returning from war. A family friend offered him a job in Toronto, and with nothing else to do, he accepted. Uh, I think a lot of people end up in Toronto like that. Shout out to Toronto. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I love you. It's all good. I, I really, je- I want to visit Toronto. I'm very curious. I bet it's beautiful, actually. Yeah, I bet it been. is. I bet it's gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. We, we love our Canadian friends and listeners. It's a, uh, it's a cool city. Is it? No, oh, yeah. cool. Yeah. Late that year, he began as a freelancer and staff writer for the Toronto Weekly uh, Star Weekly. He returned to Michigan the following June and then moved to Chicago in September of 1920 to live with friends while still filing stories for the Toronto Star. Around this time, he takes a trip to Walloon Lake in Michigan with his family. There are arguments. He's 21 years old. There's a secret moonlight party with his sisters. Mm -hmm. His mother is furious. She calls him a disgrace. My dear son, Ernest, she wrote in a letter, a mother's love is like a bank. And she said, you have overdrawn. This letter is heavy. Mm. She's like, it's time for you to start depositing some love and some respect into this relationship. She wrote him. Nothing good that comes from a mother's letter after she uses a simile on you, man. There's nothing (laughs) you should not read on. (laughs) Right, right. Mother's well, love is like a bank. Uh oh. <laughs> I mean, this this I you know I don't have this entire letter, but this is a savage and rather famous letter, and mm. uh, comparable to the the breakup. So the the the, the would be wife uh, writes you the Michael Jordan of breakup letters and says she feels <sighs> like a mother. Then your mother says, "Son, I'm like a bank, and you've overdrawn." I mean, this is the women in your life. You're having a rough time. Uh, not good. Uh, probably going to lead to some complications down the way. What do you mm-hmm. boys think? Mm-hmm. It might. Mm-hmm. In Chicago, he worked as an associate editor of the monthly journal Cooperative Commonwealth, where he met novelist Sherwood Anderson. 
When St. Louis native Hadley Richardson came to Chicago to visit the sister of Hemingway's roommate, Hemingway became infatuated. And here we are. Ding, 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 ding. Wife numero uno. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Hadley Richardson. Come on down. (laughs) You're on Hemingway's wife. Yeah, so she would be the first uh, Hemingway wife, 28 years old, from St. Louis. Wait, how, how, how old was she? 28. So she was the same age as Agnes. Yeah, he was attracted to uh, older women here. Okay, okay. Yeah, right. yeah. so yeah, sort of interesting. He's only 21. Uh, maybe it has something to do with the sister who was older and who was... There could be some weird Freudian thing there. Could be. Uh, that or he probably felt a little older than his age because of... That- the fact that he had been to war. <laughs> right. Uh, and he's, he's obviously the other thing you have to say, he, Hemingway was a genius. There's mm-hmm. no question. He was a genius. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, a world changing genius. Mm-hmm. Um, her, uh, Hadley's alcoholic father shot himself when she was 13 and she had a sister who burned to death in a fire. Oh my God. Now she had a trust fund. All right. So Hadley's a trust fund kid, not, Giga wealthy, but comfortable wealthy to the point where Hemingway's claims of poverty in Paris are all horseshit. That's Not, correct. They That's had money. Correct. They That's always correct. had money to go out and drink. They had yeah. money to buy paintings that would later become invaluable. Uh, and uh, yeah, they never really wanted for anything. He played it up. Um, mm. She had a mental breakdown when she was at, she was at Bryn Mawr. That's right. And... Her mother had died weeks before she met Hemingway. Within six weeks of meeting one another, they were talking of marriage. Uh, They wrote each other almost daily. She once wrote him, we're the same firm. Hmm. So this is a, apparently this is how people talk to each other back then. I am like a bank. (laughs) We are the same firm, you and I. (laughs) She sent him a new Corona typewriter. And he later claimed, I knew she was the girl I was going to marry. Hadley, red-haired with a nurturing instinct, which he desperately needs, mm-hmm. was eight years older than Hemingway. Despite the age difference, Hadley, who had grown up with an overprotective mother, seemed less mature than usual for a young woman her age. Bernice Kurt, author of The Hemingway Women, claims Hadley was evocative of Agnes, but that Hadley had a childishness that Agnes lacked. Probably coddled. The two corresponded for a few months and then decided to marry and travel to Europe. They wanted to visit Rome, but Sherwood Anderson convinced them to visit Paris instead, writing letters of introduction for the young couple. They were married on September 3rd of 1921. Two months later, Hemingway was hired as a foreign correspondent for the Toronto Star, and the couple left for Paris. He, I think he kind of hated the editor of the Toronto Star. He probably worked with multiple ones, but Mm -hmm. I think he was, he was ready to move past journalism pretty quickly. Although he would he would write journalism most of his, I mean, his life. I mean, he became a war correspondent later. And uh, uh, in fact, he became the highest paid like correspondent until up to that time. Um, mm-hmm. This would come later. Of Hemingway's marriage to Hadley, Myers uh, claims, with Hadley, Hemingway achieved everything he had hoped for with Agnes, the love of a, of a beautiful woman, a comfortable life or a comfortable income and a life in Europe. Mm. And that brings us to the next section of 
this outline that I have for this core episode of Art of Darkness. Ah, Paris. Are we ready? Excited? Mm-hmm. Let's ah, do it. Gay, the gay Paris, the city of lights. <laughs> and here we are, the the myth. Uh, and, and wouldn't you love to just teleport to Paris circa 1923 and wander mm. the streets? And Yeah, uh, what yeah fun, that sounds man. awesome. Yeah. Mm, what what yeah, a crew. Joyce. Mm. Oh, we're getting into it. Elliot. Mm. Stein, Stein, like heavy hitters, man. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, and we'll we'll get to it. I mean, they. I think Stein said something. Somebody said Paris is where the the modern world is. Mm-hmm. Something to that right. effect. I have the note. All right, Carlos Baker, Hemingway's first biographer, believes that well, Anderson suggested Paris because the monetary exchange rate made it an inex- inexpensive place to live. More importantly, it was where the most interesting people in the world lived now they're now they're all on podcasts yeah right. uh in <laughs> the podcast archipelago uh in paris hemingway met american writer and art collector gertrude stein irish novelist james joyce american poet ezra pound who could help a young writer up the rungs of a career and other writers all people we will cover uh the the Hemingway of the early Paris years was a tall well we've already covered Joyce yeah. uh was a tall handsome muscular broad-shouldered brown-eyed rosy-cheeked square-jawed soft-voiced young man Hemingway was a catch yeah I'm no looking doubt. at a picture of him from 1923 he looks handsome he looks intense too N- nobody I mean, he never took a bad picture mm. every every <laughs> Every picture you see of Hemingway, it's like, that's a great picture. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. I mean, and women would, uh, they would describe him as just like a hunk. He was a piece yep. you'd want to, you'd want to uh, take a bite off that cake. He was a dime sure. piece, as they yeah. say. Yeah. There, there you go. The dime yeah. piece. There you go. Very well, good. Well, and yeah. you show up in Paris, and he's an American, right? And there's always some allure to the, you know, the other side. He's a, he's mm-hmm. a sort of a, yeah, interesting. Yes, and of course, indeed. he's got his new wife, so I suppose he's not chasing. Fair too enough. Much yeah. yeah, sure. Uh huh. We'll come to it. <laughs> he and Hadley lived in a small walk up at 74 Rue du Cardinal Lemoine in the Latin Quarter, and he worked in a rented room in a nearby building. Again, poverty, you can rent a room. Okay. Yeah. Stein, who was the bastion of modernism in Paris, became Hemingway's mentor and godmother to his son, Jack. We'll get to Bumby here in a minute. Uh, she introduced him to the expatriate artists and writers of the Montparnasse Quarter, whom she referred to as the Lost Generation, a term Hemingway popularized with the publication of The Sun Also Rises. A regular at Stein's salon, Hemingway met influential painters such as P- Pablo Picasso, Joan Moreau, and Juan Gris. He eventually withdrew from Stein's influence, and their relationship deteriorated into a literary quarrel that spanned decades. While living in Paris in 1922, Hemingway befriended artist Henry Strader, who painted two portraits of him. Ezra Pound met Hemingway by chance at Sylvia Beach's bookshop, Shakespeare and Company, in 1922. The uh, the two toured Italy in 1923 and lived on the same street in 1924. They forged a strong Hmm. friendship, and in Hemingway, Pound recognized and fostered a young talent. Now, I want to get to uh, the writing and the iceberg theory which Brad already mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, Aaron, uh, if you had to describe the iceberg theory, how would you describe it? 
to someone so who doesn't know So the this. idea as it is proposed is that you are trying to write in a way that is hyper-specific and hyper-concrete. And by concrete, I mean sensory detail of the senses, of the five senses. And you're writing in a way that the reservoir of emotion, the types of things that were put on the page in, in the purple prose of uh, the Victorian novel are reserved and gestured at. So the words on the page, the, the finely crafted, uh, you know, chiseled prose that appears on the pages of Hemingway's stories and novels is just the part of the iceberg that sticks up above the water. But, you know, you can meditate on those perfect sentences, the, you know, the so-called muscular prose, and underneath is what is not seen, which is the bulk of the iceberg and the emotional depth, the, uh, the psychic um, and psychological depth. And so that's the, as I understand it, that is the great iceberg theory of, of Hemingway's writing. Brad, you co-sign that? Maybe yeah, no, that's a that's a that's an excellent description. Um, yeah, I think I think that's I think that's exactly right. All right, yeah. great. Well, so I want to read a little bit more here about it. In 1923, Hemingway conceived of the idea of a new theory of writing after finishing the short story "Out of Season." In a movable feast which was published posthumously, it's the memoir about his years as a young writer in Paris. He explains, I omitted the real end of Out of Season, which was that the old man hanged himself. This was omitted in my new theory that you could omit anything, and the omitted part would strengthen the story. In chapter 16 of Death in the Afternoon, he compares his theory about writing to an iceberg. Uh, Carlos, Carlos Baker, his first biographer, believed that as a writer of short stories, Hemingway learned how to get the most from the least, how to prune language and avoid wasted motion, how to multiply intensities, and how to tell nothing but the truth in a way that allows uh, for telling more than the truth. Baker also notes that the writing style of the iceberg theory suggests that the story's narrative and nuanced complexities, complete with symbolism, operate under the surface of the story itself. So in a way, he's echoing psychoanalysis and the birth of psychology. He A lot of this stuff, though, he describes when they describe right here how to get the most from the least, how to prune language. That's something that an editor at a newspaper would teach you to do. Mm -hmm. So it's, a, it's kind of a combination of this like low to middle brow journalism right this mm -hmm. this quotidian day-to-day -day, hey how do you tell the story to somebody who's in sixth grade we've got a sixth grade education that was our readers mm -hmm. you know it's he got that pruning 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 but then elevated by this understanding of subconscious realities mm -hmm. and right with yeah. the depths the depths that you can hint at without pointing at them right right and and i think you know i think this is something that gets kind of lost in in thinking about hemingway and the the way that hemingway's influences has kind of radiated out um there's this notion that he's extremely economical which he is and then the the sort of the not so successful um aping of hemingway of trying mm -hmm. to be like hemingway happens when you just try to write economical and don't recognize that Hemingway's deliberately leaving out stuff that he knows and trying to trying to suggest it and hint at it 
in a in a rich way. He's not just writing clipped, efficient sentences to to convey an action, right? right? He knows everything that's happening. He knows he you know, and if he wanted to, he could have described every possible physical and emotional detail. But the idea is, you know, I'm gonna make I'm gonna make three lines, and you're gonna see an entire landscape kind of thing. Um, yeah, and that's that's where I see you know. I have thoughts about style, obviously, and I'm sure Aaron's got thoughts that are that are some of them are the same, some of them are different. But um, that's what I see is the be- the 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 profound innovation of the Hemingway style. But you have to take the whole thing if you're going to if you're really going to try and lean on that Hemingway style as a writer. Well, um, and also, you know, um, when Hemingway style is often described by his detractors. Mm-hmm you'll get this description of it as being simple and plain and this sort of thing. First paragraph of a farewell to arms. We'll see if this actually is simple. Yeah. In the late summer of that year, we lived in a house in a village that looked across the river and the plains to the mountains. In the bed of the river, there were pebbles and boulders dry and white in the sun and the water was clear and swiftly moving and blue in the channels. Troops went by the house and down the road in the dust they raised, powdered the leaves of the trees. The trunks of the trees too were dusty and the leaves fell early that year. And we saw the troops marching along the road and the dust rising and leaves stirred by the breeze falling and the soldiers marching and afterward the road bare and white except for the leaves. Now, I would submit that that is not the prose of uh, you know simple pared wow. down that is an elegant lyrical but absolutely necessary prose that is informed by as as kevin said journalism as other thing you know what you were talking about brad but is also informed by the rhythms of the king james bible particularly in the old testament mm-hmm. the the mm-hmm. the constant and 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 the one my favorite um just syntactical little stylistic thing in there i mean that's a gorgeous passage i'm really pretty but one of my favorite little syntactical things is when he says uh, i might get it not quite right and the tree and the trees too were dusty yes Yes. Ah, there's there's something about that turn that is like oh we're not we're not this isn't a newspaper article like if you were if you were if you were uh under the illusion that you were just dealing with um the encyclopedia entry to something you suddenly are that little twist for me actually seals the whole thing in as this as as like a piece of poetic uh, a a little mini poetic masterpiece i agree and what whereas um Good newspaper writing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, has one plane, and that is the plane of the visual. You know, that day we saw the tanks roll in, you know, to Paris, and we saw the men, right? And and that can be rich and interesting, but in the paragraph I just read, you get the planes of the way the dust smelled and the sound of the men marching, and right, you're getting all these, all this sensory depth. Mm-hmm. Which you don't get in, and you know, the average—I should say—average newspaper article. Right, right. Now I want to—I want to pause here because you brought up the 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 good book, Aaron. And yeah, yeah. I did a little bit of on-the-fly research here, 
Hemingway was raised in a, congress- a congregationalist Protestant home, and his first conversion to Catholicism occurred when he was a 19-year-old and a volunteer ambulance driver in Italy during World War One. Now, this is this was I've heard this told different ways. I am on angelusnews.com. I am on a <laughs> there's an ad for Catholic cemeteries and mortuaries on the right, which I may click later. Uh, and <laughs> you never know when you're going to need that. <laughs> that's correct. That's uh, that's so true. Um, but in any case, and he would we're, we're going to get to it. But this is a very interesting article. Uh, so they retell the story of how he was in, injured. Now, I knew an Italian priest recovered his body hmm. and I knew he had received last rites. But I remember reading that too. He was also baptized on the battlefield. Okay. So later, hmm. because his second wife, who is lurking in the background even now, came from a, a very well-to-do, extremely well-to-do Catholic family in, I believe, in St. Louis or in Arkansas. And uh, uh, that, so that became, he can he, he ends up converting for her. But according to his, he would later say, I've, I've been a Catholic since I was blown up in Italy, right? Because mm. a priest gave me the last rites. Um, here's his description of it. A big Austrian trench mortar bomb of the type that used to be called ash cans exploded in the darkness. I died then. I felt my soul or something coming right out of my body like you'd pull a silk handkerchief out of a pocket by one corner. It flew around and then came back and went in again, and I wasn't dead anymore. After having been anointed, Hemingway described himself as becoming a super Catholic. It was a near-death experience that changed the course of his life. Uh, after the war, he went to work, blah, 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 and ate. Okay, we'll get into it. Um, I like the idea of him calling himself a super Catholic. Like, he immediately becomes a little, well, listen, I'm the most Catholic person, you know, just like. <laughs> you think, hey, you think you're Catholic? Right. <laughs> I became a Catholic on the battlefield. You call I was on the verge Catholic- of death. Yeah. You call that Catholicism? <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny, uh, Aaron, because it's it's quite like that. <laughs> In a lot of ways, uh, it really can be. I'm bookmarking this uh, this page, the troubled, the troubled Catholicism of Ernest Hemingway, and mm-hmm. bookmarked, saved, yeah, very go. good, very exciting. But yeah, and and of course, he must have been raised with the Bible in the house, and and um, had to have been. Um, had to have been. And Gwyn, uh, you got a little. Um, I'm glad you read from that. That's a great uh, example. I, I want to come back to that great novel when we arrive to it mm-hmm, chronologically. Mm-hmm. Did you have a selection? Anything from any of the short stories? That you Absolutely, right okay. here. I, I'll it. tell you what I'll share is in his first collection, which is called "In Our Time." The stories are separated by these small. Um, pieces of fiction that are often just a paragraph in length. And I, you know, I think Brad and I were trained to call uh, things like these, um, uh, you know, flash fiction or prose poems or micro fiction. Here's just very short, but in line with, with what we were just talking about and no title, um, just italicized paragraphs in between the stories. We were in a garden at Mont. Young Buckley came in with his patrol from across the river. The first German I saw climbed up over the garden wall. He waited till he got one leg over, and we waited until he got one leg over and then potted him. He had so much equipment on and looked 
awfully surprised and fell down into the garden. Then three more came over further down the wall. We shot them. They all came just like that. Mm. Yeah. Right. So the obvious thing that is left out is, well, how does the narrator feel about shooting these Germans? How do, what is it like when, you know, you, you quote pot a guy. Right. uh, But see how all that, all those things are baked into the syntax and the diction without actually saying them. Right. Right. Even the, we were in the garden. That's how you start to tell a story about a dream you had last night. Right. So the Bible kind of happened. Right. It's just kind of you don't say how you got there or what happened afterward. It's just like we were in the garden. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Interesting. That's a beautiful little piece. I forgot about those 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 interstitial pieces in in that book. They're they're interesting. interesting And it's like it's interesting that they're not titled. It's Mm -hmm. interesting that there's no sort of context for these they are generally about World War Mm One. And um, you turn the page on big two-hearted river or Indian camp or any of these, you know, fantastic first stories. And then there are these pieces and I I cannot help, but think of the kinds of things Ezra pound is doing to the poetry of T.S. Eliot. If you've seen the first draft of the wasteland, um, the first page in the facsimile edition has a big red X through it. Where pound just like cut all of this. Yeah. Next page, big X, right. and then uh, he scribbles out. He crosses out Elliot's title, which is terrible, and writes the wasteland. What was Elliot's title? Do you remember? We do the policeman in different voices. No, isn't that no. terrible? That's, That's terrible. awful. It's awful. <laughs> oh. it's, it's from Dickens, uh, our mutual oh. friend, and yeah. you know, no, some... the wasteland is like this is a this is a book of the Bible or something. Exactly. Right? Like, yeah. No, I mean, like Pound is like fuck that shit. <laughs> it's called the wasteland. So we do the policeman in different voices. That's horrible. <laughs> it sounds like uh like a line Beckett would cut from a uh, one of the, his worst plays. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and by yeah. the way, just very quickly, one paragraph about this Ezra Pound guy who is mm-hmm. uh sort of without analog today. I mean, this guy was like a literary producer. Mm. Like he was like, you know, Harvey Weinstein without the stuff that we now think of <laughs> right. with Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, sure. So Aaron's taking is, us to Pound Town. Oh, right. <laughs> Pound Town. Here we go. Kevin Birmingham's book about Ulysses, the most dangerous book, a paragraph about Ezra. Ezra Pound pushed the furniture to the edges of the study in Sussex so that he would have enough room to teach William Butler Yates how to fence. Pound would lunge and retreat across the room while Yates, 20 years his senior, would slash the air with his foil. They'd met in London in 1909, shortly after Pound published his first collection of poetry. A glowing review appeared in London's Evening Standard, quote, wild and haunting stuff, absolutely poetic, originally imaginative, passionate, spiritual, those who do not consider those who do not consider it crazy may well consider it inspired words are no good describing it end quote pound had written the review himself 
<laughs> Dynamite. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, really we need, funny because we, we could use the Ezra Pound these days. Exactly. Just like, just like balls out. Um, and Ezra Pound's one of those guys, brilliant writer, uh, no question about it. But like his place, his star on the walk of fame is secure, even if all of his writing had disappeared. A genius editor. Yeah. A genius editor and promoter. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, knew how to bring the best out of so many of those guys. And, you know, people like Stein is like, okay. This guy has real talent. This guy is a genius at promotion. Probably the closest thing we've had to an Ezra Pound in our lifetimes is Gordon Lish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the work with Raymond Carver. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Very interesting. We will cover Pound on a future Art of Darkness oh, oh. episode. Oh, yeah, because there's yeah. darkness. There's a lot of darkness. Oh, there. my gosh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. The boys go to Pound Town. All right. It. So there we go. Pound introduced Hemingway to James Joyce, with whom Hemingway frequently embarked on alcoholic sprees. Hmm. During his first 20 uh, 20 months in Paris, Hemingway filed 88 stories for the Toronto Star. He covered the Greco-Turkish War, where he witnessed the burning of Smyrna and wrote travel pieces such as tuna fishing in Spain and Hmm. trout fishing all across Europe. Spain has the best, then Germany. Hemingway was devastated on learning that Hadley had lost, and this is serious, lost a suitcase filled with his manuscripts at the Gare de Lyon as she was traveling to Geneva to meet him in December of 1922. Nearly all of Hemingway's early writing, his juvenilia and apprentice fiction, including the duplicates, was lost. Back your shit up. Back that Keep shit up. Back man. that back shit that up. Ass. Go better back, <laughs> back that ass. That, that, yeah, back that ass up. Now, you the next heard, thing is, heard it? did he immediately throw Hadley into the river? Or, like, what? I mean, he. No one would react well to this. No I, one on you know, earth he, would react well he to He describes it. it in, I don't have the excerpt right now, but he, he described it in uh, um, A Movable Feast, how mm. devastated he was. Uh, he he forgave her verbally, but yeah. like, <laughs> inside he just harbored this. Like, That's one of those. It's fine. Horror. It's yeah, it's fine. fine. It'll be fine. It's just ju- juvenilia. It's just juvenilia. I, I think yeah. that scene. I think of like Pulp Fiction, where Bruce Willis real uh, where his girlfriend tells him that she left the watch. Right? right, and he and he's like right. in the car, and he's like right. beating the ceiling. How could you forget? Right, <laughs> right, right. But I, I think he right. was. I think she was also shout out to Hadley. Like she was devastated. She was like, I'm sure. I mean, she was a devoted. I mean, she loved him, right? And she loved yeah. his work. She knew its importance, and she was completely, completely devastated that this yeah. was somehow her fault, right? My my personal opinion about Hemingway, having spent a lot of time in the biographies, writing a play about him, thinking mm-hmm. about all of this, uh, is that he should have stayed with Hadley. Yes. And he should have stayed with her so much that I regret him leaving. I, I feel the same. And mm-hmm. and you feel that very intensely when you read a movable feast. You know, it's this is at the end of his life. I think it's the best thing he ever wrote. He wrote it right before he committed suicide, w- when he thought he couldn't write anymore. I would urge everyone, he, if he you was want sort to read of Hemingway, start there. 
Yeah, it's so good. And get the so get the version of a movable feast that was not edited by his fourth wife, Mary. That's right. That's right. Uh, get the one that is sort of uh, pure. Uh, because, of course, Mary had a certain degree of bias uh, being the the final wife. The I will say... The library just put out a restored version, by the way, just real oh, quick. So yeah, very... You know, and and to talk about the footprint that Hemingway has to this day, I know that there's a lot of, oh, we're troubled and, oh, you know, he's so masculine and da-da-da. Again, there's all this gender-bending stuff, so who knows Mm what will end up happening. But when the the Bataclan massacre happened, Mm -hmm. uh, a movable feast sold out in, like, solidarity with Americans, with the American... people who were who were killed then and it was like an american heavy metal band that was sort mm-hmm. of attacked that Crazy. book that that book still sells and um that book that book would be like the literary equivalent of like dark side on vinyl like everybody's there's it's still selling tens of thousands of copies every year um as someone that it, can speak and, from oh i'm sorry kevin go, no, ahead. go ahead no no go ahead as someone who can speak to the, the way that writers go in and out of vogue in the academy uh, from the belly of the beast, I have, when I was in grad school in the 90s, and I finished in 2003, um, you couldn't bring Hemingway up without someone starting to denigrate him, right? For, for you know, for points or for whatever. But I have seen my colleagues who teach um, modernism start teaching sun also rises farewell to arms and the short stories again so my sense is that hemingway who's never gone out of style but is is back in critical vogue particularly Mm. because of the gender stuff which is which is there which is a real thing um and i think I, i mean i don't think that you have to do any kind of real fancy stepping to talk about uh, trans stuff and and what Hemingway is going, you know, Hemingway's son Gregory died, yep. uh, you know, a transgender woman in a Miami Dade Gloria, mm-hmm. right? Dies, yep. uh, um, uh, you know, a transgender woman in a Miami Dade uh, jail cell. So, I mean, this is a real thing in uh, Hemingway's work. It's a it's a thing in Hemingway's family. It's a, I mean, so I think that there's um, I think a new generation of readers are going to encounter Hemingway and be surprised by how relevant it is. Hundred percent. I and you, you know, put all of that stuff aside. It's extraordinary literature. That's right, and extraordinarily influential. So That's right. There you go. Hundred uh, percent. And we'll get. We're going to touch on all of that. I just want to clarify. Um, you know, at the end of his life, he he was reordering and kind of reworking uh, what would become a movable feast. But I believe he had written a great deal of it prior. I don't know that he had his. In any case, he was sort of writing it up until the end of his life. But a lot he wrote it over many years. Um, it, it, my understanding of it, Aaron. Mm, um, mm, mm. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, Cool. Let's keep on keeping on. We're getting it. We're getting it in. This is this is exciting. Um, so Love he's it. now he's he loses all his juvenilia, uh, all of his early writing. Um, he had been sent on assignment to cover the conference of Lausanne, leaving Hadley, who was sick with a cold, behind in Paris. In Lausanne, he spent days covering a conference and the evenings drinking with Lincoln Steffens. Before setting off to meet him in Switzerland, thinking he would want to show his work to Steffens, Hadley packed 
all his manuscript scripts into a valise, which had been subsequently stolen at the train station. Although angry and upset, Hemingway went with Hadley to Montreux to ski and apparently did not post a reward for the recovery of the valise. An early story, and this is a fun fact, up in Michigan survived the loss because Gertrude Stein had told him it was unprintable in part because of a seduction scene, and he had stuffed it into a drawer. He was 23 years old, Hadley's pregnant, and he told Stein, I'm too young to be a father. Hmm. With his wife, Hadley, Hemingway first visited the Festival of San Fermin in Pamplona, Spain in 1923, where he became fascinated by bullfighting, and not to a small degree. He would write, thousands of pages on bullfighting hmm. it's around this time he began to be referred to as papa even by much older friends hadley would much later recall that hemingway had his own nicknames for everyone and that he often did things for his friends she suggested that he liked to be looked up looked up to she did not remember precisely how the nickname came into being however it certainly stuck hadley would stitch clothes while they were sitting in the stands of the bullfights which is quite a high contrast. You got a bull bleeding to death, and then there's Hadley knitting, probably with Bumby on her knee, possibly. A little, 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 little baby boy. Mm -hmm. um, in the following uh, September, the couple returned to Toronto. Oh, you know, Bumby hadn't been born yet. Um, Toronto, where their son, John Hadley Nicanor, was born on October 10th of 1923. Nicanor was after a bullfighter Hemingway admired. So it was like that intense. I mean, it'd be Amazing. like... If, yeah, I'm really into the UFC, so I'm going to Yeah, name yeah, my I was son. just thinking, yeah, I'm going to yeah, name, yeah. My, name my kid, like, yeah, right? Anderson yeah. Silva, Gwen. <laughs> uh, during their absence from Paris, Hemingway's first book, Three Stories and Ten Poems, was published. Two of the stories it contained were all that remained after the loss of the suitcase, and the third had been written early the previous year in Italy. Within months, the second volume, In Our Time, Without Capitals, was published by Ezra Pound. Hmm. I believe, yeah, yeah, Ezra uh -huh. Pound published. Uh, the small volume included six vignettes and a dozen stories Hemingway had written the previous summer during his visit to Spain, where he discovered the thrill of the bullfight. He missed Paris, considered Toronto boring, I'm sure Toronto's not boring, and wanted to return to the <laughs> life of a writer rather than the life of a journalist. Hemingway, Hadley, and their son, nicknamed Bumby, which is a nickname I just love. I love the idea of oh, Bumby. It's so cute. Uh, it's yeah. so cute. Yeah. Returned to uh, to Paris in January of 1924 and moved into a new apartment on the Rue Notre Dame de Champ above a noisy sawmill. Of Paris, Hemingway said, there are few bathtubs, no electric fixtures, and all the charm. Uh I'm going to say this again. There are a few bathtubs, no electric fixtures, all the charm, all the good food, and most of the good people in the world. <laughs> How do you really feel, Hemingway? Mm -hmm. um, no, I'm sorry. You said they moved in above a noisy sawmill? I believe they did. Yeah. He may have had a, a studio again. Okay. Uh, they had that's money, about the worst environment for a writer possible. <laughs> and... He, the squalling baby. He would right. describe the the baby's squalling with some horror. Uh, yeah. His his lifelong writing practice was to get up very very early. He would get up before dawn and he would hammer out uh, his day's work. Later, 
his his sons would sort of say he was very unusual because he was inaccessible until noon, but then an extraordinarily active and available father in person. Uh, so he would get a full day's work in before before noon. Uh, the Hemingways returned to Pamplona in 1924 and uh, a third time in June of 1925. This is the bullfighting. They that year uh, they brought with them a group of American and British expatriates. And now we're coming to the sun also rises. Uh, Hemingway's Michigan boyhood friend Bill Smith, Donald Ogden Stewart, Lady Duff Twisden, who is recently divorced, how scandalous, her lover Pat Guthrie, and Harold Loeb. A few days after the fiesta ended, on his birthday, July 21st, he began to write the draft of what would become The Sun Also Rises, finishing eight weeks later. Eight weeks hmm. drafted. A few months later, in December of 1925, the Hemingways left to spend the winter in Schruns, Austria, where Hemingway began revising the manuscript extensively. He edited a lot. I, I was going to mention this earlier, but uh, when when Aaron uh, mentioned A Farewell to Arms, he rewrote the ending of A Farewell to Arms 47 times. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think he's a classic case of he makes it look easy. And, mm -hmm. and yeah. All right. Uh, Pauline Pfeiffer, come on down. <laughs> You're the next contestant on Hemingway's Wives. She <laughs> uh, joined them in January. Uh, and against Hadley's advice, uh, urged Hemingway to sign a contract with Scribner's. He left Austria for a quick trip to New York to meet with the publishers. Uh, and on his return during a stop in Paris, began an affair with Pfeiffer. And Pfeiffer is a beautiful woman from Arkansas, from money, and Catholic. Uh, so they start an affair before he returned to Shroon's to finish the revisions in March. The manuscript arrived in New York in April. He corrected the final proof in Paris in August of 26, and Scribner's published the novel in October. Hemingway helped Ford Maddox Ford edit the Transatlantic Review, which published works by Pound, John Dos Passos, who's Heming who Hemingway had a friendship with, and I think a falling out eventually, uh, Stein, as well as some of Hemingway's own early works, such as Indian Camp. Indian Camp is a uh, short story uh, about sort of the, t the time in Michigan where uh, 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 I think it might be the Nick Adams character, but the Hemingway stand-in is there with his father. His father's a doctor. The father has to give a C-section to a Native American woman, and I believe the the woman dies, and then the the husband blows his brains out. Oof. And the father and the son have a conversation about suicide and whether many people do it. And there's a moment where I think the boy might even ask, well, do do women do it? Do mothers do it too? And mm -hmm. the father says, not many of them. <laughs> you know, and it's mm -hmm. just like this very, right. and this is just like an early short story. Wow. It's super intense. That's heavy. Yeah. Yeah. When mm -hmm. a new edition of In Our Time was published in 1925, the dust jacket bore comments from Ford. Indian Camp received considerable praise. Ford saw it as an important early story of a young writer, and critics in the U.S. praised Hemingway for reinvigorating the, the short story genre with his crisp style and use of declarative sentences. 
Six months earlier, Hemingway had met F. Scott Fitzgerald, and the pair formed a friendship of admiration, admiration and hostility. That's just like us, Brad. Yeah, that's right. right. You need a little that's friend. The... Guys, get a frenemy mm, out there. That's right. Yeah. Cultivate. <laughs> yeah. Cultivate. Tal wrote, talented mm. frenemies. It's good. Yeah. Good cultivate relationships you can't quite explain to other people. <laughs> Uh, Fitzgerald had published The Great Gatsby the same year. Uh, Hemingway read it, liked it, and decided his ne next work had to be a novel. So The Sun Also Rises follows directly on Gatsby. Fitzgerald, in fact, is the one who alerted his editor, Max Perkins, at Scribner's about Hemingway. And Fitzgerald, much like Pound uh, to T.S. Eliot, got Hemingway to edit, and I think cut entirely his first two chapters of The Sun Also Rises. Oh, Probably really? because he was writing his way into the story. Blah, mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. This is the character. Da, 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 da. Cut it. Start right. here. Right. That that can work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I have a little something here from the, uh, from the Lynn biography here. Uh, let me find it. Here we go. And this is about Max Perkins. Perkins had received an earlier tip about a young man named Ernest Hemingway, misspelled. In a hurriedly scrawled note that Fitzgerald had sent him the previous October from the villa in the south of France where he was engaged in completing The Great Gatsby. Fitzgerald had described Hemingway as an American expatriate who wrote for the Transatlantic Review and was destined to have a brilliant career. Ezra Pound published a collection of his short pieces in Paris at some place like the Egotist Press. I haven't it here now, but it's remarkable, and I'd look him up right away. In a Jamesian phrase, Fitzgerald had added, he's the real thing. After determining uh, that the collection of short pieces was actually a publication of the Three Mountains Press, Perkins ordered a copy from Paris. The package cleared customs in December, but he was too busy to inspect its contents until February, at which point he reported his reaction to Fitzgerald. The book accumulates a fearful effect through a series of brief episodes presented with economy, strength, and vitality, a rem remarkable, tight, complete expression of the scene in our time, as it looks to Hemingway. Perkins then repeated the substance of this judgment in a letter to the author himself, although he felt constrained to voice the doubt that we could have seen a way to publish uh, to the publication of this book on account of material considerations. Uh, it is so small that it would give the booksellers no opportunity for substantial profit if issued at a price which custom would dictate. This is a pity because your method is obviously one which enables you to express what you have to say in a very small compass. <laughs> it's sort of like hinting like, hey, maybe write a novel. Mm -hmm. Uh in closing, Perkins emphasized that if Hemingway happened to be writing something that would not raise practical objections to trade publication, Scribner's would like to consider it. Somehow, the letter went astray in the mail so oh, that gosh. Hemingway would have remained oblivious for quite some time mm -hmm. if Perkins' interest in his work, uh, if the editor had not written him again a few days later. Upon receiving word from John Peel Bishop that the author of In Our Time had indeed been doing some writing that might interest Scribner's writing back. I cannot tell you how pleased I was by your letter, Hemingway replied to Perkins. You must know how gladly I would have sent Charles Scribner's sons the manuscript. According to the contract he, agree he had agreed to sign with Bonnie and Livwright, he, he explained, they are to have an option on my next three books. They agreeing that unless they exercise this option to publish the second book within 60 days of the receipt of the manuscript, their option shall lapse. And if they do not publish the second book, they relinquish their option to the third book. 
Thus, at the very moment of becoming a Bonnie and Liveright author, Hemingway let Perkins know that he could easily sever his connection with the firm by writing a book that Liveright would be compelled to turn down. If I am ever in a position to send you anything to consider, I shall certainly do so, he told Perkins. He didn't care, though, about writing a novel, he warned the editor, for it seemed to him an awfully artificial and worked form. Uh, in any case. Huh. That's an and, interesting statement mm -hmm. about the novel. Mm -hmm. That's... Hmm. Yeah, but I mean, he eventually changed his mind, and it was sure. Fitzgerald who uh, partly, you know, inspired that. And, you know, it's quite funny because, uh, well, in any case, we're doing Fitzgerald live in St. Paul, mm -hmm. Minnesota, June fifth. <clears throat> Tickets are at my theater company's website, badmouthtc.com. We're going to do a reading of uh, Winter Dreams uh, from Fitzgerald, but that's only going to be after Brad and I do Fitzgerald Part One. Mm -hmm. And if you want to see Art of Darkness live. Go to that website, badmouthtc.com. It's free. You just got to send uh, spend some money at the the little uh, German verstory and brewery that we're going to be at. It's called Waldman Brewery. Going to be amazing. And I can't wait. I'm yeah. sure Hemingway will come up at some juncture. Oh, sure. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Well, so it's uh, it appears Aaron is. I don't know if Aaron is on mute, but in any case, well, I'm sure he'll come back. We'll have to see. Is it? Is he? Uh, oh, there he is. Aaron, are you still here? I was just, uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was just uh, making sure that I muted my um, mic so that I, I uh, could listen to what was going on. Um, oh, yeah, you're fine. Yeah. Do, yeah. You, do, you, do you have an excerpt from up in Michigan? Is there anything you care to share uh, about this? You can yeah, just chat actually, about it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Actually, um, I have an excerpt from Indian Camp. Okay, oh, okay, Indian Camp. Before you read the excerpt from Indian Camp, yes. Camp, just a little bit about uh, up in Michigan, which is the is the story that it was only salvaged because it was Stein said you can't publish this, so he stuffed it in a, in a drawer, and it's kind of a dirty story with no boundaries. It's set up in Michigan. Even the title is a bit of a bit of a oh puerile. This is, this is the thing with Prudy, right? This is him remembering the thing with Prudy, kind of. Yeah, there's a teenaged girl working in a boarding house in Horton's Bay. There's a blacksmith border. They go down to the dock, and there's just explicitly like a rape scene. And oh. one of the one of the lines is she was frightened, but she wanted it. Oh very gosh. difficult, very complicated uh, yeah. story. And it, it's, it got published and it, it was, and Hemingway would defend it. He said, look, this is life. This is, mm -hmm. this happens. And this gets back to that woke stuff we were talking about earlier, Aaron. Like, do you do anybody a favor if you, if you excise all this stuff out of the canon, if you wipe all these, these uh, difficult, complex stories and these authors out? I don't think so. Personally, we need new stop? stories. Where do, Where you, do stop? you stop? We yeah. need new stories. We need new authors. We need to, we need to support yeah, I'll say diverse authors, diverse experiences, diverse. We we need great writing from as many people as possible, and that will naturally be diverse. But there is an awful lot, uh, you know, of the canon that I think people are really quick to try to jettison because they just don't want to deal with it, and and they and they're trying to score points too. So I I agree. I mean, uh, yeah. also, I've read that story up in Michigan fairly recently. It's not a pro-rape story. It, it deals mm -hmm. with a woman's experience, uh, you know, with a savage, brutal man and and the despair of that experience. And I, I mean, 
if we can't write about these, th I mean, what are what are people writing about? Right. I mean, the, the very first <clears throat> Greek tragedies are about rape. Right. 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 Yeah. Hemingway, even there's a, a an anecdote or a bit of a story he tells. I can't recall exactly where, where he talks about how as a young man up on the boats in, I think maybe in Michigan or somewhere, you'd carry a knife on you because some of the old uh, some of the old men would look at you funny. Yeah. Oh, and really? You, you had, oh, yeah. And you had to kind of keep, you know, they'd say something like uh, two eyes are fine, but one eye for me or something like that. Right, like right. it was, there was some phrase that was like, yeah, like right. there. So Hemingway probably felt a little bit of a, ooh, you know, a little, little scare there that, you know, you transform into this story about this uneasy sexual encounter for mm -hmm. sure. I yeah. think that's right. I mm -hmm. think that's right. Here's a little yeah. bit of Indian camp. At the lake shore, there was another rowboat drawn up. The two Indians stood waiting. Nick and his father got in the stern of the boat, and the Indians shoved it off, and one of them got in to row. Uncle George sat in the stern of the camp rowboat. The young Indians shoved the camp boat off and got in to row Uncle George. The two boats started off in the dark. Nick heard the oarlocks of the other boat quite a way ahead of them in the mist. The Indians rowed with quick, choppy strokes. Nick lay back with his father's arm around him. It was cold on the water. The Indian who was rowing them was working very hard, but the other boat moved further ahead in the mist all the time. Where are we going, Dad? Nick asked. Over to the Indian camp. There is an Indian lady very sick. Oh, Nick said. Across the bay, they found the other boat beached. Uncle George was smoking a cigar in the dark. The young Indian pulled the boat way up on the beach. Uncle George gave, both, gave them both Indian cigars. I'm sorry, Uncle George gave both the Indian cigars. They walked up from the beach through a meadow that was soaking wet with dew following the young Indian who carried a lantern. Then they went into the woods and followed a trail that led to the logging road that ran back into the woods. It was much lighter on the logging road as the timber was cut away on both sides. The young Indian stopped and blew out his lantern, and they all walked along the road. Yeah. This is uh, early writing. Yeah, yeah that's early. Somebody... Right? Yeah. And Bonkers. again, right? And... And, and, mm -hmm. and that the propulsive breath of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's masterful. I, it really is. I looked up uh, the, the phrase and I am no longer on a Catholic website. I am on. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, I just imagined you, Kevin, you have like a browser that only takes you to Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a browser extension. Right. You see my screen glowing in an unusual right. way. Uh, send help. Uh, no, but this is this is the importance of being earnest. Hemingway meets the gay Gothic by Mark Derry in thought catalog. And I found this interesting little passage by looking up that, that phrase that I was trying to remember. Um, let's see here. One moment. Right. A movable, a movable feast is one seriously bitchy book with its feline swipes at Stein Fitzgerald and Ford Maddox Ford. 
I had always avoided looking at Ford when I could, and I always held my breath when I was near him in a closed room, Hemingway. And Wyndham Lewis, who in Hem's unhappy appraisal had a face of a frog, not a bullfrog, but just any frog, and the eyes of an unsuccessful rapist. Amazing. The subject of homosexuality, which Hemingway abhorred in men and was fascinated by in women, is a refrain throughout the book, sometimes openly, but more often through innuendo. There is the famous sex ed lesson Stein gives the square-jawed young man from the Midwest who concedes all these years later that, well, yes, I had certain prejudices against homosexuality since I knew its more primitive aspects, summed up in the phrase that wolves used on the lake boats, oh, gash may be fine, but one eye for mine. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So Hemingway, as a young man, encountered maybe a certain amount of violent or dark pederasty and yeah. uh, certain characters that probably turned him off and created like a different time. <laughs> There's a certain uh, amount of that in some of the Nick Adams stories where Nick Adam is train hopping, mm-hmm. uh, which is mm-hmm. something that people used to do quite often. Maybe they still do as far as I know. Um, and there's a great story called the battler where Nick Adams gets thrown off the uh, train by a railroad bull or a railroad cop. And he meets up with these two um, drifters. One is African-American and the other is like this old boxer that he takes care of. And the old boxer kind of will fly into these rages and the black character will have to knock him out right and mm-hmm. he, he tries it's amazing it's an amazing story right and so they're all kind of around this fire the three of them and you know they're getting ready to have dinner and then this old boxer gets really aggressive with nick and there's the hint of maybe some of what you're talking about kevin and then right when you think oh my gosh like something's going to pop off. The black dude just smooth knocks this guy out. And he, and he says, you know, don't, don't worry, son. I wasn't going to let anything happen to you, you know, but it's best mm. if you move along. He, he gets like this sometimes and he'll come around and he won't remember any of this. It's, mm. I mean, brutal mm. and interesting, but this really uh, sweet moment between um, this guy who takes care of this old boxer and Nick Adams. Yeah, hmm. interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad we touched on this because I remember when I first uh, encountered that, I was like, holy moly. Right. <laughs> yeah, okay. This is maybe something you don't think about when you think about Hemingway. Um, well, so we've, we've set the scene now where Pauline and Hadley have become friends. Oh, Hemingway's having an affair with Pauline. He's locked up in a contract a bigger publisher in the States wants to publish him. So he writes the torrents of spring, which is just a straight ahead lampoon of Sherwood Anderson that, (laughs) that they would have to reject. We're not publishing this. Hadley hated it. Uh, I think Pauline Pfeiffer thought it was brilliant. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So now we're that again, nothing changes. That's a serious problem. If the, if the, if the, if your main boo, if your boo doesn't like your writing, uh, there's, there's probably going to be another boo around the corner who does. Uh, Uh, yeah. If you have any talent at all, I'm just going to close my door. Hang on. Yeah. 
Well, so, but he was trying, he wasn't trying to write something good though, right? No, that, that's right. Yeah. 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 yeah no. Yeah, um, but he's Hemingway hmm. and he's insecure. And even when you're not doing good writing, if you're Hemingway, <laughs> the people around you should say, that's really good writing. And then you right. can, well, I'm not even trying to write. <laughs> yeah, I phone this in. Yeah. I, I may, I, I have to be, I, I have, I may be conflating their reaction to the sun also rises, but in any case, it's, yeah. uh, it's yeah, still yeah. amusing. Yeah, it's still amusing. 100%. Um, it's especially bad if it's the sun also rises. I think, oh it, man. I, yeah, I think it might've been that, which now that I'm looking at my notes again, it's like, oof, so your wife doesn't like your novel, but your mistress does. Oh, <laughs> that's a novel. I like that novel a lot. And Kevin, mm. I mean, I think I, well, I know the three of us believe uh, to our core that it's not about what is in vogue. It's not about the social, cultural, political points that mm. any work of art is making. It's about that. This is a transcendent work of art. And as Hemingway said, like, if it's any good, it will be just as true in a thousand years as it is today. Like, that is, for me, that is the thing, mm -hmm. right? Um, in terms of the way people see these things, it's interesting that The Sun Also Rises is the Hemingway that English professors uh, and literature professors teach, because it's also the one, it's also one that is undoubtedly anti-Semitic. It's got the N-word all through it, right? So it has all these things that you would think would put, um, you know, a lot of literature professors off of it, but it's the one they go to. Yeah, and it's not like it's more like A Farewell to Arms doesn't have really much of that nope. kind of Right. And it's None. not like Sun Also Rises is that much more accessible than a farewell nope. to arms. I agree. Yeah. And I would I like Sun Also Rises a lot as a mm. novel. I think it's very entertaining, but a farewell to arms is a better book, ultimately. Mm -hmm. It's a better work of art. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. I well, am oh, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, we're uh yeah, we're coming up to you know, a big moment here for Hemingway uh, and wife numero dos. Uh, ah. And she's already on the scene, right? So uh, let me see here. I'm just getting a, something open. And I hope you all are having a good time so far. I hope you're time. enjoying this core episode of Art of Darkness. Brad, where are you at? You feeling good? Yeah, I mean, I'm learning some things about Hemingway here. I, I, this is a, a figure I knew some, you know, a bit about, but this is all pretty interesting. I, you know, I didn't know anything really, I guess, about his childhood. Um, so yeah, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm learning a lot. I'm seeing the evolution of a, of a, of a figure here. It's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think by the end, hopefully, it lands the way that I want. I think you'll see what I'm constructing here with this core episode. And our good friend, friend of the pod, Aaron Gwynn. All right. So uh, they do Christmas in Austria. They took the women take turns playing with the baby. They skied. They drank. They played bridge. Ernest Man. takes Pauline on long walks in the snow. She went after him per Hadley. She wanted him. And she comes from money. Talking money, money. Capital M money uh, in a way that Hadley did not. Hadley had some money. Lowercase m money. Now we're like money, money. Mm. Um, 
the publisher naturally rejects uh, the Torrents of Spring, which is a, an hilarious title. Uh, and so he he brought The Sun Also Rises to Scribner's. Can we, goes can to, we mention a thing real quick? Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. I, I never mean to interrupt. Uh, no, not no. at all, man. So Hemingway said a, a famous thing that I've talked about in my classes over the years. He said, not every perfect title has five syllables, but a perfect title has five syllables. So, <laughs> so not, not every five syllable titled title is perfect, but when you find the, the perfect title, most of his titles, the torrents of spring, hmm. right. Hmm. Have, have five syllables. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Of the arms men without mm-hmm. women mm-hmm. for whom the bell tolls, right. It's yeah. over and over and over. Um, of course, the sun also the sun also right sun also rises as the odd man. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm but, happy to report the book I'm working on right now. Five syllable title. I'm telling dog. Yeah, bestseller, <laughs> instant bestseller. Mm-hmm. Now, so I, I again, I just want to make sure the timeline's right. I don't think he and Pauline are having a physical affair yet. But then he goes to New York, he meets with Max Perkins, he comes back, and instead of going to uh, Hadley, he goes to Pauline in Paris. He doesn't go to Hadley for three days. And this is like ultimate betrayal. Dude, Hadley supported him. Hadley paid his bills a lot of the time. They, a good woman. A good right, woman. A good woman. Gave him a child, gave him a son, a beautiful, healthy son. Uh, and here he just throws it all away. She was ride or die. She was ride or die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, he came to saw, see Pauline as a mistress. Now, these are North Americans in Paris. And right. you might be thinking, oh, I'm I'm a sophisticated Parisian and this is my mistress. Good luck. Right. Pauline wouldn't accept it. Right. She wouldn't Pauline's accept being not his a, mistress. She's not a side chick. Pauline right. is the main uh-huh. character in Pauline's story. And now, she was she was going to tap that ass. She was going to tap that earnest ass and Mm -hmm. and she was going to be the only one doing it. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) That's good. Yeah. So Hadley ends up confronting him. There's a huge scene. Mm. If I'd had any sense at all, I'd have let him go with Pauline and burn himself out. Hadley would later say. Wow. Wow. So she, uh, she made a proposal, you know, earnest take a hundred days apart from Pauline and afterwards if you still want I'll give you a divorce right Pauline's family was mortified Ernest was not a Catholic a child was involved mm-hmm. now we're talking about this is like I this is like this is what I'm saying right I, I assume somewhere in Hemingway's mind he's like well this is I'm in Paris and this is my mistress and I'm a, I've, I'm getting a novel published and and this is my wife and why can't we just why can't we just be do like the locals do right <laughs> and like and meanwhile you've got like a family in Arkansas that is just aghast amazing like <laughs> a Catholic family that's just a like, Catholic oh, Southern family no yes, less yes mm. yes indeed somebody's wow. loading a shotgun back in mm, yeah you know, mm-hmm. Fayetteville well, Arkansas <laughs> there you go and uh Vietnam um yeah Vietnam well so Ernest starts drinking heavily. He's depressed. Two months later, November 16th of 1926, Hadley writes him and says she wouldn't stand in the way. Hmm. So Hadley and Bumby went to the U.S. and Pauline joined him in Paris. And that's that's the end of that, more or less. 
Now, Scribner's publishes The Sun Also Rises, and it gets great reviews. The book sold well. Hemingway gave all the royalties to Hadley. Okay. Uh, okay. And, okay. Yeah. But you gotta, you gotta give Paul, credit where it's due. When fair it's due. enough. But he's also he's also essentially engaged now to a rich woman. So it's like it's a little bit of a could you do less uh <laughs> kind of a thing, right? Fair enough. Well, yeah. so yeah, and the sun also rises about is about a character named Jake Barnes. He's a war veteran with a mysterious wound that has made him impotent. So calling back to those early speculations about his twinning with his sister and his genitalia and and of course his own wound. Uh and there's some ambivalence like is it a physical wound? Is it a spiritual wound? Is it a combination of them both? Um he falls in love with a woman named Brit who dresses and lives like a man. She has short hair. Uh, and this is sort of all based on this is very uh, similar to the uh, Bolaño episode where we're talking about the savage detectives. Very similar where it's like Hemingway's time running around Europe with these various expats and he just writes them all in thinly veiled. Uh, he writes in his friend Harold Loeb as this character cone who's jewish and a bit stereotypical and not very flattering uh and harold Loeb like was wounded when he read it he was like mm. he could not believe it he was like he was my friend right like oh, he thought hemingway was his friend and it's like this so eh, bit of a tricky thing well in any case um the sun also rises epitomized the post-war expatriate generation it got good reviews many recognize it as his greatest work some do um hemingway the way i think about hemingway's work is that he none of the work and gwyn may disagree none of the work is as good on its own as um the great gatsby but the corpus of work is far superior to the to the body of work of Fitzgerald. That's my assessment of it. None of the novels, I would almost put A Movable Feast next to Gatsby, but it's not really a novel. Um that's how I personally think about the two the two men. Um I, I love yeah. I love Hemingway's work um a lot. He's been very important to me. I I personally believe his short stories are his best work. And and mm. I'm a fan of of a farewell to arms i like sun also rises a lot i like the first half of for whom the bell tolls i like um old man in the sea love a movable feast i think the short stories are where um i'm not sure i'm not sure america has produced a better short story writer than hemingway mm, very interesting i like that take very cool well so hemingway would later write to uh, Max Perkins that the point of the book was not so much about a generation being lost, but that the earth abideth forever. He believed the characters in The Sun Also Rises may have been battered, but were not lost. So Hadley grants him the divorce after accepting the offer of the proceeds from The Sun Also Rises, which is a very romantic gesture, uh, uh, especially after um, she lost that trunk. So it's not nothing. Um, they were divorced in January of 1927 and Hemingway married Pfeiffer in May. They married in Paris. There were two ceremonies, one at the mayor's office and one at the church. Pauline's family approved of this. I, I think it didn't hurt that the novel came out. I think there was a quality of like, well, okay. One, it wasn't the first wedding. Wasn't a church 
wedding. It wasn't they she, they weren't married in the Catholic Church, right? Mm-hmm. And now and and Ernest is quite successful. And uh, Pfeiffer comes from this family where I don't know if you all have ever been among the extremely well healed. Very often, like they'll pick an, up an artist into the family as like a prize. It's a thing. Yeah. That, it's a thing that it's, happens. It's indicative yeah. of you being. It's but it's almost like buying culture into your family a little bit. Right. Yeah. yeah. Not There's that it's that quality. cynical yeah. necessarily, but there is like, well, yeah. we're industrialist types, but we do have this mm, eccentric yes. artistic person that we tolerate. Yeah. Have you have you heard our uh, of our new son-in-law, Ernest Hemingway? He yeah. has a novel out. The Times spoke highly of it mm-hmm. here at the party mm-hmm. or at the club, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, in any case. Uh, but of course they're Catholic, so they're not motivated by any uh, cynical uh yeah, anyway. <laughs> And and this is what this is what Ernest would say about that. I've always been a Catholic since I received extreme unction in Italy, yeah. uh, and that is not how the one true faith works. Um, I will <laughs> I can say from experience. Um, so, all right. Now a little bit more about Pfeiffer, wife number two. She had moved in Paris, moved to Paris to work for Vogue magazine. Hmm. Uh, before they were married, he converted. They honeymooned in La Grau du Roy, where he contracted anthrax. And what? he planned his yeah, yeah, there's a little side note. And he planned his next collection of short stories, Men Without Women, which was published in October of 1927. What the hell is anthrax? And how does that happen? Like, what? I I've thought, never heard I, that. I thought yeah. he died from anthrax. I thought anthrax was one of those ones that, that just killed this you. This could this could be a Wikipedia editor just like laughing at us. Um, it, it's some sort of like a bacterial infection. Yeah, I get uh, it from certain cow related situations, I believe. Well, I mean, yeah, no, it's just treatment is with antibiotics. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Well, in any case, so now he's got anthrax. So that's cool. Okay, that's pretty metal. <laughs> uh, all right. So this is the thing about the Hemingway biography and like the Burns uh, documentary. It's like. Every single scene you could go down, like we're doing on this episode, you can go down yeah. three different paths and just mm-hmm. not stop. You could labor over this for two semesters. Mm-hmm. With in, in any case, mm-hmm. uh, so he he's working on Men Without Women that's published in October of 1927. That includes a boxing story, Fifty Grand. The editor in chief of Cosmopolitan, Ray Long, praised that story, calling it one of the best short stories that ever came to my hands. The best prize fight story I ever read and a remarkable piece of realism. By the end of the year, Pauline is pregnant and she wants to go back to America. John Dos Passos recommended Key West and they left Paris in March of 28. Hemingway suffered a severe injury. This is the the funniest head injury of all time. I'm calling it. We'll never have a funnier head injury on Art of Darkness. All right? Mm -hmm. He suffered the injury in their Paris bathroom when he pulled a skylight down on his head, thinking he was pulling a toilet chain. What? He thought, and this was like a gash. It, he had a prominent forehead scar. You think there might have been a little, a uh, little, a uh, little. Was he knocking a few back? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I'm pretty <laughs> sure. So you have to imagine uh, Hemingway, maybe a little tipsy, climbs yeah. upstairs, goes to yeah. use the toilet. Big American guy. Mm-hmm. He's maybe crouched over a little bit, and he pulls this thing, and the skylight cracks yeah. him on the head, yeah. and he like he had a scar. And 
he was reluctant to answer. He would yeah. people would ask him, "How did you get that Hemingway?" Well, yeah, because uh, he's got all these other like things, right? Like, mm, oh, I've gotten mm. blown up in war, and later on, yeah, plane yeah. crashes and all of that. But uh, what's that one? Oh, well, uh, yeah, that's mm, drunkenly yeah, man, pulled we pulled the wrong cord. We don't talk about that. <laughs> uh, my buddies who are veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm not a veteran. My buddy, I'm saying my buddies who were veterans. Um, <laughs> say that getting blown the fuck up is is the worst like they would rather have been shot and then treated or you know catch shrapnel but to to be in that like blast wave and to get shaken like that um they uh they say that's that's the worst huh you think it's like the pain it's the 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 just trauma like of the that trauma word gets thrown around but we're talking about a traumatic traumatic situation is yeah, it that's just like, what it is it's trauma yeah yeah, yeah. Well, the it's, chaos it, and the uncertainty and the, well the shock wave of the blast mm, right mm. i mean it, it can if it hits you right it can liquefy organs but right. what it does to your your Oof. mind right i mean that's you know if you get hit right it can jelly your brain and liquefy your brain of course if it you know if it stops short of that you get what Hemingway had is you first traumatic brain injury you start to get the um you know you've seen uh, MRIs and cross sections of some poor NFL player's brain who has committed suicide right yeah 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 it's rough Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, this is the second big head injury, and we're going to keep track of them the same way we're keeping track of the wives. Uh, And yeah, good. Okay, great. So now, uh, after his departure from Paris, he never lived in a big city again, like I said. And now we're getting to another section in my outline that I call the Gulf Stream that he was obsessed with. He was obsessed with the Caribbean, with the Keys, with the Florida Keys, that whole region is where he lived most of his adult life. Mm. So they leave Paris and they go to Kansas City where their son Patrick was born on the on June 28th of 1928. She had a difficult delivery and he fictionalized part of this as part of a farewell to arms. I believe it was a C-section. After Patrick's birth, Pauline and Hemingway traveled to Wyoming, Massachusetts, and New York. In the winter, he was in New York with Bumby, about to board a train to Florida, when he received a cable telling him that his father had killed himself. That year, his father had kind of spiraled into depression and paranoia and a sense of dread. And on that December 6th, Dr. Hemingway, Hemingway's father, he came home at noon, burned some papers, and told his wife he thought he'd lie down. He shot himself with his own father's Civil War revolver. Hemingway called his father a coward. He said he shot himself without necessity. He would eventually, Hemingway would eventually become so well to do, he paid his mother a stipend, uh, but he blamed her. I hated my mother as soon as I knew the score. My mother is an all-time, all-American bitch, which I said once before. Mm-hmm. Let's say it again for good measure. I just did, right? <laughs> just in case he didn't hear it the first time. Hemingway was devastated, having earlier written to his father telling him not to worry about financial difficulties. 
the letter arrived minutes after the suicide. He realized how Hadley must have felt after her own father's suicide in 1903, and he commented, I'll probably go the same way. Oof. He wrote to his friend and publisher, Charles Scribner, in 1949 about his mother. We're stepping out of time here, but I want to touch on this. I hate her guts and she hates mine. She forced my father to suicide. The fact that Hemingway held his mother responsible for his father's death may be interpreted as a potential source for his deep anger toward his mother. Anger so fierce it prompted his friend, John Dos Passos, to refer to the writer as the only man I ever knew who really hated his mother. His friend Charles Lanham also wrote, he always referred to his mother as that bitch. He must have told me a thousand times how much he hated her and in how many ways. Uh, however, this hatred may have had its origin in Hemingway's early childhood, long before his father's death. His deep and long-standing rage toward his mother may have shaped his conceptualization of his father's suicide so that his father's death became his mother's fault. And then this goes on about the um, the business of the, uh, the dresses and all the rest. Um, let's talk a little more about it because I think it's so interesting. Though the Victorian custom of the day did call for young boys to wear dresses, the clothes that Grace selected for Ernest were far more feminine than those worn by other male children of the era. He remained in this style of dress for several years beyond the span most boys spent in dresses, and his hair was cut in a fashion more common for female children. Grace even attempted to pass her son off as the twin of his older sister, despite the differing sizes which we mentioned. On the back of a photograph of young Ernest wearing a dress decorated in lace, his hair grown long under a hat covered in flowers, Grace wrote the words, Summer Girl. Grace also praised her son at times for his expression of masculine traits, such as his prowess at hunting and fishing. In any case, so you can sort of see like there's something like really going on here. Grace had a custom of referring to the femininely garbed Ernest as Dutch Dolly. And Ernest called his mother Fweetie, like Sweetie. Um, At the age of two, in response to his mother's application of the nickname, Ernest told her, I not a Dutch dolly. Bang! I shoot Fweetie. (laughs) (laughs) Woo! (laughs) Brutal. Um, So, I mean, so, Uh, okay. Devouring mother. That's the devouring mother. I mean, you know... Yes, and we covered that he would point the gun at his father's head. Um, Ernest was powerfully affected by his father's suicide, and in the aftermath, he confided to a friend of his, my life was more or less shot out from under me, and I was drinking much too much entirely through my own fault. It felt to him as though not only his father's life was shot away, but his own as well. And this is they call this the Hemingway Curse. There is a tradition. I don't, this, I should be sensitive about this. There's a lot of suicide in that family. I don't want to call it a tradition. Um, mm-hmm. My understanding is that his father's family unit, out of eight people, including the two parents, four of them committed suicide, both the parents and six children. At wow. least four killed themselves. Yikes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This and is the boy's grandfather. Yep. Yeah. That's what, that's yep. That's what I'm, that's yep. what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. 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 100%. Brutal. So, upon his return to Key West in December of 1928, Hemingway worked on the draft of a farewell to arms before leaving for France in January. He had finished it in August, but delayed the revision. 
Scribner's magazine was set to serialize it in May. But as late as April, Hemingway was still working on the ending. Uh, and this says 17 times. I heard 47 times. Anyway, he reworked it over a dozen times. Uh, the completed novel was published on the 27th of September that year. His biographer, James Mello, believes a farewell to arms established Hemingway's stature as a major American writer and displayed a level of complexity not apparent in The Sun Also Rises. Uh, the story was turned into a play by a war veteran, and that was used as the basis of the film starring Gary Cooper. Hemingway on film is very tricky. They haven't made great films of the Hemingway oeuvre for whatever reason. Like the the old man in the sea is like embarrassingly bad. Uh, I just the Hemingway ad the adaptations are just terrible. And of course, there's never been a great Hemingway biopic. Uh, Hemingway and Gellhorn is embarrassingly bad, uh, despite the talent involved and all the rest of it. It's worth watching if you're like a Hemingway ultra like I am, but it's just like shockingly bad. One day they will do the Hemingway biopic and they will get it right. Uh, but in any case, um, in Spain, in mid-1921, Hemingway researched his next work, Death in the Afternoon. He wanted to write a comprehensive treatise on bullfighting, explaining how it worked with a glossary and appendices. He believed bullfighting was of great tragic interest, being literally of life and death. Gwyn already read a little bit of A Farewell to Arms. Brad, you've read A Farewell to Arms, correct? Yeah, that's one I've actually beyond just having read it and interested in. I, I I've did some work in graduate school, but actually on Farewell to Arms and the 1957 film with Rock Hudson. Um, and I can't say I can material. recall it. How, how is that film? Is it? Any it's good? not amazing. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's a little. It's a little yeah. short of. It's slightly short of good. Rock Hudson is good in it because he's charismatic and handsome and 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 you know just fun, interesting to watch. But it's 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 not a great film, and it was um, sort of hacked to death uh, by production demands before it really met the screen. So what you end up with isn't really. It's not really Hemingway, and it's not really. Uh, uh, um, ben hacked the screenwriter. It's not really what he wanted either. It ended up being one of these things that was kind of like, well, I guess we made a movie. <laughs> Many such cases. Yeah, yeah, but some of these, some of Hemingway's uh, adaptations were written by Bill Faulkner. We should, we should that's not. Th that's right. Uh, one of the short stories, right, was turned yeah, into. I think I the have and have not. Maybe. Oh, that might be what it was. Yeah. 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 I'm not sure. I'm not it's sure. It's funny. We've that. talked about this on the show and I don't remember it. I don't either. Which one it was. <laughs> Go back and listen to the core episode that we did with Aaron Quinn on Faulkner. Yeah. And then that was find fun. Us. Uh, yeah. Was this fun. is fun too. Yeah. This is fun too. Fun. That was fun. That yeah. Was, both are fun. I just, I was thinking about like, yeah, yeah. Um, both those together as companion pieces, since these, these two guys were in competition with each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And Hemingway himself, in his own mind, was in competition with Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. And right. at one point, he used the boxing metaphor. I'm in the ring with the best of them, and I'm holding my own, except maybe Tolstoy. Maybe some of my stories kind mm -hmm. of stand toe-to-toe -to -toe mm -hmm. with Tolstoy. He, he loved Tolstoy. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So, good. 
And, and of course, uh, A Farewell to Arms is a fabulous novel of World War One, and oh, it's, an amalgamation. It's incredible. That's the part I, I, I got distracted talking about the movie. Farewell to Arms is a is like a must read. I think. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Here's a sentence from it or a para rather. If people bring so much courage to this world, the world has to kill them to break them. So of course it kills them. The world breaks everyone. And afterward, many are strong at the broken places, but those that will not break, it kills. It kills the very good and the very gentle and the very brave impartially. If you are none of these, you can be sure it will kill you too, but there will be no special hurry. All right. During the early 1930s, Hemingway spent his winters in Key West and summers in Wyoming, where he found the most beautiful country he had seen in the American West and hunted deer, elk, and grizzly bear. Mm -hmm. He was joined there by John Dos Passos, and in November of 1930, after bringing Dos Passos to to the train station in Billings, Montana, Hemingway broke his arm in a car accident. The surgeon tended the compound spiral fracture and bound the bone with kangaroo tendon. Hemingway was hospitalized for seven weeks with Pauline tending to him. The nerves in his writing hand took as long as a year to heal, during which time he suffered intense pain. Um, He and uh, Pauline traveled to Kansas City where their son Patrick was born. I think we already had that happen. Um, Difficult delivery. That comes out in um, A Farewell to Arms. So now we have them traveling. Uh, He finds this news that his father uh, has killed himself. And he does all this business where he's getting that that novel published, and that cements his stature as American, a major American writer. Uh, I mean, that book when that came out, that was a huge um, deal. Um, now he was at that time, and of course, he was also also in a, a rivalry with Fitzgerald, right? So he's kind of having a bit of a rivalry with with Fitz, and I want to pause. And talk about the time. Are Ooh. either are either of you familiar <laughs> yes. with the with the round of the famous round? Do you the do dick you care measuring to... contest? The literal uh, dick measuring contest? <laughs> no, tell me no. about that while I find the part <laughs> oh. about where yeah, Fitzgerald was the timekeeper for a round uh, that Hemingway was in of oh. boxing. Anyway, go on. Tell us about the dick oh. measuring. Well, yeah. yeah. So um Hemingway in a movable feast says that Fitzgerald showed up completely distraught and Hemingway had to like kind of like milk, you know, what is it, you know, and just kind of keep at him. And Fitzgerald said, just Zelda says I have a small dick, basically. (laughs) Right. And Hemingway says, Oh "Oh, well, women often say that when they want to upset their guy. I mean, it doesn't mean anything, you know, it's kind of a cruel thing to say, but I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's fine. And Fitzgerald's like, I don't know, you know, she's got me convinced that the dick is pretty small. And and Hemingway goes here, come on. So they go into the bathroom and Hemingway's like, show it to me. And so Fitzgerald pulls out his dick and Hemingway's like, that's a totally, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. You know, it's a totally nice dick. Like, you know, you shouldn't You shouldn't be upset about that. Dick. Got the it's, vein and everything. It's yeah, great. It's good. It's, good. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a, a good. Per, it's a perfectly good Minnesota <laughs> it's a, dick. It's a good. It's a good Minnesota you dick, know, man. Like, if I, I had it. a nickel every time I heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, he's he's like, you're fine. You're not like you're not small and in, mm-hmm. in the kind of average, and you're totally average. You're totally normal. Mm. 
you know, and like, you know, your lady's just fucking with you. Like, don't let her, mm. don't let yeah. her, don't let her do that to you. Yeah. Your textbook mm. BPD art ho <laughs> wife <laughs> is. <laughs> she might be messing with your head a little bit. She might be messing with your head. Amazing. Old, old Fitzy. Uh, fun. Good. I, I don't know I how I had never heard that story, but I love Hilarious. it. I love it. Yeah. Stop sharing our home videos. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So I'm going to read a little bit from thefightcity.com. Uh while Hemingway was indeed on the precipice of emerging as a literary heavyweight, Fitzgerald had already found enviable establishment success and recognition while he had written Gatsby. And mm -hmm. given that Hemingway's hypermasculinity was always grounded in fragility, uh, a threat to his supremacy in any regard could prove problematic. As such, the young author tried to assert himself by disrespecting and challenging Fitzgerald. Despite this, Scott, who had a perfectly fine dick, like so many others, largely accepted it. But such chemistry led to combustion. And this happened on one heated afternoon in 1929. Hemingway was beginning to sur surpass Fitzgerald as an artist. Not only did his first published novel, The Sun Also Rises, shake up the world of letters, his follow-up book, A Farewell to Arms, which is a book Fitzgerald never could have written, was and still is considered to be a masterpiece of war fiction. Now, Hemingway wasn't much of a boxer. He did have some legitimate in-ring experience. He had sparred with the likes of Morley Callahan, who was a Canadian writer, genuinely skilled fighter. They had sparred a number of times. On that day in 1929, Fitzgerald uh, reportedly acted as timekeeper, and he apparently let the round, the second round, with Callahan run a minute too long. <laughs> bad enough sure but in those bonus 60 seconds callahan put Ernest down right <laughs> for a man as competitive as hemingway the round's perceived length was enough to warrant outrage and suspicion loudly blaming fitzgerald for wanting to see him get thrashed by callahan hemingway escalated the situation this is all kind of apocryphal and mm. counter stories Hemingway is said to have later claimed that Fitzgerald had let the round extend for 10 minutes. Oh, come on. Which is ridiculous. No and Cal no Callahan wrote it, uh, wrote about it uh, as well. Fitzgerald never said a word about it. Uh, and okay, fine. So this is a thing that happened. The, the story is something between Fitzgerald was maybe having a little bit of a moment enjoying watching Hemingway mm -hmm. get the shit beat out of him. Maybe let it run long by about a minute. The way Fitz played it off on the day, according to one of the accounts, is ah, I, I got I was so taken by the the sport, I was so distracted by I I, I forgot to I, I forgot to look at the watch, and it was like a it went long like forty five seconds, sixty mm. seconds. But in the ring, an <laughs> extra six, sixty seconds when you're taking when shots you're getting your, yeah, when you're getting beat when you're getting yeah beat yeah down. yeah forty five so, seconds is a lot. That's a long time. I started time. fighting in smokers when I was twelve years old. There was a state champion um, two years in a row in Oklahoma. I boxed into my thirties, and um, to a non professional athlete. 60 seconds is an eternity. Yeah. That's a long yes. time. Like an extra 60 seconds is no joke. That's a mm -hmm. real, that's a real fuck up on Fitz's part. 
Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I've got some, I've got a little more about this. So this happened at the American club. Hmm. Uh, here's some description of it. Ernest was big and heavy over six feet. And I was only five foot eight. This is Callahan. Whatever skill I had in boxing had to do with avoiding getting hit. Admittedly, I had a most unorthodox style carrying my gloves far too low, counting on being fast with my hands. I soon found that I could hit him easily. Seeing that I was carrying my left far too low, he would half jab with his left, then try the right, but his timing was way off. He probably had a few pops too. Um, I would draw him closer by feinting a step backward, inviting him to move in with his long left, then step in and beat him to the punch with my own left. His right coming at me correctly was far too slow. I was catching him on the mouth or jaw. As the round progressed, I became at ease and sure of myself. I could see that while he may have thought about boxing, dreamed about boxing, consorted with old fighters and hung around gyms, I had actually done more actual boxing with men who could box a little and weren't just taking exercise or fooling around. On a later occasion, Callahan made Hemingway's mouth bleed. He loudly sucked in all the blood. He waited watching me, then took another punch on the mouth. Then as I went to slip in again, he stiffened. Suddenly he spat at me. He spat a mouthful of blood. He spat in my face. My gym shirt too was splattered with blood. I was so shocked I dropped my gloves. It is a terrible insult for a man to spit at another man. We stared at each Mm -hmm. other. That's what bullfighters do when they're wounded. It's a way of showing contempt, he said solemnly. These are different um these are different incidents, but here's the thing about Fitzgerald in this particular incident because uh um Fitzgerald was there Hemingway would would fight was fighting more recklessly. I think this is a good story. I like this. Yeah, yeah. Ernest, this is Callahan again. Ernest got careless. He came in too fast. His left down and he got smacked on the mouth. His lip began to bleed. Out of the corner of his eye, he may have seen the shocked expression on Scott's face. He came lunging in, swinging more recklessly. Ernest wiping the blood from his mouth with his glove and probably made careless with exasperation and embarrassment from having Scott there came leaping in at me. Stepping in, I beat him to the punch. The timing may have been just right. I caught him on the jaw, spinning him around, and he went down, sprawled out on his back. Shaking his head a little to clear it, he rested a moment on his back. As he rose slowly, I expected him to curse, then laugh. Oh, my God, said uh, Scott suddenly in a thick Minnesota accent. I can't. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, Oh my God. Uh, No, I'm sure he had a... Anyway, when I looked at him, alarmed, he was shaking his head helplessly. I let the round go four minutes, he said. Oh, my gosh. Ernest yelled and got up. All right, Scott, Ernest said savagely. If you want to see me getting the shit knocked out of me, just say so. Only don't say you made a mistake. And he stomped off to the shower room to wipe the blood from his mouth. So this has an echo with the Wallace Stevens incident. Real quick. Um, Tell us okay, about that. Okay, so when Hemingway lived in Key West, and once Wallace Stevens had begun to establish a reputation for himself, um, Hemingway dropped, I forget who it was, it might have been his daughter off at this party where Stevens was. And so Stevens got really liquored up and started um bad mathing Hemingway to Hemingway's daughter mm. right and yeah. so then started saying you know all your dad does is write about hunting and fishing and you know I'm a bigger guy than he is I could put him on his ass and this that and the other 
if it, if I may, if it was Hemingway's daughter, it would have to be Diggy, uh, later Gloria, because he only had, uh, I guess, biological boys. But yeah, or it could have been. In any case, Maybe keep it was going. a sister. I yeah, it's it, not, was, it was. Yeah, it was no, a this Hemingway is good. I, I like yeah. this because this is the thing about Hemingway. You know, you you carry these stories in your pocket, and yeah. who one person tells it one way. And so anyway, go on. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So, so Stevens is liquored up. Hemingway comes back to the party to pick up whomever this this younger uh, female um, family member, and Stevens is strutting around on the lawn, and Hemingway gets out. His daughter is not daughter, whoever is crying. And Hemingway's like, Wallace, like, what's going on? And Wallace takes a swing at it. Oh my gosh. And, and Hemingway, like, like just parries. And it's like, hey, what are you like, what are you doing? And Stevens takes another poke at Hemingway. Hemingway parries again. And Hemingway's like, I don't want to fight you. Like, what's wrong with you? Like, you're gonna, you're hammered. You're gonna get drunk. You know, you're drunk. And and then Hemingway, and then Stevens basically sucker punches him. And when he sucker punches Hemingway, he breaks his hand on Hemingway's jaw. Like, and then like that's pretty legendary. Starts crying, and then Hemingway has to sit with him, and um, and like help him get sobered up. It Hemingway's, was Hemingway's sister. Who was, was, it, was it? Was Hemingway's mm-hmm. sister, right? And so like, yes, that's right. And so Stevens is like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, word of this is going to get out. Like word of this is going to get out. I'll be done. You know, he's a, he works as vice president for Hartford indemnities and insurance executive. (laughs) Right. He was like, well, listen, I'm not going to tell anybody. There's no need for this to get out. I'm not going to tell anybody about this. So like, don't worry. You know, we all drink more. I mean, Hemingway's really having a moment, right? He's like, mm-hmm. we all drink more than is good for us. And, you know, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I don't want to damage your reputation. You know, like, mm-hmm. you'll get your hands seen to. Well, Hemingway takes a, or Hemingway, uh, uh, Stevens takes a train back to Hartford. And by the time he'd got to Hartford, he'd already told 15 or 20 people that he'd beat up <laughs> Ernest Hemingway. Oh. <laughs> he was the one who like, he's the reason we know this because, because he was really, he was really feeling himself. Oh that's why God, poets that's never hilarious. writers. I mean, it's just, it's just, yeah. that's fair just enough. Law. That's tremendous. <laughs> yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Incredible. I did not have that on my notes. No, I never heard that story. That's what a bang up job. I love it. And this is one of the reasons we love Hemingway is that the writing, the writing is tremendous. The myth is tremendous. The deeper you look, the more you get. Where else? What other podcast gives you what Art of Darkness gives you? None. None. Nobody. So please consider supporting the podcast. I'd say we're maybe at the halfway point here now. I hope everybody's hanging out, having a good time. You're enjoying the company of Brad Kelly up in Michigan, Aaron Gwynn down south, giving you anecdotes, mm-hmm. stories. We're weaving it all together. And I'm Kevin <laughs> Kautzman in Minnesota. We're not done yet. We're, mm-hmm. we're only in Key West. It's only it's only uh, the 1930s. Please mm-hmm. support the pod at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. You will not regret it. We make it no. worth it. All right. And after Stevens broke his hand on Hemingway's jaw, he looked over at the video camera that was right there and he said, <laughs> like 
and subscribe. <laughs> like and subscribe. Smash that like button. Smash that bell. Smash that like button. Smash for that real. Bell. And legitimately, uh, we are on YouTube now. Mm. Whether you're into <laughs> like whether you're into looking at our faces or not, get over to YouTube. We have a good time. We're getting those numbers up. We're so close to being able to like monetize that, whatever that means. Oh, yeah. Brad and I want to devote as much time as possible to Art of Darkness so we can bring you great guests like Aaron, so we can work on, I mean, my God, I, this is this is only half of my stack of books. This is not even the yeah. full, I've got so many, anyway, wow. in any case. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Books. Yep, a lot of books. All right, let's get back to Papa. I actually got to be careful here. I've got, there's too many of them. Uh, all right, <laughs> very good. fall over on you Pretty, and yeah, quite bury you alive. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> it looks like it looks like that scene in Ghostbusters. Yeah. <laughs> no human would stack books. Right? Something like that. I love, which I have to, I, it's getting to the point where I got to mention Ghostbusters regularly. On right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, here we go. Uh, so during the 1930s, Hemingway spent his winters in Key West and summers in Wyoming. And I, I think I already I think I already said this. So he he found he loved Wyoming. He found it he found it beautiful. Um, his third child, and the link is Gloria Hemingway. This is the transgender uh, child. Uh, was born a year later in November twelfth of nineteen thirty one in Kansas City as Gregory or I think is it Giggy or Gigi? Uh, Aaron, have you have you heard it either way? I think it's Giggy. Um, Hancock. Hemingway. I'll call him Gregory. Um, well, I'll call her Gloria. Uh, so I think that's the that's the approach we'll take. Um, Pauline's uncle bought the couple a house in Key West with a carriage house. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Pauline's uncle, all right, <laughs> bought the couple a house in Key West with a carriage house, the second floor of which was converted into a writing studio. Ah. Pauline's family <laughs> loved Ernest. Huh. They were very, very proud of him. This uncle paid for their lifestyle. So even though he gave away the, the initial royalties, Pauline probably has her own money. Uh, he, he has a, a fabulously successful second novel. We're talking about selling film rights now. Their lifestyle was even more elevated, right? Mm. This... Uncle's gonna buy us a house on the beach or near the mm -hmm. beach. Okay, I will make sure right. that Ernest has plenty of space to himself to write. Yeah. To write the next great, <laughs> great novel. Yeah, I mean, I remember I was on some forum for playwrights during graduate school, and I was going through it my own way. And uh, I remember reading through the forum, and one of the pieces of advice was marry well. Yeah. I wanted to stab a motherfucker. <laughs> they're not they're not wrong. They're not wrong, but I just it's just not how I'm trained to think. Mm -hmm. But in any case, mm -hmm. Hemingway married very well here. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh while in Key West, he frequented a local bar, Sloppy Joe's. He invited friends, including Waldo Pierce, Dos Passos, and Max Perkins to join him on fishing trips and on an all-male expedition to the dry tortugas. Okay, that sounds like a it sounds like the name of a club. We're taking an all male expedition to the Dry Tortugas, boys. Ah, <laughs> wink, wink, ah, wink, wink. Yeah. Meanwhile, he continued to travel to Europe and to Cuba. And although in 1933 he wrote of Key West, we have a fine house here, and kids are all well. Uh, 
some of the biographers sort of think that he was restless. Um, mm. In 1933, Hemingway and Pauline went on safari in Kenya. I believe the uncle paid for this too. Fun. Mm -hmm. The 10-week trip provided material for Green Hills of Africa, which is a travelogue, as well as for the short stories, The Snows of Kilimanjaro, which many people think is his greatest short story. It's, and it's excellent. Maybe right. the, yeah. yeah. Mm. <clears throat> and the short, Happy Life of Francis McCumber. That's my favorite short story of all time. Mm. What's it about? Why is it your favorite? It is about a couple who go on safari and the wife has uh, a sexual escapade with their British guide. And she does this because at the beginning of the story, right before the story starts, Francis McComber runs when he is charged by a lion. And so when she sees his physical cowardice, she's no longer, she's disgusted by him. She gets the ick. She gets they the call, ick. They call it the ick now. They, mm. She gets the ick. And then she she ends up going to the, the masculine Brit's tent that night. And then the next day when Macomber confronts her about it, she just kind of smiles through it. And you, she's basically like, if you were more of a man, this wouldn't happen. I mean, it's a total wow. like, I mean, you expect the like paywall to come down and to see the little Pornhub logo or something. Like it's a total <laughs> like cuckold fantasy kind of thing or so it's crazy, right? And so then that day, uh, McComber goes out alone with the guide. And the guide's just like, listen, man, like you're gonna have to learn to control your business. Like you, you know, if you were if you were throwing that dick around right, it wouldn't be a problem. And he, he kind of like takes Macomber to school. And and he's mm -hmm. like, listen, you know, this is this happens. Like, you don't have to be a coward. And the story is philosophical without being didactic and says a lot of very uncomfortable but I believe undeniably true things about relate, you know, romantic relationships between men and women and Macomber wins back a piece of his courage, maybe wins it for the first time. Hmm. And at the end of the story, he's charged by a wildebeest, but stands and, and just keeps shooting the bullets ricocheting off the, the wildebeest horn and then it's ambiguous, but the wife seeing the wildebeest charge her husband shoots and shoots Macomber in the head. Oh my God. Right. And it's ambiguous whether she does this in kind of retaliation for him recovering his courage. It's ambiguous whether she's protecting her husband and it ends with this really dark thing where like Wilson is basically like, like this guy you're supposed to love, like, you know, had a short, happy life. Like he came of age earlier today mm. and, and you blew his head off. And he's basically accusing her of murdering her husband. Right. And he's just like, admit 
what you did, admit that this isn't an accident, right? And it ends with her making this admission. And she's just basically going, stop, please stop, please stop. And, mm. and he's like, just say it. Just say that you did it. But that's the way you do in America. You kill your men. And she says, okay, fine. He goes, good. Now I'll stop. And that's the end of the story. Wow. And it, it is, it'll shake you up as a reader emotionally. It'll make you have uncomfortable conversations with your significant other if you both read it. And it is a master class of storytelling where the POV goes from Francis McComber to the wife to the guide, Robert Wilson, to at one point, the lion. Hmm. It goes into the POV of the lion. Very and cool. it, it's, it's Hemingway at his most technically brilliant and most uh, bravura. So complete. And, you know, and he wrote all this Snows of Kilimanjaro. Short Happy Life, and his most unappreciated work, The Green Hills of Africa, which seems mm -hmm. to be about safari, but is actually about fiction writing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Indeed. And, and we're going to read the great sentence that's in The Green Hills oh, of nice. Africa, which gives the lie to the idea that he always wrote short, tight sentences. He did not right. always do that. Uh, right. The couple visited Mombasa, Nairobi, Machakos in Kenya. Then they moved to the Tangan, nope, Tanganyika territory, where they hunted in the Serengeti around Lake Manyara and west and southeast of present-day Tarangir National Park. Their guide was the noted white hunter Philip Percival, who had guided Teddy Roosevelt on his hmm. 1909 safari. I want the guy that Teddy Roosevelt had. Yeah, All right, yeah, you can crazy. have that. Yeah, Uncle will pay for that. Mm -hmm. During these travels. Hemingway contracted amoebic dysentery that caused a prolapsed intestine. Ooh. I got the ick. I, I was and just going to say that. <laughs> and he was evacuated by plane to Nairobi. And, and Pauline said, Pauline said, no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Hard pass. And uh, he was evacuated by plane. And then this experience kind of shows up in the snows of Kilimanjaro, which many think is his finest short story. On his return to Key West in early 1934, he began work on Green Hills of Africa, which is a fine book. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I read it a number of years ago, but it's uh, uh, quite good. It, it got mixed reviews, and it also contains his longest sentence, which I shall read. All good? Yeah, do it. Hit it. Here we go. And this, this seconds what Gwyn brought up before. It's actually a book about writing. Mm -hmm. And he's describing the Gulf Stream. That's something I cannot yet define completely, but the feeling comes when you write well and truly of something and know impersonally you have written in that way. And those who are paid to read it and report on it do not like the subject. So they say it was all, it is all fake. Yet you know its value absolutely. Or when you do something which people do not consider a serious occupation, and yet you know truly that it is as important and has always been as important as all the things that are in fashion, or when on the sea you are alone with it, and know that this Gulf Stream you are living with, knowing, learning about, and loving, has moved as it moves since before man, and that it has gone by the shoreline of that long, beautiful, unhappy island since before Columbus sighted it, and that the things you find out about it, and those that have always lived in it are permanent and of value because that stream will flow as it has flowed after the Indians. 
after the Spaniards, after the British, after the Americans, and after all the Cubans and all the systems of government, the richness, the poverty, the martyrdom, the sacrifice, and the venality and the cruelty are all gone as the high-piled scow of garbage, bright-colored, white-flecked, ill-smelling, now tilted on its side, spills off its load into the blue water, turning it a pale green to a depth of four or five fathoms as the load spreads across the surface, the sinkable part going down and the flotsam of palm fronds, corks, bottles, and used electric light globes seasoned with an occasional condom or a deep floating corset, the torn leaves of a student's exercise book, a well-inflated dog, the occasional rat, the no longer distinguished cat, all this well shepherded by the boats of the garbage pickers who pluck their prizes with long poles, as interested, as intelligent, and as accurate as historians. They have the viewpoint. The stream, with no visible flow, takes five loads of this a day when things are going well in La Habana. And in 10 minutes all along the coast, it is as clear and blue and unimpressed as it was ever before the tug hauled out the scow and the palm fronds of our victories, the worn light bulbs of our discoveries and the empty condoms of our great loves float with no significance against one single lasting thing, the stream. <laughs> That's one sentence. Wow. Yeah. Wow. All right. That's amazing. Uh, it really is. There's a lot there. We could spend yeah. five minutes unpacking that. Instead, <laughs> we're going to move really quickly in the interest of time onto the Pilar. Mm. It's a boat. Hemingway <laughs> bought a boat in 1934. And this is where I get out the biography that Gwyn uh, swears by. Hemingway's boat. Aptly called Hemingway's boat. <laughs> uh, and so I'm going to read a description of the pil Pilar. Let me find it here. Oh, the Pilar has its own Wikipedia page. Oh, yeah, dude. Yo, the Wikipedia rabbit hole for Hemingway is ridiculous. Yeah. You want to read huh. you want to read the first read the first like pair or two of the <clears throat> Pilar uh, Wikipedia. Sure. <clears throat> Ernest Hemingway owned a 38-foot fishing boat named Pilar. It was acquired in April 1934 from Wheeler Shipbuilding in Brooklyn, New York for $7,495. Pilar was a nickname for Hemingway's second wife, Pauline, and also the name of the woman uh, leader of the partisan band in his 1940 novel of the Spanish Civil War, For Whom the Bell Tolls. Uh, Hemingway regularly fished off the boat in the waters of Key West, uh, Marquesas, uh, and the Gulf Stream off the Cuban coast. He made three trips with the boat to uh, the Bimini Islands, wherein his fishing, drinking, and fighting exploits drew much attention and remained part of the island's history. Yeah. yeah. All right, I'm just going to read a few paras from uh, Hemingway's mm -hmm. boat. Beauty. She shines on the back of his eyeball every time he stands up from his writing desk to stretch his aching muscles. It's mid-July 1934, and he's had his boat for two months. A few days from now, Ernest Hemingway will take Pilar across to Cuba for the remainder of the summer and fall's marlin season. He intends to be in place for the first quarter of the new moon, by which time the striped marlin will have commenced their yearly run, down from Bimini. No one knows why the big fish always appear off Bimini, off the western edge of the British-held Bahamas, a couple of months before they decide to run in Cuba, but they do. As Captain Harry put it in that recently published story, One Trip Across, 
payment for which has helped pay for Pilar. They aren't here until they come. But when they come, there's plenty of them. And they've always come. If they don't know, uh, if they don't come now, they're never coming. The moon is right. There's a good stream and we're going to get a good breeze. The small ones thin out and stop before the big ones come. Sweet Jesus, he thought. If this hasn't been a queer year in the stream for Marlin, haven't the big boys taken their own time at getting down? Something like his uh, work in progress, at least some days. Every part of his fishing machine still has a kind of factory gleam. He's been keeping her at the sleepy Key West Navy Yard. Captain Jackson, the commanding officer, who's been out on the boat as a guest on Sunday or on a Sunday or two, is opening the facility to private boats since nothing much is going on there anyway. This means she's at anchor not even 10 minutes by foot from the uh, his front gate, 10 minutes from the second floor room behind the main house where pages of his new and experimental Africa book are filling up almost daily. The work, which hasn't yet found its true title, he'll have to go through the usual list making, is going across with him, of course. The title for now is The Highlands of Africa. Like the sentences that made him famous, the beauty of his boat is of the spare, clean, and serviceable kind. She's been written, you could say, in the deceptively plain American idiom. She's long, low-slung, sexy, a black hull, a green and canvas cladding topside, and butternut-colored decks and side panels. Her heat-reflecting green, which is what you'd mainly see if you were looking at it from the air, is not quite turquoise, not quite jade, not quite emerald, but something blending all three. As for her mahogany bright work, on the decks and cabin sides and transom well, it's almost as if you're gazing at the inside of a lit jack-o'-lantern. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. yeah, it's a beautiful book. I mean... I and, love and, that book. Mm, mm, I yeah, love that so well, book. So well written. and mm. There's yeah. a moment when he is... It has this really weird kind of meta thing because Hendrickson doesn't shy from kind of putting himself in the story. Talks about like the research trips... And there's a scene where he's having drinks with, I believe, one of Hemingway's sons. And they're talking about this sort of um, biography that came out in the 90s, 80s or 90s. That's a complete like hit job of Hemingway and and uh, Hendrickson. You know, they're talking, they're talking this, talking that. Hendrickson says the author's name and says, you know, like, fuck Joe Wright. And it's like in the book, right? It's like him just talking shit about this other biographer. <laughs> and I was like, this is what literary criticism should be. It should tell you <laughs> something useful about the text. It should show readers how clever you are and you should be able to make fun of other critics. That's what great literary criticism does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All great right. podcasting too. That's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We already have a, a kind of quiet rivalry with New Right. If you're yeah. paying attention, hey. which is which yeah. is awkward because Dan Baltic is also our lawyer. So right. I don't know <laughs> how I am joking. We love the new right podcast. Yes, right. We love all our all our but, podcast but some, party circuit friends. Sometimes you need a productive rivalry, is mm, the, is the yeah. thing, right? Yeah, you need your your Lenin to your uh McCartney. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or your Lenin to your Trotsky sometimes. Mm -hmm. You need <laughs> B. Like I. Lennon. Um, well, and so I'm I'm in Hemingway's boat still, and there's a little bit of an update around F. Scott Fitzgerald at this point. Uh, and what of poor Scott, as Hemingway was ever wont to put him down, 
once he'd superseded him. On May 28th of 34, two days after the Waldo Pierce letter, Hemingway answered Fitzgerald's almost pathetic plea of three weeks before regarding Hemingway's opinion of tender is the night. This is the letter where he reminds Fitzgerald that he'd been too damned stinko for any real conversation when they'd seen each other in New York on the weekend that he'd purchased Pilar. So they bought Pilar, I think, in New York and Brooklyn and then and then sailed it down. Um, That's correct. And the hole was laid up in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And here's what uh, Hemingway wrote, Fitzgerald. God damn it, you took liberties with people's pasts and futures that produced not people but damned marvelously faked case histories. You who can write better than anybody can, who are so lousy with talent that you have ha- have to the hell with it. Forget your personal tragedy. We are all bitched from the start, and you especially have to hurt like hell before you can write seriously. But when you get the damned hurt, use it. Don't cheat with it. Be as faithful to it as a scientist. You see, Bo, I don't know he called him Bo, you're not a tragic character. Neither am I. All we are is writers, and what we should do is write. Anyway, I'm damn fond of you, and I'd like to have a chance to talk sometimes. We have a fine boat. I'm going good on a very long story. Hard one to write. Always your friend, Ernest. He postscripts, what about the sun also and the movies? Any chance? <laughs> so they, they kept the correspondence. Uh, I just thought that was a nice little thing to pepper in. Mm-hmm. Oh, hang on my video. Um, oh, there you are. I'm still here. No worries. <laughs> I was just clicking around. Okay, so now he's on his boat. It's in 1935 that he first arrives in Bimini, and he would spend a lot of time there. Uh, During this period, he also worked on To Have and Have Not, which was his, as the title suggests, kind of foray into the almost kind of mandated leftism that was happening. There Mm -hmm. was a lot of pressure on a writer of Hemingway's stature to answer the question of socialism and Mm -hmm. communism at this time. Obviously, the the shine had not come off the Soviet Union quite at this point. There was no Gulag Archipelago. People didn't really know what was going on, per se, uh, or what would eventually happen. Uh, and writers had to answer to this. The New York literary establishment was firmly left-wing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Hemingway would get a lot of pressure from the left. And so he wrote to have and have not. Um, it was published in 1937. It was the only novel he wrote in the 30s and oh, it's not yeah. i didn't think of there's that big of a gap mm. huh in his mm. putting a novel out yeah interesting yeah i mean and it was heavily influenced by marxist ideology he was exposed to in support of the republican faction of the spanish civil war we're going to come to that business uh here soon it's about uh, an ordinary working man of the depression era forced by dire economic forces into the black market activity of running contraband between cuba and florida hmm. uh my understanding is that the the reception was kind of um it wasn't great yeah i feel uh, like i haven't read the entire hemingway shelf but i feel like i'm familiar with most of it except for that book for some reason yeah it's kind of one that just gets kind of mm, a little bit forgotten um it's very light it's very light yeah Mm, mm -hmm. yeah uh and a terrible title uh the the sport fishing as i said before yeah yeah it's still a terrible (laughs) title in my opinion (laughs) Uh, the sport fishing was not a LARP. And this is from liveoutdoors.com. 
Once he caught a marlin that was estimated to have been over a thousand pounds before sharks reached it. So that, and that of course comes back in the old man in the sea. Mm-hmm. Uh, he learned the hard way that by shooting the sharks, he released blood into the water and attracted more sharks. So they took most of the Marlin's body. Uh, the shark problems didn't just extend to tuna. On one occasion, while attempting to boat a shark, he shot himself in the leg. He accidentally shot himself while trying to get a shark onto the deck. You know what he was shooting them with, right? Machine guns, right? A Thompson submachine gun, <laughs> which you could buy from a sporting goods store before the NFA. Of 1934, uh, you could go down to like the the hardware store and buy a full auto Thompson and with stick mags or drum mags, dealer's choice. We used to be a country. We used a to be proper, a proper country. A proper country. <laughs> we used to be a proper country. Now, if you want to give me uh, leftism and a Thompson machine gun, I may be more open-minded about your... Uh, There could be a trade. A trade could be made. (laughs) There's a a fascinating letter that Hemingway writes to his, he's trading letters with his Russian translator in the thirties. And he says, you know, like the things that you've got going over there, as I understand them, don't make no sense to me. However, what I don't like is government period, whether it's, you know, communist government or or Republican government. And he says, as a writer, my hand will always be against the government and the government's hand against mine. That's the way it works. Hmm. That's what Hemingway wrote? That's what Hemingway wrote to his Russian translator. Nice. Okay, what year do you know? No, but I can find the letter as we're... Okay, yeah, no, I mean, if you could find the year, because he had a very uh, rather conspicuous turn uh, where he sided at least publicly with the left. And of course, during the Spanish Civil War, he was firmly on the um, the side of the leftists, mm-hmm. of the Republicans. Uh, we'll get into it. So, yeah, other achievements in um, uh, the sport fishing. He won, in 1935, he won every tournament. Key West, Havana, Bimini. Uh, <laughs> in... 1938 he caught seven marlins in one day and that was the world record at the time since 1950 the hemingway fishing tournament in cuba has been held annually it was held over four days or it's held over four days and and only allows the contestants to use 50 pound fishing line they fish for marlin tuna wahoo and other fish hemingway himself won the first three years (laughs) so not much of a boxer definitely a serious fisherman wow yeah yeah i'm i like that it was in 1935 that he kind of woke up to leftism and took a stand he was getting like i said terrible pressure for being a face uh face (laughs) a fence sitter Mm. (laughs) (laughs) calling dr Foy. we're getting into hour four here so he was getting terrible pressure for being a fence sitter um he more or less said, like Gwyn from that letter was, you know, he said, like, I, I don't give a damn about politics, right? Mm-hmm. I'm kind of above and outside of right. it. Eh, mm-hmm. Really? Then a terrible hurricane hit Florida. And I'm reading from a website called History News Network. But this is where he took he took Roosevelt's government to task because 
between 400 and 600 people died in this storm. 265 of them were World War veterans. Mm. At the height of the Great Depression, the vets had been sent to build a road on the low-lying islands of, of the Keys as a part of the Public Works for Veterans program. While working, they were housed in inadequate tent-like structures provided by the Roosevelt administration. They were not evacuated when there was a hurricane warning. And uh, Hemingway wrote, he was contacted by the editors of New Masses, which I assume is like a literally a communist paper, New Masses, like yeah. to write an account of the storm from an insider's uh, perspective. He wrote an article called Who Murdered the Vets? A firsthand report on the Florida hurricane, which was published published in September of 1935, just weeks after the event. Um, although billed as a personal account, in reality, it was an outraged demand for accountability for the needless death of the veterans. And he, he led with, whom did they annoy and to whom was their possible presences a political danger, Hemingway asked, who sent them down to the Florida Keys and left them there in hurricane months? Mm. Um, the writer of this article lives a long way from Washington and would not know the answers to those questions. But he does know that wealthy people, yachtsmen, fishermen, such as President Hoover and Presidents Roosevelt, do not come to the Florida Keys in hurricane months. There is a known danger to property. But veterans, especially the bonus marching variety of veterans, are not property. They are only human beings, unsuccessful human beings, and all they have to lose is their lives. They are doing coolie labor for a top wage of $45 a month, and they have been put down on the Florida Keys where they can't make trouble. It is hurricane months, uh, sure, but if anything comes up, you can always evacuate them, can't you? And it goes on. He he actually went, and this is his description of what they found. The railroad embankment was gone, and the men who had cowered behind it, and finally, when the water came, clung to the rails, were all gone with it. You can find them face down and face up in the mangroves. The biggest bunch of the dead were in the tangled, always green, but now brown mangroves behind the tanks, cars, and the water towers. They hung on there in shelter until the wind and the rising water carried them away. He got, he was pissed and uh, he accused them of manslaughter. And that was a bit of a coming out moment for him. Uh, And now we're going to get into the Spanish Civil War. All right. So, and wife number three, Martha (laughs) Gellhorn. Come on down. Next, come on down. You're the next contestant on Hemingway's Wife. And Martha, Martha of the four is the standout. She uh, was half Jewish. Uh, the the surname Gellhorn, I think, is a Jewish name. She herself was a a journalist and a novelist. She in college had had a picture of Hemingway uh, mm-hmm. in her dorm room, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this is another one of those moments where it's like you hear one thing, you hear another thing. Some people say she met him by chance at uh, Sloppy Joe's in Key West. Others say she kind of went looking for him he wasn't hard to find so let's get into it i just uh, found the letter i just oh, found okay. the document what year does it say this what year is 1939 to his okay. translator ivan kashkin okay 
Hmm. Well, that okay. Interesting that he would say that. Do you want to read it or? Yeah, yeah, you... I want to read okay. part of it. All right, I'm gonna. Well, you do. I'm gonna top off my water. I am listening. Top off that hmm. water. So he's describing a lot about what he saw in Spain uh, during the Spanish Civil War. And then he comes out of that and says, well, this is enough nonsense. I'd like to see you, and I would like to come to the USSR. But what I have to do now is write. As long as there is a war, you always think perhaps you will be killed, so you have nothing to worry about. But now I am not killed, so I have to work. And as you have no doubt discovered, living is much more difficult and complicated than dying. And it is just as hard as ever to write. I would be glad to write for nothing, but if no one paid you, you would starve. I could make much money by going to Hollywood or by writing shit. But I am going to keep writing as well as I can and as truly as I can until I die. And I hope I never die have been working over in Cuba where I could get away from letters, telegrams, appeals, etc., and really work. Been doing good. So long and good luck. I appreciate your care and integrity in the translations very much. Give my best regards to all the comrades who work on the stuff. Comrade is a word I know quite a lot more about than when I first wrote you. But you know something funny? The only thing you have to do entirely by yourself and that no one alive can help you with no matter how much they want to, except by leaving you alone, is to write. Mm. You, should, you should try it sometime. <laughs> nice. Very cool. All right. <clears throat> and that's a great introduction to a major part of Hemingway's life, the Spanish Civil War, which would coincide with his uh, third marriage. Uh, in 37, he left for Spain to cover the Spanish Civil War for the North American Newspaper Alliance. This is the one where he, I can't remember the exact figures, but he was given an extraordinary uh, extraordinary amount of money to, to write back. Right. Like crazy money. Um, uh, despite, he went despite Pauline's reluctance to have him working in a war zone. There were some other things going on, too. Uh, he and uh, Das Passos both signed on to work with Dutch filmmaker Joris Evans as screenwriters for the Spanish Earth. Have you ever seen the Spanish Earth? I have. It's a well, piece this of is propaganda. The... It's a propaganda film. Hundred uh, percent. And it was was it narrated by Orson Welles? Uh, it, but it was it, it was re-recorded by Hemingway. That's right. Uh, it was re-recorded yeah. by Hemingway's with his narration and shown to FDR at the White mm -hmm. House. Right, because Gellhorn was friends with um, uh, with Eleanor Roosevelt. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So, and we're gonna get to it. Okay. And you know, if you want to hear uh, Hemingway's voice and a little bit of commie propaganda, uh, <laughs> you can go find, uh, you know, if you need a palate cleanse after after this episode, uh, go listen to The Spanish Earth. You can hear his voice. It's interesting. Um, um, by the way. Yeah. Um, mm. Yes. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. not please, at all. Please, please, please. Um, so in any case, Dos Passos left the project after his friend, Jose Robles, uh, who was both his friend and his translator, was executed 
And that causes a rift between the two writers. Uh, you can about imagine, uh, you know, if your friend is executed and you don't share the same opinions about the execution, uh, <laughs> you know, that's it's going to cause a bit of uh, oh yeah, a, a bit of contention. Yeah, it's in, in early 1937. He he was on, this this fellow Robles was on the side of the Republicans. Um, the the American left wing journalist Josephine Herbst. Then on a visit to the Civil War front, found out that he had been arrested and shot as an alleged spy for Francoists for the right and conveyed this information to Hemingway and Dos Passos, who were in Madrid. The exact circumstances of his death were never clarified, and the charge of his having spied for the Nationalists was doubted. Rather, it was suggested that he was among many other left-wingers, for example, Andres Nin, not Anais Nin, Andres Nin, <laughs> killed by Soviet NKVD agents led by Alexander Orlov for their independent stance at the time. So <laughs> it's all muddy. You don't know who's coming attractions, people. If we don't get things right, like we got to <laughs> come together because it can get real gnarly. People start disappearing at night. You mm. don't know why. Mm-hmm. He, he he made a podcast with that Aaron Gwynn character. Yeah. <laughs> and and by the way, I found yeah. the passage from the letter I was trying to reference oh, good. earlier. Same yeah. translator, Ivan uh, Koshkin. This is 19th August, 1935, four years before the other letter. And this speaks to exactly what you're saying, Kevin. Hemingway, everyone tries to frighten you now by saying or writing that if one does not become a communist, or have a Marxist viewpoint, one will have no friends and be left alone. Sound familiar? They <laughs> seem Nothing to changes. Think, <laughs> they seem to think that to be alone is something dreadful, or that to not have friends is to be feared. I would rather have one honest enemy than most of the friends I've had. I cannot be a communist now because I believe in one thing, liberty. First, I would look after myself and do my work. Then I would care for my family. Then I would help my neighbor. But the state I care nothing for. All the state has ever meant to me is unjust taxation. I have never asked anything from it. Maybe you guys have a better state, but I would have to see it to believe it. And I would not know then because I do not speak Russian. I believe in the absolute minimum of government. And whatever time I had been born, I would have taken care of myself if I were not killed. A writer knows no allegiance to any government. If he's a good writer, he will never like the government he lives under. His hand should be against it, and its hand will always be against him. The minute anyone knows any bureaucracy well enough, he will hate it because the minute it passes a certain size, it must be unjust. Based and based. impilled. Yeah. Based department. <laughs> yeah, I just that, got yeah. a I just got a Google alert that they took Hemingway out of the rolled doll. So, <laughs> now. No, yeah. no, no. This is before his conversion and before he wrote For Whom the Bell Tolls, the great. But he when he right. wrote uh he would get trouble uh from the left for for whom the bell tolls because it, is, it shows some sympathy That's for right. the fascists. So and it shows it never, that the left engages in engaged in war crimes and you know Hemingway had a much darker view 
of all that business. Anyway, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, that very good. Great. Yeah, I very good. But that, that I love was that before, letter so much. Yes, so do I. Yes. And that was before his sort of public conversion. That's right. But okay. I don't doubt that kind of lurking under the surface, he probably retained a kind of, uh, uh, you, you don't, if you come to that conclusion as an adult person, right. you don't just suddenly, uh, yeah, that never leaves you. That's right. Is what I would say. Okay. All right. So let's get on with this. Um, Hemingway, who joined it, uh, was joined in Spain by journalist and writer Martha Gellhorn, whom he had met in Key West a year earlier. He was joined in Spain. Like Hadley, uh, Gellhorn was a St. Louis native, St. Louis native. And like Pauline, she had worked for Vogue in Paris. Of Martha, one of the biographers explains, she never catered to him the way the other women did. Martha is the odd bird out of the four wives. In July of much more his equal. Uh, in July of 1937, he attended the Second International Writers Congress, the purpose of which was to discuss the attitude of intellectuals to the war held in Valencia, Barcelona, and Madrid. Um, and other writers attended it, including Pablo Neruda. Late 1937, well in Madrid with Gellhorn, Hemingway wrote his only play, The Fifth Column, as the city was being bombarded by Francoist forces. He returns to Key West. Uh, he returned to Key West for a uh, few months, then came back to Spain twice in 1938, uh, where he was present at the Battle of the Ebro, the last Republican stand. And he was among the British and American journalists who were some of the last to leave the battle as they crossed the river. Mm -hmm. Now, if you want to see a little more about this, and I, I don't know how much of it is um, accurate or how much of it is uh, a little bit of uh, narrative uh, license, the Gellhorn, Hemingway and Gellhorn covers all of this. The implication is, and what I what I read and and what I learned in these in these documentaries I watched is that they kind of uh, they kind of had a like a working affair while they were abroad, Gellhorn and um, Hemingway. And there is a sweet kind of irony to this because Gellhorn does to Pauline what Pauline did to Hadley. Mm -hmm. And there's an awareness of this and a bit of a kind of a bitterness about it on all sides. Uh, so, yeah, so he's over in, in Spain, shoulder to shoulder with Gellhorn. And she's now, they're now sleeping together. Um all right, let's keep going. This is and and we're coming up to the point where he and Gellhorn get together and they they set up life in Cuba. Partly because the impression I get is that like and it even came out in one of those letters Gwyn in Key West, he couldn't get privacy. Like he had to build a a wall around his place in Key West. Like his fame was starting to reach a point where it's like people were making pilgrimages down to Key West. There's even a book I have. We're not going to go down this rabbit hole, but there's this character, Arnold Samuelson, who wrote a book called With Hemingway. Mm -hmm. And it's just about him like knocking on Hemingway's door as a young writer. Um, I even have an anecdote. I don't even know where this comes. Um, do I have this in here? Well, the, I I can't remember where it happened, but uh, there's a story about I think uh yeah here here it is, 1945. So this is a little out of out of order. Oh, you know what? I'm gonna come back to it in the interest. But yeah, you know, young like writers would come and knock on Hemingway's door, 
you know, I mean, it just so, you know, you could, it would make sense that like, I'm going to take my boat, what, what is it, 30 miles across? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. like, they don't speak English. I'm not, I'm famous, but I'm not like this famous and yeah. I'm going to get away. Um, so he and, he and, uh, Gellhorn, uh, kind of, kind of set up shop in, in Cuba, but he's still with Pauline at this point. So we got to get through another one of these messy, uh, divorces. So let me get to it here. I'm looking through my notes. Uh, oh my God, there's so much. We're, we're, we're doing great boys. We're doing it. Okay. Good. Good. Yeah. Ah, so in early 1939, Hemingway crossed to Cuba and he went to live in a hotel the, uh, in Havana. And this was the separation phase of a slow and painful split from Pauline, which began when Hemingway met Gellhorn. Gellhorn joined him in Cuba and they rented the Finca Vigia, the lookout farm, the La Finca. And it was a 15 acre property, 15 miles from Havana. And I think she rented it and then he bought it. Um, Mm. Pauline and the children left Hemingway that summer after the family was reunited during a visit to Wyoming, when the divorce from Pauline was finalized, he and Gellhorn were married on November 20th, 1940 in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And I think it was like 17 days later. That might've been the first divorce. And it, it didn't, there was very little, uh, you know, time in between. He yeah. knew what he was going to see. Here, here again, Hemingway has lined up his next uh, kind of the, the person who's going to sleep with him at night. Right. Because yeah. he can't sleep alone at night. He, he's still, you know, he's drinking himself to sleep. If, you'll find out when he like, when the, it gets to a point where there's not a woman around, like the only way he, he can sleep is drinking himself to sleep. Oh. Um, and now we've got a case where Hemingway himself ha- is independently wealthy, doesn't right. need Pfeiffer's money. And it's like, well, now I'm going to get a woman who's my equal, who is a novelist herself, who mm-hmm. knows the president. Mm-hmm. Right, who can literally writes letters to the first lady? Yeah. So now Hemingway's, and he's just finding what he wants. Younger, I believe. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, so the whole thing, power, any, power, power couple, a little bit, yeah, but yeah. also like probably, uh, probably Hemingway here is just looking a little bit for like the next thing, mm-hmm. uh, and not probably not thinking that clearly about it do you know yeah she was nine nine years younger than him that's uh, significant but not you know age gap yeah yeah problem. right yeah. oh we're getting to the age gap Ew. oh it's coming it's coming <laughs> uh in any case you know and and gellhorn by the way uh is worth her own episode and we may one day do an episode for her. Uh, it's 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 degrading to any of these women to sort of only go, oh, it's a Hemingway wife. Like, we're right. being a little bit tongue-in-cheek with that. Sure. Uh, you know, these women all had their own uh, lives. They all had their own, you know, careers and all the, all the rest of it, particularly uh, particularly mm-hmm. Gellhorn. And uh, Gellhorn would be the one who kind of would get out first. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So a uh, very interesting, interesting story. Okay. All right. So uh, his drink of choice at La Floridita in Havana was called, they called it the Papa Doble. You ever heard of or had a Papa Doble, Brad? I haven't. That sounds like it's just a double shot of rum. It is. Yeah, right. (laughs) It's here's the uh, ingredients for a Hemingway daiquiri. And uh, let's see here. This is one recipe. Two Mm. ounces of white rum, 
Havana oh. Club if you have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, three quarter of an ounce of, of uh, fresh grapefruit juice, half mm-hmm. an ounce of fresh lime juice, quarter ounce of maraschino liqueur, quarter ounce of simple syrup, garnish with a grapefruit twist. Okay. Shake the ingredients except the garnish. Okay. And there you go. Now you got uh, the Hemingway daiquiri, Papa Doble. Uh, I mean, he would, he spent a lot of time at La Floridita. I believe you can go there and I think they have like a bronze statue of him at the end of the bar. Nice. I'm not mistaken. <laughs> I mean, it's, I'm sure it's a little bit of a tourist trap of guys like us yeah. walk in and they just go, yeah. okay. Yeah. Uh, but there you go. <laughs> All right. So th- this spot that they found, the Finca, which is where the boat is still like the boat is a museum boat now. There, oh, really? And the house at- is a museum now. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, it was close enough to Havana for like pleasure, but far enough for privacy. Mm-hmm. And so he's in Cuba. He's with Gellhorn. They're married. He moves his primary summer residence to Ketchum, Idaho, mm-hmm. just outside the newly built resort of Sun Valley. And now his winter residence is in Cuba. So he's living large. Dude, yeah. If you're summering in Sun Valley and uh, yeah, yeah. I'm very, very familiar with the Sun Valley area. And that is a place to be. Uh, mm. More so now even than then, but still. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he had been disgusted when a Parisian friend allowed his cats to eat from the table, table, but he became enamored of cats in Cuba and kept dozens of them on the property. And the descendants of those cats live at the Key West home rather famously. And I think some of them have hmm. six six fingers on their paws or six oh, toes, wild. whatever. Okay. I don't think cats have fingers, but, you know, six toes <laughs> on their paws. Yeah. Hemingway's cat fingers. Huh. Uh, <laughs> um, now, Gellhorn was instrumental in the writing of what some call his most famous novel, For Whom the Bell Tolls. Mm. That began in March of 1939, and he concluded that in July of 1940. It was published in October of 1940. Gwyn, do you have something to say about For Whom the Bell Tolls? I like it. (laughs) (laughs) It's a tremendous novel. It really is. I think Mm. the first 200 pages are very strong. There is some meandering for just for me in the middle, and then it has one of the best endings of American literature. And it's all about mm. these guerrilla fighters for the left who are trying to blow up a bridge. And then this yep. this man sacrifices himself for this kind of almost like futile mission. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's and got for, it's got mm. and, and for, for love. this woman he loves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's sold. It got mixed reviews. The New York Times raved about it. Only Gone with the Wind sold faster. Whoa. And I think it got like a book club, right? Like every Absolutely. every reading person in America, like, have you read mm. For Whom the Bell Tolls? I, I know we joked about um, with the Thompson machine submachine gun, we used to have a proper country. But now I'm saying it in like unironically. Mm. we mm-hmm. used to be a proper country <laughs> right right like guys at the bowling alley would you'd sign up for the book of the month club and you'd maybe right. have a look at the hemingway book i mean it was yeah. it, it was a thing yeah. yeah like i mentioned marxist attacked it because it wasn't totally polemical it wasn't perfect and it wasn't it was exactly towing. Yeah. yeah again nothing changes <laughs> uh and so great he has a huge success He's king of the American letters. I mean, he's king of American letters. Now his pattern was to move. Well, his pattern working on this was to move around. 
He wrote For Whom the Bell Tolls in Cuba, Wyoming, and Sun Valley, became a Book of the Month Club choice, sold half a million copies within months, and was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. And in the words of Myers, triumphantly reestablished Hemingway's literary reputation. So he comes back from an iffy decade. People aren't really loving Green Hills of Africa. Uh, I don't think he produced a bunch of short stories or anything. Um, you know, know one novel. Yeah. To have and have not, which is kind of (laughs) hacky. And now he's back on top. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Gellhorn and Hemingway kind of had like a honeymoon in China because she went on assignment for Collier's magazine. He went with her. He sent dispatches for a newspaper PM. He disliked China. Now, a 2009 book suggests during that period, he may have been recruited to work for Soviet intelligence under the name Agent Argo. And we're going to talk about this on the After Dark. I know Gwyn has some research. That is for Patreon members. We'll do another 30 plus minutes after this episode. Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pot. They first made contact, NKVD first made contact with him while he was uh, covering the Spanish Civil War in Spain. Stalin is supplying the guerrillas, which, you know, they were the legitimate Republican government, uh, the fight against Franco's fascistas, Hitler supplying uh, Franco, Mussolini supplying Franco, Stalin is, so it's a proxy war. Um, I know we don't fight those. Anymore, no, that's never happened. That's the only one yeah. that's ever happened. Uh, yep. <laughs> All right. So they were they returned. Well, that very good. They returned to Cuba before the declaration of war by the United States that December. Uh, and and we're getting into World War II. I mean, and he convinced the Cuban government to help him refit the Pilar, which he intended to use to ambush German submarines off the coast of Cuba. Amazing. And this this really happened. All right. So, okay. On that trip to China, there was a visit to Pearl Harbor, and he worried aloud that all of the neat ships in a row might draw the Japanese to attack. Oh, he really? kind of... Yep. Uh, the people who were with it kind of knew America's going to get it drawn into this war. Mm-hmm. Like he kind of predicted it. Um, so World War II kicks off. War is declared. You know, the U.S. finally enters the war. I mean, World War II is kind of going on, right? But now the United States is drawn in. Um, and U-boats, people kind of don't know this or kind of forget this, that like U-boats sank German U-boats. 360 merchant vessels like in the yep. Caribbean and on the Eastern seaboard. Um, there was a blackout I, all along the Eastern seaboard to, because, you know, you couldn't present lights. The United States couldn't, couldn't have like, they was a complete light blackout. So the uh, German U-boats couldn't target, uh, you know, infrastructure along the shore. One of my uh, old timer buddies at this uh, bar and restaurant I used to frequent in Manhattan grew up during the forties in, in Manhattan and would tell us stories of how, like he said they ran nets or something along the yep. Hudson river That's to right. try to prevent the German U-boats from getting up the river. I mean, it's just That's right. nuts, Crazy. nuts That's to think right. about. Yeah. The whole time this is happening, John Foster Dulles is carrying on business dealings with German industrialists and providing the German industrialists shipping, U S shipping manifests. 
why is well, he doing that well yeah at least we just you know at least he has gone down in history uh you know we've forgotten about him completely we haven't like named yeah. any major <laughs> yeah yeah airports <laughs> or anything after him he was know. doing this so he could keep up relationships with the german industrialists that he was making money off of <laughs> hmm. Hmm. great it was hmm. so Are bad you... that they had hmm. to like get a handle on him and his firm Sol- sullivan and cromwell and say, listen, we're at war, motherfucker. Like, <laughs> would you are you stop? doing? Would you stop, you <laughs> asshole? Yeah. Wow. Hmm. Wild. I didn't know that. I didn't. I honestly didn't know that. That's that. Crazy. That is the single to date greatest asterisk footnote we've ever had on Art of Darkness. <laughs> so like Aaron, you were just you were just feeling it. I got a letter from Hemingway to Maxwell Perkins from the the Finca in 1942. So a few years before mm. where we are, but. I have decided, or rather, I decided several months before it started, or maybe several years, say, not to write propaganda in this war at all. I'm willing to go to it, and will send my kids to it, and will give what money I have to it, but I want to write just what I believe all the way through it and after it. It was the writers in the last war who wrote propaganda that finished themselves off that way. (laughs) There is plenty of stuff that you believe absolutely that you can write, which is useful enough without having to write propaganda. If we are fighting for what we believe in, we might as well always keep on believing in what we have believed. And for me, this is to write nothing that I do not think is the absolute truth. Great. Well, that's him going into World War II. I mean, and that was his motto, right? All you have to do, or one of his like writing truisms, uh, don't, don't write up until the point where you know where you know the story. Write just until you know what's going to happen next, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So know what's going to happen next before you put the pen down or you close the typewriter. And he said, the next morning, all you have to do is write one true sentence. Write right. the truest sentence you know. Mm-hmm. And it worked for him. He got a lot. He got a lot of good writing done. But anyway, so I wanted to I wanted to share that bit about his uh, kind of his attitude going into World War II. I think he I think he uh, kind of was left with a bit of a sour taste in his mouth. It doesn't help when like your side loses the war, mm-hmm. right? You know, mm-hmm. um, the Spanish Civil War is a fascinating uh, bit of history if you care to read about it. Uh, all right, so uh, let's see. Hemingway, in fact, helped patrol around Cuba and the shipping lanes. He gathered what he called his hooligan navy. There was an ex-marine. There were millionaires. There were high-lie players. (laughs) They thought they were going to lure a U-boat to the surface. And the United States government supplied him with weaponry and communications and unlimited gasoline during like a time of strict rations. They gave them crates of hand grenades. Yes, crates of hand grenades. Crates of Mm -hmm. hand grenades. His half-assed plan was he was going to lure a U-boat to the surface, pretend to surrender, and then they would start chucking hand grenades like LeBron's sinking threes (laughs) into the like open manhole of Steph Curry. Steph Curry. Steph Curry. Steph Curry. Steph Currying (laughs) grenades. It's so dumb. It's so dumb. It's Thankfully, so it never happened. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, so, <clears throat> in all this time, I mean, this is kind of, and this is this was Gellhorn's uh, 
thought on it was like if this is just you and your buddies avoiding this war having a something having something to say right because you're <laughs> men you're big tough men right. and you're out there drinking of and course this is a larp isn't it Ernest? you're not really you don't really want to work this this war the way that i'm going to you just want to be on your boat and party with your buddies and feel like a big hero I would um, I would hunt U boats that way with both you guys anytime. Yeah, it sounds awesome. <laughs> sounds mm-hmm. awesome. That sounds like an awesome is, way to spend a couple of years, man. Which okay, you know what? I'm just <laughs> I can what? speak with the Germans when they capture us, Gwyn. Okay, oh, you do that. There you go. Yeah, yeah we'll yeah. keep mm-hmm. we'll keep the rum flowing. We'll get some big cigars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll polish the inevitably get ca- uh, captured. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, very good. That's that's um, manana, Kevin. That's manana. We yeah. worry about <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. Very good, very good. <laughs> well, so this is the point where I say, well, okay, so they only once, and I think we're talking about like years here, months and months, they only once spotted a submarine, but it was too fast and far away to catch. Of course. He called it a seaborne comic strip. (laughs) Now, (laughs) Martha was never going to be a Hemingway wife the way the other three were. Uh, And he was drinking a lot and he was having scotch and soda at 10 a.m. (laughs) <laughs> she was very it's a little early it's a little early and then on the bow of the ship with a machine gun just <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it certainly paints a picture man like you guys live it a life uh there was verbal abuse oh they were together off and on for seven years three as husband and wife they were better at war they were better out in the field reporting but together, like domestically, they were not good. And it escalated. There was one night where he was shit-faced in Havana, probably drinking at La Floridita. She didn't want him to drive. And uh, she wanted to drive. And he slapped her. Nah. Uh, and uh, I think she drove the car into the ditch. Or like he did. Like So anyway, the, the car ended up in the ditch. And uh, it was a, it was a bad fucking scene. So drunk driving, hmm. um, not good. Gellhorn wanted to cover the war. She left to England without him to report for Colliers. This is the kind of woman we're talking about, by the way. Like yeah, she was you a got, real writer. She was a real. She was, journalist. She's a real article. Yeah, yep. mm-hmm. and um, again, deserve deserves her own episode at some point, and, and perhaps perhaps we will. Uh and. Yeah, he fell into a depression. She's busy covering the Italian front. He's sending her angry cables. Are you a <laughs> war correspondent or wife in my bed? Oh, he wanted her in Cuba. She wanted him in London. He called his depression black ass. Love and it. as I've said, I might call I might call this episode Ernest Hemingway's black ass. <laughs> That might not come off well. That might I, you know, come, saying, yeah. saying that aloud, I probably have to like, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know what? I'm going to back that ass up. I, I, uh, I like the but... double entendre, but that one. Yeah, yes. that, one, that, one, that one might not pass muster. Yeah. Uh, but that's what he called his depression. He called it his black ass. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have the impression that it probably, probably means like a donkey. Like, I'm just feeling mm-hmm. black ass. It, it's a good turn of phrase. He's just not mm-hmm. feeling great. Mm-hmm. He would drink himself to sleep. And uh-huh. he wrote. I am uh, sick, lonely, like somebody with their heart cut out, um, which is sad. 
Man, he needed women. Yeah. Like he, he needed really women need, so much. He needed women, you know, mm-hmm. in a way that some men do, some men don't. But he needed deeply needed that affection mm-hmm. and that support. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, he was not. This is the point. This is the turn in the episode where I find myself doing the thing that I do with so many of our subjects, and frankly, a lot of the people we haven't covered yet. Where I look at a life and I go. How can you not get it together? Right. right. And I understand that from the outside, that's easy to do. And I know people have looked at my life <laughs> at times <laughs> and probably had, have had not in this sort of uh, biographical historical way. Right. But, you know, mm. somebody, well, you go, oh, that guy's got to get his act together. Right. I'm sure you Same. all have experienced something Same. similar. Right. Same. Yeah. Yeah. But you look at a life like Hemingway where you go, you have everything. Yeah. You have everything. Beautiful women, you yeah. you know, uh, a, you know, a beautiful journalist wife, tremendous right? success vote. at a career yeah. that almost no one succeeds at, like right, and and kind of early too, right? I mean, very early, his, very know, it's, early. It's, it's he's he's hitting. He's hitting a double at least on the first at bat. I, I mean, and you want to, and, and and this is not a kill shot, but you want to go and grab him and go put the bottle down. Right. right. Put the bottle down. Because, yeah. but can you imagine? Hello, my name's Ernest, and I'm alco- an alcoholic. You can't. Right. It doesn't. Yeah. It would never compute. Amazing. There's just no no chance. Yeah. Um, in any case, so she returns in 1944 uh, to Cuba, but there's no saving this relationship. He would bully and snarl and mock her. He'd call her insane, selfish. She attacked his drinking and his cowardice. Oof. She said, you owe it to yourself to be there on D-Day. And he said, history doesn't concern me. She was going to go back to London for D-Day with him or not. At the end, he relented because they planned D-Day for a while. Everybody knew D-Day was, com- was coming. Yeah. Um, yeah. He finally agreed to go. And he said, just feel like old horse. Hmm. Good sound. But old being saddled again to do the old jumps. Hmm. Then they have a breakup. She said, I mean, they're kind of going through it all all the time. She would say about this, I only want to be alone. I want to be myself alone and free. I want my own name back most violently as if getting it back would give me some of myself. Hmm. He arrived in London 11 days before Gellhorn. And met Mary Walsh. Come oh, no. on down. You're the fourth and final Hemingway wife. <laughs> I got a feeling this was... one's going to work out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is true love. This, this one's true love. This is the one. This, this is, the, is one. the one. She was born in Walker, Minnesota. Oh, she was the, okay. Yeah. She was the daughter of a lumberman. She was born in 1908, so roughly the same age as Gellhorn. She was married when she met Ernest. Uh, so, all right, let's get into it. He Good literally old... never moves on. The relationship doesn't end until he's met another one. He's got another this is, one. On this the is line. never a man who was like, "Oh, things were things were good with uh, Hadley, and then I met Pauline, and and then I was sleeping with Pauline, and maybe I shouldn't have, but maybe." 
Maybe if I pause to think about it, it means that I wasn't happy with Hadley. So maybe I need to take a break. No. Yeah, maybe <laughs> like, I need to like just get, cool. I, yeah. Figure no. out what my deal is with all this. And yeah. He no, was never just... sitting around reading Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life, <laughs> no, trying to figure no. out <laughs> no, yeah, no. trying to figure out how yeah. to day game. I mean, it right. was never uh, is that is that JBP's new book? No, I gotta no, no, no. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That'd be amazing. <laughs> Peterson just writes a book about being a pickup artist. We're like, oh my gosh. You're like he stepped into the hey. breach, Andrew Tate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> day game. Uh, I would day love it if it was Jordan like uh, I would love it if it was all like old folksy stuff. Like yeah. write her father a letter. Like, <laughs> <laughs> have you thought about taking her to the cakewalk? Right. <laughs> Listen, Buster. You're going to hit it. And you're going to hit it good, Buster. <laughs> it's, it's it's Bucko. It's Bucko. It's Bucko. Listen yeah, here, yeah. Bucko. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna wait until marriage, right? Yeah. Uh, Tremendous. Tremendous. Yeah. Amazing. Oh goodness, we have so much fun on Art of Darkness, don't we? Uh yeah. so yeah, he meets Mary. She's writing for oh god, what was it? Colliers. Uh, it's Colliers. Uh, no, no. She oh no, no, no. You're right. Colliers. You're right. You're right. Uh, I, I'll have it here. Let's see. Who is she writing for? Oh, I had it. I had it just now. Uh, let's see. Oh, Time Magazine. The, a time. Uh, a little magazine called Big Time Man. Magazine. Yeah. So Mary, Mary has a, a career of her own as well. He became mm. infatuated. All it took was eleven days. He's in London before Galhorn meets him, and he's already. Yeah. started this infatuation with Mary. Right. They um, ran off the road together and he got concussion number three. Mm, during a right. black during mm. a blackout, his limo driver or his his driver like drove them, drove them off the road. He hit his head and oh, uh ended up in the hospital with that. It, yes. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'll I'll tell the story and that's sort of a yeah, that yeah. was a big moment uh for for gelhorn so all of this happens um uh well but first gelhorn had to be had to cross the atlantic in a ship filled with explosives because hemingway refused to help her get a press pass on a plane okay <laughs> great so she arrives in london to find him hospitalized with a concussion from a car accident what is that number three the big yep, one number three, three. Yeah. yep he was he was hanging out and uh Mary was there and he had like bandages over his head and everything and he was drinking and and he was holding forth and she just thought it was a ridiculous way to behave <laughs> and it didn't even really matter because well she was like you know you're a bully she told him she was through absolutely finished he had asked Mary Welsh to marry him in their third meeting all right wow oh my so, god I mean, this guy is in a constant state of being half pickled. Too. Right. He's right. pickled That's by right. noon. Yeah, it's not, dear, now. will you marry me? It's, you should get married. married. <laughs> and, and, I, I, and I'm sorry, he's still very handsome, in his mm -hmm. prime, built, you know, yeah. he's just broad shoulders, the most famous living writer in the language. Mm -hmm. And yeah. marry me, well, you've got to be a little bit yeah, <laughs> like, geez, yeah, 
I can make, I yeah. mean, what's that Kanye line? I got to make your life real interesting. <laughs> like it's something <laughs> like that. Right. I, I, yeah. This is a, this is a kill shot for mm. a lot of stuff. You're going to, your life is going to get real different, real fast. If somebody like Hemingway proposes. Yeah. All right. Um, Hemingway accompanied the troops to the Normandy landings wearing a large head bandage. He was considered precious cargo and not allowed ashore. He was on a landing craft within sight of Omaha Beach before it came under enemy fire and it turned back. He wrote in Collier's uh, that he could see the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth waves of landing troops lay where they had fallen, looking like so many heavily laden bundles on the flat, pebbly stretch between the sea and first cover. Uh, none of the co- correspondents were allowed to land and he was returned to the boat. I believe Gellhorn managed to get ashore and oh, was wow. involved, yeah, with some of the early like nurses. Like she hid on like a hospital mm-hmm. ship. So mm-hmm. after the action, she got ashore and actually helped the wow. wave of the, I guess, the first responders to come ashore. So she Brutal. outdid him. She outdid him there. Um, so uh it gets more interesting. Late in July, he attached himself to the 22nd Infantry Regiment commanded by Colonel Charles Buck Lanham as a, hey, clean clean the Eastern Front, bucko. Uh, (laughs) Charles Buck Lanham (laughs) as it drove toward Paris. And Hemingway became de facto leader to a small band of village militia in Rambouillet outside of Paris. Uh, Paul (laughs) Fistel remarks... Hemingway got into considerable trouble playing infantry captain to a group of resistance people that he gathered because a correspondent is not supposed to lead troops, even if he does it well. Hemingway violated the Geneva Conventions. Many times. Yeah, and he was brought up on formal charges. Uh, he, He said that he beat the rap by claiming that he only offered advice <laughs> on July 25th. I mean, there are signs that he picked up arms against the, the Germans. He hundred uh, percent did. Yeah. hundred percent. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. He, uh, at one point he would acquire a belt and I, I, um, I need to look up at whether it was a world war one or a world war two belt. I think it's a world war two belt that said, Gott mit uns is an old German belt. Uh, hmm. which means God is with us, with us. Uh, and he would wear that and laugh about that belt. He just thought that was so funny. Um, I, I think it was given to him by his son, Jack, who was, who was an OSS officer who parachuted into France and was wounded at, and captured. Oh, uh, and Jack sure. gave him that belt. Uh, I would love to see the Hemingway got bit und spelt. Yeah. It means God is with us. And I think Hemingway thought that was hilarious. Like, Right. Clearly. Oh. <laughs> Think about this weirdness, though, that he returns to Paris. Mm. He and his little uh, French resistance army roll in and liberate Sylvia Beach of Shakespeare and Company, who published James Joyce's Ulysses. Oh. In the middle of all that, he said, oh, I'm sorry. I have to go do something. Walks across the street. There's like pockets of German resistance. He pulls the pin on two grenades and rolls them into a cellar where some Nazis are holed up. <laughs> yes. Can yes. I read you a passage from, yeah. from a letter to yeah, yeah. Us well, about this? Yeah. A lot of this is a lot of this is not confirmed, but yeah, go on. Yep. Go on. 
And he did not roll into Paris with this plucky uh, resistance group. He rolled in with um, Buck Lanham. I think, yeah, Buck Lanham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That was an expression I always loved, along with now shared amongst you, you cocksuckers, when you put an anti-tank grenade in on a lovely German SS who had decided not to come out when duly summoned. One time, I killed a very snotty SS Kraut who, when I told him I would kill him unless he revealed what his escape route signs were, said, you will not kill me because you are afraid to and because you are a race of mongrel degenerates. Besides, it is against the Geneva Convention. What a mistake you made, brother. I told him and shot him three times in the belly fast. And then when he went down on his knees, shot him on the top side so his brains came out of his mouth. Or I guess it was his nose. The next SS I interrogated talked wonderfully, clearly and with intelligent military exposition of their situation. Called me Herr Hauptmann and then decided that was not enough and called me Herr Oberst. Colonel, I would have worked him up to general, but we did not have time. After that, we chased them very fast because we knew exactly what the signs they chalked up meant and who and how many there were. We'll now try to go back to being a Christian again. Yours in Christ, Ernest. <laughs> what a great pick. Uh, yeah, I don't know yeah. if I believe any of that, but all right. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a little that's a little sketchy there. I like it. I like it. Though. Yeah, I mean, it's just so, it's a lot of fun. Um, yeah. This is what another source says. You know, on August twenty fifth, he was present at the liberation of Paris as a journalist. Contrary to the Hemingway legend, he was not the first into the city, nor did he liberate the Ritz. Um, <laughs> I love that idea. He went and went on and lived at the Ritz. I mean, <laughs> it, it was 50 martinis. Yes. And yeah. he would always claim to have liberated the Ritz. Let me read a little bit from the um, Hemingway, Kenneth Lynn bio. In private, he would later boast that he had entered Paris with the very first troops. But except for a passing assertion in Collier's that I took cover in all the street fighting, the solidest <laughs> cover av available. And with someone covering the stairs behind me after we were in houses or the entrances to apartment houses. He did not publish any description of his activities in the city on the day of its liberation. He didn't have to, however, for that job was carried out by uh, him for other, or for him by other writers. Task Force Hemingway, it seemed, was already mopping up elements of the German rear guard around the Arc de Triomphe at the time when most of the second French armored was still fighting skirmishes on the south bank of the Seine. Uh, when the careful Leclerc at last entered the capital, he allegedly noticed a sign hanging from the door of a church, property of Ernest Hemingway. Amazing. And then, of course, there was the well-known fact that Hemingway liberated the Ritz Hotel. As Robert Kappa averred in his memoir, Slightly Out of Focus, he himself arrived at the hotel on the night of the liberation and was met by Hemingway's French driver who said, Papa took good hotel, plenty stuff in cellar, you go up quick. But the truth of the matter is that other men in allied uniforms got to the hotel well before Papa. Free had been diverted into helping to clear a few German soldiers out of an apartment building near the Bois de Boulogne, after which he paused for a champagne toast at the Travelers Club on the Champs-Élysées. He, for the intelligence, uh, excuse me, 
as for the intelligence gathering achievements of Captain Hemingway and his maquis around Rambouillet, they do not even rate a footnote in the office of the chief mm. of U.S. military history's authoritative, authoritative breakout and pursuit. In the tactfully worded private judgment of David Bruce, Hemingway and his men were active and fearless, sometimes purveyors of valuable intelligence, but the best intelligence was that furnished by the natives of villages and of the countryside between Rambouillet and Paris. So a minor player, and he played up his involvement quite a great deal. Uh, I have a little bit more about this. Let me find, because the Ritz story is so funny. Um, <laughs> yeah. Already, you know, he liberated the Ritz Hotel and Bar, where he requisitioned a large room and proceeded to Fair Lafette, allegedly ordering sixty dry martinis for his rowdy company of adventurers. <laughs> One reviewer, David Hendricks, put it well: During the war, Hemingway was good at being Hemingway. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is really funny. For violating the G Geneva Convention's rules for non-combatant journalists, Ernest would have to face a military tribunal in October. Mm -hmm. Lying under oath, he beat the rap to protect himself and Colonel David Bruce by swearing to Colonel Park, who convened the hearing, that he had only acted in an advisory capacity. In August... He arranged a transfer from General Patton's Third Army. He didn't like Patton's style. Hated him. Yeah, Hated him. yeah. Hmm. To the first and attached to the Fourth Infantry Division's Twenty Second Infantry Regiment. He really liked Buck Lanham, and they became lifelong friends. And he vaguely modeled uh, a character in one of his later novels. Um, oh gosh, it's escaping me. The the Venice novel, Across the River and Into the Trees is a colonel so it's sort of a mm. mixture of hemingway himself and we're going to get to it it's really an awful kind of moment in hemingway's uh exceedingly tragic life in any case that is when hemingway liberated the ritz so <laughs> yeah and ordered 60 mar dry martinis um in paris he visited sylvia beach and pablo picasso with mary and she joined him there he forgave gertrude stein they had had a spat. Do you know much about that, uh, Gwen? I can imagine. I don't, these I don't know that one. Bulls, I don't know yeah, that two one. bulls in a china shop there. Right. Eventually, yeah. we will do Stein, and uh, we'll. I'll make sure to cover it in that episode. Amazing. Um, later that year, he's not done with World War II. He observed heavy fighting in the Battle of Hütgen Forest, which was – he was there, and he may have, again, picked up arms. Uh, that that Lanham confirms. Lanham right. says that he mm -hmm. saw Hemingway working – a light machine gun with a machine gun crew and that he was dropping Germans. And he was definitely, he was definitely killing as a journalist and wow. lighten, lighten, you know, fuck starting Nazi faces, I believe is the technical term. Uh, <laughs> right. Very good. Dang. Uh, okay. okay. All right. Um, he, and he had made himself, he had made his way to the front. I think he had, uh, like requisitioned a German motorcycle with a sidecar. <laughs> That's right. Uh, like, I mean, it's some Indiana Jones shit. Like, which he wrecked, like, which yeah. he wrecked and gave himself another concussion God. and See, had to lie in the hedgerows listening to like patrol. Yeah, the Germans like, got SS close. Patrol. Yes. Yeah. 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 This, this should be the Hemingway biopic. It's that's it's right. What Hemingway would say about his time in world war two. Right. 
And like, yeah, that should be the movie. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what the right angle is to really properly do a Hemingway biopic. Um, in the interest of time, let's table that and talk about that on the After Dark for Patreon. Okay. Yeah. I have some thoughts yeah. about that. Yeah, but sticking with the bio, in 47, well, he, he ended up getting hospitalized for pneumonia. I think Lanham was kind of like, you got to you can't do this. <laughs> like You're not a soldier. What are you doing? Right. Uh, so uh, he recovered a week later, but most of the fighting was over. Thank God. Um, in 1947, Hemingway was awarded a bronze star for his bravery during World War II. He was recognized for having been under fire in combat areas in order to obtain an accurate picture of conditions. With the commendation that, through his talent of expression, Mr. Hemingway enabled readers to obtain a vivid picture of the difficulties and triumphs of the frontline soldier and his organization in combat. And that is Hemingway in World War II. And I think we're getting into hour five of this episode. I'm going to bring it on home. We still got plenty to cover. Y'all doing all right? Mm -hmm. Let's go. We're good. All right. So the next section is Cuba and the Nobel Prize. I'm going to start to blow through some through some stuff here to get us there. Hemingway said he was out of business as a writer from 42 to 45 during his residence in Cuba. He married Mary in 1946, but she had and they wanted children. He especially wanted a daughter, which is somewhat ironic given that mm -hmm. Gigi was to become Gloria and mm -hmm. that was very it was not a good scene for them. In any case, mm -hmm. um, Mary had an ectopic pregnancy five months later, which means I think the, it means that the, uh, the egg embeds like in a part of the uterus that it shouldn't or something like this. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. it, she basically had, uh, she couldn't have children after that. It was, it was, it was over. Um, and I think that was a source of some anxiety for them. And I also think psychologically Mary kind of turned Hemingway into her child right. um, and his alcoholism that created like a like a cybernetic loop where like the one was feeding the other and this was giving feedback and i i think that is that the one of the things is at the root of the trouble that they would go on to have um hemingway uh they suffered a series of accidents and health problems there was a car accident in 1945. He smashed his knee and had another deep wound on his forehead. Mary broke first her right ankle and then her left in skiing accidents. Then in 47, there was a car accident that left his son Patrick with a head wound. Hemingway sank into depression as his literary friends began to die. 1939, Yates. Ford Maddox Ford, 1940. F. Scott Fitzgerald, 1941. Anderson and James Joyce, 1946. Uh, Gertrude Stein in the following year, 1947. Perkins, Hemingway's Scribner's editor, died. Now, middle son Patrick in the summer of 1947 in Cuba had a severe psychotic episode after a concussion. He tore Jeez. off his clothes, cursed and struck out. By his own words, he said it was like a bout of extreme schizophrenia, but he got over it. Hemingway refused to institutionalize him and nursed him personally. He slept. He would get, Ernest would get four hours a night because he would sleep outside his son's room. Um, Pauline came to help, which I think is lovely. And mm -hmm. she and Mary actually became friends. And they said they're both alums of uh, Hemingway University. Uh, hmm. 
That might be a good episode title, Hemingway's University. <laughs> uh, I'm still, I still haven't found the one, but in any case, mm -hmm. Patrick got electroshock therapy and finally recovered. All right. During this period, Hemingway suffered from severe headaches, high blood pressure, weight problems, and eventually diabetes, much of which was the result of previous accidents and many years of heavy drinking. Mm. Now, in 1946, he begins to work on The Garden of Eden. He wrote 800 pages by June. The gender-bending novel would not be published until 1986. And we're going to go oh. further into that on the after dark. Mm -hmm. In short, though, in IRL, mm -hmm. he and Mary would switch roles in about the most provocative sense you can imagine. Here's huh. what Hemingway would say about it. Mary is a prince of devils. She has always wanted to be a boy and thinks as a boy without ever losing any femininity. She loves me to be her girls, which I love to do, uh, which I love to be. At night, we do every sort of thing which pleases her and which pleases me. I've never been happier. Huh. Wild. Okay. We'll go further into totally that. Yeah. Mm, yeah, wild. Um, the children would split time back and forth, which I'm sure was not easy on them. The youngest son, Gregory, Gloria, uh, dealt with gender dysphoria. And I'm going to uh, do a little detour here about Gloria. Throughout her life, Hemingway experienced gender dysphoria and wore women's clothes on a number of occasions, mostly privately and occasionally going out. When Hemingway was 12 years old, this is Gloria, mm -hmm. Ernest walked in on her dressed in Martha Gellhorn's stockings, a near daily activity at the time, and went berserk. A Hemingway biographer, Donald Junkins, stated that Hemingway, when she, Gloria, was 60 years old, told him that she never got over it, the raging wrath of her father. <laughs> However, a few days after the childhood encounter, Ernest counseled Gigi, we come from a strange tribe, you and I. In 1946, Mary accused the maid of stealing her lingerie, but later discovered the items under 14-year-old Hemingway's mattress. Ooh. When Ernest rebuked his child for stealing from Mary years later, uh, Gloria responded, the clothes business is something I have never been able to control, understand basically very little, and I am terribly ashamed of. I have lied about it before, mainly to people I am fond of, because I was afraid they would not like me as much if they had found out. Uh, his wife, her wife, Gloria's wife, Valerie, wrote, all his life, Greg fought a losing battle against this crippling illness. He lacked critical early help because his parents were unable or unwilling to accept his condition, nor could he come to terms with it himself for a long time. Taking up the study of medicine, he became a doctor. Gloria was a doctor in the hope that he would find a cure or at least a solace. Failing that, he developed an alter alternate persona, a character into which he could retreat from the unbearable responsibilities of being, among other things, his father's son. And of never, ever measuring up to what was expected of him or to what he expected of himself. Gloria would die on October 1st, 2001 of hypertension and cardiovascular disease in Miami-Dade Women's Detention Center. And that day, she was in uh, due in court to answer charges of indecent exposure and resisting arrest without violence. She'd been living in, in Florida for more than 10 years. So quite a wild little side story there. Oh, and um, yeah, I'm sad. Hemingway unable to... Unable to fully exercise the demons of his own childhood and in a way becoming uh, like his father. Mm. Um, mm. We'll get back to, to, to Gigi there in a little bit, but we're into the post-war years. So 
he's written this 800 pages of this novel that wouldn't be published until after his life because it like couldn't like there's he'd have to, he would have had to have published it under a, a pseudonym and then it's almost like there's no point like yeah you know so uh during the post-war years he also began to work on a trilogy tentative tentatively titled The Land, The Sea, and The Air, which he wanted to combine into one novel called The Sea Book. These projects stalled, and his inability to continue was symptomatic of the troubles he was having. Mm -hmm. In 1948, he and Mary traveled to Europe. They stayed in Venice for several months, and while there, Hemingway fell in love with the then 19-year-old Adriana Ivancic. That's the age gap you've been looking for. Yeah, that's 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 not good. Don't do that. All right. <laughs> 40, 49 years old or something. This would be, uh, oh my God, it's at the bottom of my pile. So hang on. All right. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a big age gap. Yeah. Have either of you ever been to Venice? No. Oh. I'd love to go. No. People, people always have some. I'm, look at me. This is terrible. No. <laughs> I'm, I, 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 I should have pulled this one out because there's, there's a little factoid that I want to make sure I get right. About this awesome. 19-year-old woman or about this? No, no, no. About the about the book. About the book. Oh, oh. yeah. Oh, oh I, I, I have confirmed the punchline here. All right. <laughs> Here's a punchline confirmed. Here's a little bit from the Lynn bio. She was just about to have her 19th birthday, precisely the same age he had been on the night he was wounded at Fasulta, so that it was only natural that in Across the River and Into the Trees, the novel he wrote inspired by this love affair, which was never consummated. This is like, oh, okay. This is pretty a fantasy kind pretty of. Pretty sad. Well, but I mean, they would eventually come over from Cuba. She and her mother would come over um, from Italy to Cuba. It was, it's weird. Hmm. Yeah. Um, at one point, he said he'd he'd ask her to marry him, but she would say no, so he didn't ask. It's very um, gross and weird, yeah, yeah. Um, and kind of pathetic. Um, in any case, uh, so that it was only natural that in across the river and into the trees, he would have Colonel Cantwell, his stand-in, who's kind of a combination of him and and Lanham, talk into de- uh, detail about battlefield manners with his youthful Italian mistress Renata whose name was also a reflection of the novelist's fantasy that Adriana was himself reborn. Another link with her uh, that he wished to believe in began with the fact that her father was dead. The owner of a substantial house on the Cai de Remedio in Venice, as well as an estate at San Michele al Tagliamento, Carlo Ivancic had planned to run for mayor of Venice after the war, but was murdered by his political enemies in the spring of 45. Consequently, when Hemingway began calling Adriana daughter, it had a special significance. Marlene Dietrich and many other mature women to whom he had, was attracted, he had a thing with Marlene Dietrich. They were they were pals. He called her the Kraut, uh, which is very <laughs> funny. He would call her daughter too. Um, but in the fatherless Adriana's case, there really was a generational difference between them so that the appellation added an incestuous twist to his longing for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I won't go on too much more about that, but he, he, you know, he's drinking, he's got ringing in his ears, high blood pressure. He meets this 18 year old. She turns 19. He, they, they would, 
I guess they met at a place called Harry's Bar. She's from an old aristocratic family. He he called her daughter. She called him Papa. He's sort of flirting with her. Mary's there. Uh, Fitzgerald said that Hemingway wanted a new wife for every book. And he published Across the River and Into the Trees. It was written in Cuba during a time of strife with Mary. You can imagine, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Published in 1950. Instant bestseller. (laughs) Terrible reviews. Sentimental. Embarrassing. Pitiable. Maudlin. Not only his worst novel, one said, but a synthesis of everything bad in his previous work. One critic said, we have to reassess the entire Hemingway oeuvre. This book is so bad. It made Gellhorn sick. In his own mind. Well, Gellhorn, you know. I was thinking about Mary, but Gellhorn. Well, we're going to get it. Here's the here's the dedication of Across the River and Into the Trees from Ernest Hemingway about a, a thinly veiled account of his sad attraction to a 19-year-old to marry with love. That was his dedication from this book. Oh my god. To his wife. He on, that was man. the punchline I had been looking for. Yeah, yeah. Come on, man. Yeah, come on, man. <laughs> he had been he really believed he was writing better than ever, but but uh, no, he was not. He started acting weird, for lack of a better word. He <laughs> he would uh, he was, <laughs> uh, he was writing letters full of tall tales. He'd oh, say, gosh. "All writers are liars, especially when they've had a few drinks." Well, that's great. Yeah, he's he would say that. He'd say I just that, have like, his, this image of him just sort of like at this point, just kind of like belly. Got a belly. He's got mm-hmm. a belly going, probably right. Yep, wasted, belchy. Yeah, you know, tr- yeah. Just mashing yeah. one key at a time, kind of. This is good. Uh, uh, I'm writing better than ever. <laughs> he would tell old, people that old pop, old pop has oh, got a pop. tail to tell. Old pop has got it. <laughs> yeah, he would say that his great great grandmother was Cheyenne. His ancestors oh, fought in the Crusades. Uh, right? yeah, so, now, yeah. so now we're in the Hemingway is the bloated bullshit artist at the bar era. Yeah, it's um, the Orson Welles path. Yeah, uh, he's a Go little ahead. manic. One day he disappeared into to Havana and returned to the Pilar for lunch with Mary and some of their friends with a seventeen year old prostitute on his arm. Whoa! Yeah, Gross. and at this point, and I, I, I skipped over this beat earlier. Mary was reluctant to marry him. She was from jump. It was like, yeah, I'll marry you, but you gotta cut down the drinking. That's mm-hmm. how it started. That's a hell right. of a way to start a marriage. Yeah, like, yo, I'll marry you, but you gotta stop like the day drinking. You got to tone it down. And, you know, of course, Hemingway would make promises. But here he is some years later. She's had an ectopic pregnancy, can't have children. He'll never with her have the daughter that he so yearns for. Then he ends up meeting this 18 year old, calls her daughter. Right. So there's all this like boiling over of like psychosexual energy that Hemingway just cannot wrestle into shape. And the booze is 100 percent at the heart of it. Um. And then he 
Mary's done. She's had enough. He's insulted her too much. He writes a letter ending it. He begs her and she stays with him. But it's never right. He hits his head on the Pilar after slipping again. Just a few weeks before Across the River comes out. Probably shit-faced. Yeah. Um, so the 1950s are a time for Hemingway that's like big highs, big lows. And, you know, he's constantly checking blood pressure. He's got drinking, mental illness. It's all we're really at like an almost an absolute bottom. I'd call this the penultimate bottom. Yeah. Um, he, uh, Scribner sent him the galleys of a novel from here to eternity by a fellow named jo- uh, Jones. Do you know what's the, what's that guy's first name? James the Jones. Novel? James Jones. Yeah. For a blurb. He wrote back this letter. I'm going to read this. It is not great no matter what they tell you. This is a war novel. It has fine qualities and greater faults. It is much too long and much too bitching, and his one fight against the planes at Pearl Harbor Day is almost musical comedy. He is the genius for respecting the terms of a kitchen, and he is a KP boy for keeps and for always. Things will catch up with him, and he will probably commit suicide. Who could announce in his publicity in this year, 1951, that he went over the hill in 1944? That was a year in which many people were very busy doing their duty and in which many people died. To me, he is an enormously skilled fuck-up, and his book will do great damage to our country. Probably I should reread it again to give you a truer answer, but I do not have to eat an entire bowl of scabs to know that they are scabs, nor suck a boil to know it is a boil, nor swim through a river of snot to know it is snot. I hope he kills himself as soon as it does not damage his his or your sales. If you give him a literary tea, you might ask him to drain a bucket of snot and then suck the pus out of a dead gamer word's ear. Beep ear. Then present him. Yes. Then present him with one of those women he is asking for and let him show her his portrait and his clippings. How did they ever get a picture of a wide eared jerk, undamaged ears to look that screaming tough? I'm glad he makes you money and I would never laugh him off. I would just give him a bigger bucket on the snot detail. He has the psycho's urge to kill himself and he will do it. Make all the money you can out of him as quickly as you can and hold out enough for a Christian burial. Wouldn't have brought him up if you hadn't asked me. Now I feel as unclean as when I read his fuck-off book. It has all the charm and trueness of the real imitation fuck-off. I give you James Jones, gentlemen, and please take him away before he falls apart or starts screaming. Sir, this is Wendy's. (laughs) (laughs) Sir, this is a Wendy's. Old man yells at clouds. What was going on? I mean, he was he was losing it. Yeah, for sure. I don't know anything about James Jones or this novel. Uh, Aaron, do you know anything about this book? I just know the thin red line. I don't know from here to eternity. Yeah, I'm just wondering, like, is it actually bad or is it really good? And Hemingway is like resentful, but I I can't quite answer that. It couldn't be that bad. I, I mean, no, nothing no, is no. that bad. Nothing's that bad. <laughs> <laughs> mm, that is vicious. That's know. about as vicious of a letter as you could possibly. I, I don't even know how you would write I, a more vicious letter than that. Well, he learned from the best. His, yeah, his, his first girlfriend and his mother. Yeah, uh, yeah sheesh. Um, <laughs> so in Cuba, he would rehearse his suicide for friends. He would put the shotgun in his mouth and fire it with his toe. Oh, good. He would say, 
you get hammered, he'd say, I love only Adriana. I am going to commit suicide. He called Mary a whore, bitch, liar, moron. Uh, but Conrad got re- gets redacted from the new. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, and she said, I am witnessing the disintegration of a personality. Uh, yeah. And there was violence. Enough that the Cuban doctors took the shotgun. A Cuban doctor took the shotguns out of the home. They're like, you guys, you can't have these. Wow. Now, in October of 1950, Adriana and her mother come to visit. I mean. And I have a note here, like, that says, wait, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. okay. He goes into training for this. He loses weight. He stops drinking everything but for a bit of wine. Classic alcoholic cope. Oh, I'll just have beer. Mm-hmm. 24 beers yeah. later, right? Right. Uh, he starts eating raw duck liver, celery. <laughs> he swims laps. Uh, I mean, this is just, I, I'm just going to read my notes. It's the saddest thought. This is just yeah. so sad and pathetic. Yeah. Nothing He's listening comes to David it. Goggins. Yeah. <laughs> you tends yeah. a Gary V seminar. Right. <laughs> He's really getting it together here. Hmm. Just as long as he doesn't start a podcast. Um, (laughs) Meanwhile, and this is incredible, and I set this up on purpose. He's written, he wrote in eight weeks a book, a novel. He drafted The Old Man in the Sea. Amazing. Well, all of this is going on. And we don't need to linger too much on it. Uh, It reads like scripture. It, it reads like it's one of those books that just it just feels like it, it just came wholly just delivered. It's a book that feels delivered somehow. Mm-hmm. And it gets it gets published, becomes a book of the month selection, international celebrity again, and he wins the Pulitzer Prize in back, May. Papa's back on top. <laughs> and what's crazy about that passage that last 15 minutes on art of darkness is like i get i do get chills about this mm-hmm. knowing all of this is going on and he's and he still manages to to write it's, that. Inc- it's incredible i know i'm making it's a joke incredible but it's book. incredible and it's a good it's it's an incredible piece of writing yeah it is an incredible it really, piece of writing and it, it's crucial in him getting the nobel prize too it tees yes. him up for the nobel prize mm-hmm. it really does it really does. There's something else that tees him up for that too, which we're going to get to. Uh, and so, and I would say if you're uh, not much of a reader or you, you want to low commit Hemingway, uh, get the old man in the suit. You just see, you can, you can, you can read it in an afternoon or a couple of afternoons. It's very short. It's very satisfying. Uh, it has the feeling of like a fable or a parable. Uh, it's, it's tremendous. All right. First published in life magazine too, by the way. Oh. Oh, yeah. Very good. And it was published in uh, 1953. And that was a month before he left on his second trip to Africa. All right. So he goes to Africa. His son, Jack, if I'm not mistaken, had like become, he had like land in Africa. And I think he was like a tour guide or something. Hmm. His, his, his oldest son. Uh, Let me, let me confirm this. Um, One moment. I want to, I want to get it right. Yeah, that's interesting though. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Was it was it let's see. Well, I don't have to go too much into it. It's fine. But I I'm pretty sure I'm correct there. In any case, 
So they're in Africa. They're going on a kind of another safari. Um, uh, this is a different couple, of course. He and Mary are in Africa. He loved Africa. He would write effusively about it. He was almost fame, uh, fatally injured in two successive plane crashes. You know about the plane crashes, Brad? I, I, I know a little bit about it. I just know it was, they were like practically back to back. They were. There was no yeah. practically. They were consecutive. Yeah. It'd be like if you boarded a flight to Chicago and you had a connecting flight to L.A., the yeah. plane crashes on the way to Chicago. You yeah. survive. You're in Chicago. You're like, damn, I got to get to L.A. The plane, cr- plane crashes on, uh, <laughs> on the way to L.A. Now, these aren't like commercial airlines, right, but like right. the odds of this are insane. So the first flight was uh, a charter flight sightseeing over the Belgian Congo. Oh, I'm going to looking down, going to see what Conrad saw. Yeah. As a Christmas present to Mary. Merry oh, Christmas. On their way to photograph Murchison Falls from the air, the plane struck an abandoned utility pole and crash landed in heavy brush. Mm. His injuries included a head wound and Mary mm. broke two ribs. The next day, attempting to reach metal care in Entebbe, they boarded a second plane that exploded at takeoff. With Hemingway suffering burns and another concussion, this oh. one serious enough to cause leaking of cerebral fluid. And what oh, happened no. here is he couldn't get out. He was too big. He had to smash the door open with his head like a bull at a bullfight. He had to, he he broke his head open, his skull open, getting out so he didn't burn to death in the wreckage of this plane. Holy That's God. the one that did him in right there. Yeah. That did him in. Yep. They eventually arrived in Entebbe to find reporters covering the story of his death. He, and apparently he emerged from the jungle with like bananas and gin is the story. (laughs) (laughs) He liberated the Congo on the way. He liberated the Congo (laughs) and some gin. Oh boy. I'm still trying to come up with a title for this episode. I don't know. <laughs> it's pretty tough. It's a tough one. Yeah. Hemingway liberates the pod. Um, <laughs> Hemingway he bre- liberated? Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. That might be a good one. Mm-hmm. He briefed the reporters and spent the next few weeks recuperating and reading his erroneous obituaries. Can you imagine? That's amazing. That's incredible. Pretty wild. Incredible. Despite his injuries, Hemingway accompanied Patrick and his wife. So Patrick was in Africa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On a planned fishing expedition in February. Uh, but pain caused him to be irascible and difficult to get along with. When a bu- uh, bushfire broke out, he was again injured, sustaining second degree burns on his leg, front torso, lips, left hand and right forearm. Hemingway, <sighs> don't go to Africa. Yeah, just stop. I mean, this is another case of like, you are you can do anything. Why are you doing this? Why? Just dude, like, I, you know, for me, it's just like, God, just go to London, go to the theater, eat out, you know, just like have everything catered to you. No, I'm going to Africa. Like, I, I just don't get, I truly do not get it. I don't have, get the, have you considered Olive Garden? <laughs> Well, that's where I got one of my whoopings as a, as a child. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. You know, I mean, Olive Garden might be my MK Ultra trigger, the breadsticks. Um, all right. Moving along quickly here. Speaking um, of MK Ultra, don't we have the Mayo Clinic coming up and some yeah. meats? Yes, we do. We're getting there. Um, we're, we're coming into the home stretch, I promise. We are on page 27 of 32 of my outline. Okay. 
Months later in Venice, uh, Mary reported to friends the full extent of Hemingway's injuries. Two cracked discs, a kidney and liver rupture, a dislocated shoulder, and a broken skull. The accidents may have precipitated the physical deterioration that was to follow. After the plane crashes, Hemingway, who had been a thinly controlled alcoholic throughout most of his life, drank more heavily than usual to combat the pain of his injuries. There's really no coming back from this. Uh, no. Not without, you know, he would need medical intervention. He would need to detox under medical supervision. He would need to never touch another drop. And he'd probably need painkillers. And frankly, he'd probably get addicted to those. In the... um. Uh, the great Burns biography, the documentary that I watched, uh, one of the one of the people they speak to makes the point that uh, the the two groups of people who get the worst medical care are the very poor because they can't afford it, they can't get access, and the very rich who can get whatever they want. <laughs> yeah, right. Hemingway <laughs> fell into the he could get whatever he want category. Yeah. In October of 1954, after his obituaries had been widely published. After he emerges from the jungle with bananas and gin and says, he said, he's, he claimed to have said, my luck, she is running good. That was what he said, emerging from the jungle. I remember okay. that off the cuff. Yeah. Okay. Um, he received the Nobel Prize in literature. He modestly told the press that Sandberg, Dennison, and Berenson deserved the prize, but he gladly accepted the prize money. He had coveted the Nobel Prize. Uh, he said, one of the biographers said, there must have been a lingering suspicion in his mind that his obit notices had played a part in the decision. So he couldn't even really fully enjoy it. It's like, bro, you just won the Nobel Prize. Come on now. Um, he's still in a lot of pain. If you want to see some very awkward Hemingway interviews, they put him on camera in front of this because he couldn't go. His doctor said, you can't go to Stockholm to accept right. this. Uh, you're not well enough. And uh, so they put him on camera and there's a very awkward interview where he's obviously kind of addled and he actually reads the comma and punctuation aloud. Yes. Yeah, period. yeah, 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 yeah. It's very, that, it's, it's bad. Cringe. It's really bad. It's very cringe. bad. Yeah. Huh. Well, I'm gonna, it, I am going to look that up. <laughs> yeah, that one's worth right watching. Now, but... Yeah, and it gives you an idea of kind of how busted up he is already. He's not even 60 years old. Um, so I'm going to read his speech, which is quite short. Uh, Having no facility for speech making and no command for oratory, nor any uh, domination of rhetoric, I wish to thank the administrators of the gen generosity of Alfred Nobel for this prize. No writer who knows the great writers who did not receive the prize can accept it other than with humility. There is no need to list these writers. Everyone here may make his own list according to his knowledge and his conscience. It would be impossible for me to ask the ambassador of my country to read a speech in which a writer said all of the things which are in his heart. Things may not be immediately discernible in what a man writes, and in this sometimes he is fortunate, but eventually they are quite clear, and by these and the degree of alchemy that he possesses, he will endure or be forgotten. Writing, at best, is a lonely life. Organizations for writers palliate the writer's loneliness, but I doubt if they improve his writing. He grows in public stature as he sheds his loneliness, and often his work deteriorates. For he does his work alone, and if he is a good enough writer, he must face eternity, or the lack of it, each day. 
For a true writer, each book should be a new beginning where he tries again for something that is beyond attainment. He should always try for something that has never been done or that others have tried and failed. Then sometimes with great luck, he will succeed. How simple the writing of literature would be if it were only necessary to write in another way what has already been written. It is because we have had such great writers in the past that a writer is driven far out past where he can go out to where no one can help him. I have spoken too long for a writer. A writer should write what he has to say and not speak it. Again, I thank you. Great speech, I think. Just yeah. tremendous. Uh, and, you know, and of course, he's pointing to his metaphor uh, in The Old Man of the Sea about going out too far, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which is what the fisherman does. And his final conclusion when he's unable to bring the marlin back uh, because the sharks eat it is that he went out too far. That's the only mistake he made. So for Hemingway, that's a great metaphor for for the writer. Be careful you don't go out too far. There's your time. All right. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. Ernest Hemingway out too far. <laughs> Something yeah, like out that. too far, going out too far. Yeah, yeah. Hemingway out too Goes far. Out too far. From the yeah. end of the year, yeah, in 1955 to early 1956, he was bedridden. He was told to stop drinking. Well, no shit. To mitigate liver damage. Uh, he initially followed it, but then disregarded. In October of 56, he returned to Europe. Um became sick again and was treated for high blood pressure, liver disease, and arterial sclerosis. Uh, Pfeiffer, the wife number two, was spending the rest of her life in Key West with frequent visits to California. She died on October 1st of 1951. Her death was attributed, this was a few years prior, to an acute state of shock related to her child, then known as Gregory, Gloria, who was arrested, and a phone call that Hemingway made. Gregory <laughs> was in a bar in drag, and there was an there was like an argument over this. Um, mm. Ernest blamed the situation on you know Pauline. Well, what ended up happening is he he, he made a phone call. And and he he argued with Pfeiffer like brutally. It was a terrible argument. She she went into a state of shock and like died on the um, operating table. Like oh my god, like she had a, a tumor in one of her adrenal glands. And uh, Gregory's theory was that the phone call from Ernest had caused the tumor to secrete a- excessive adrenaline and then stop the resulting change of blood pressure, causing her mother to go into acute shock and causing her death. Holy and, moly. Yeah. And so Gregory, you know, lashes out uh, at, at Hemingway and says, what's more important, the stories or the people? My mm. respect is gone with 100,000 cruelties. You're a sick man, sick in the head. And, you know, he would, <sighs> Gregory Gloria would later apologize. Hemingway kind of accepted him back. But this is the kind of stuff that's going on. So Pauline's dead. Yeah. The last phone call that Hemingway had with the mother of like, what was it? Three of his children, two of his children, like yeah. was like brutal. And you've got this yeah. extremely uh, troubled uh, son. It's just like, it's just like ugliness, you know? Yeah. And it's just a reminder that like you can, yeah, he had, he had two children, Patrick and, and Gregory by, mm-hmm. by Pauline. Um, yeah. Just terrible. Da- totally um, dark. I mean, dark. Oh. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. In November of 1956, while in Paris, he was reminded of trunks he had stored in the Ritz in 1928 and never retrieved. Upon reclaiming and opening the trunks, he discovered they were filled with notebooks and writing from his Paris years. Excited about the discovery, when he returned to Cuba in early 1957, he began to shape the recorded work into his memoir, A Movable Feast. Wait, what? A Movable Feast was just like 30 years sat in a trunk and for that's years? that's what it's saying here that's the first uh that's the first that i've read about it but this is me this wow. is like confirmed around yeah huh. i mean so this is and this is from a.e hotchner now hotchner was uh, a buddy of his uh from new york city who uh wrote a book called papa hemingway and who was like there at the mayo with him and it's quite mm -hmm. moving and uh i think hotchner just recently passed away in 2020 he lived to be 102 years old wow. here's hotchner on the subject in 1956 ernest and i were having lunch at the ritz in paris with charles ritz as you do the hotels <laughs> wait there's a miss Mr. Ritz? Apparently. What? <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. When Charlie asked if Ernest was aware that a truck, a trunk of his was in the basement storage room left there in 1930. This is so French, by the way. Ah, <laughs> Yeah. Did you have a trunk? I mean, this is like the Ark <laughs> of the Covenant. Right. <laughs> yeah. Ernest did not remember storing the trunk, but he did recall that in the 1920s, Louis Vuitton had made a special trunk for him, as one does. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Louis made yeah. that trunk. Mm. Yeah. Ernest had wondered what had become of it. Charlie had the trunk brought up to his office, and after lunch, Ernest opened it. It was filled with a ragtag collection of clothes, menus, receipts, memos, hunting and fishing paraphernalia, skiing equipment, racing forms, correspondence, and on the bottom, something that, uh, that elicited a joyful reaction from Ernest. The notebooks. So that's where they were. There were two stacks of lined notebooks like the ones used by school children in Paris when he lived there in the 20s. He had filled them with his careful handwriting while sitting in his favorite cafe, nursing a cafe creme. There you go. Wow. So that's where uh, unreal that, that that is one of the greatest books ever written. Yeah. Um, all right. Huh. So we're getting to it. By 1959, he ended a period of intense activity. He finished a movable feast which was scheduled, scheduled to be released the following year, uh, brought true at first light to 200,000 words, which I'm not that familiar with. Uh, it's about a safari um, with with Mary. It's about the uh, safari. 200,000 words? words? Yeah, no big deal. Yeah. Um, he added chapters to the Garden of Eden. He worked on Islands in the Stream, which is his book about the... Uh, the Gulf, Gulf Stream and fishing that and some other mm -hmm. stuff. The last three were stored in a safe deposit box in Havana as he focused on uh, the finishing touches for a movable feast. He slides into depression and he never comes out again. The Finca became crowded with guests and tourists as Hemingway, beginning to become unhappy with life there, considered a permanent move to Idaho. In 59, he bought a home overlooking the Bigwood River outside Ketchum, and left Cuba. He apparently remained on easy terms with the Castro government, telling the New York Times that he was delighted with Castro's overthrow of Batista. He was in Cuba in November 1959, between returning from Pamplona and traveling west to Idaho, and the following year for his 61st birthday. 
Um, that huh. year, he and Mary decided to leave after hearing the news that Castro wanted to nationalize property owned by Americans and other foreign nationals. Mm-hmm. Uh, on July 25th of 1960, they left Cuba for the last time, leaving art and manuscripts in a bank vault in Havana. After the Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961, the Finca was expropriated by the Cuban government, complete with Hemingway's collection of four to 6,000 books. Oh, wow. Now, eventually, and this is after Hemingway had passed, President Kennedy arranged for Mary Hemingway to travel to Cuba. She met Fidel uh, and was able to get a, like, I think she was able to get a few things back, but she Mm -hmm. wanted to take more paintings, the books, and Fidel kind of rather famously put his hand on her shoulder and said, Mary, no, they belong to the Cuban people now. (laughs) There's almost this idea that like, like Hemingway in a sense also belong to the Cuban people. And there is, sure. I mean, you can make an he argument that Hemingway long, he lived there a, a long very time. long time. Yeah. Um, and now as we near the end, um, I'm going to be dipping into Mary's bio for the first time. Mary's bio is called how it was. Ah. Um, and this is a little bit about uh, the FBI and Cuba and Hemingway's growing paranoia. Mm. All right. Let's see. So some of their friends invited us for roast beef at their house. And since Ernest hesitated to drive at night on the slipper, actually what this is in Ketchum. This Mm. is still important. Important. Um, This is in Ketchum going back and forth. Um, So they're going to have a roast. He didn't want to drive on the slippery roads. Uh, Somebody came to pick them up. Snow was drifting uh, down without wind. Huge quarter-sized flakes. And in the eve lights outside their big dining room windows, it was a fairy tale spectacle. But looking out, Ernest noticed lights in our local bank down the hill a couple of blocks away. They're checking our accounts, said Ernest. What nonsense. Who, said I. R.G. works late sometimes, Lloyd said. R.G. Price was the bank manager and the genial friend of all his clients. It's just the usual cleaning women, Tilly said. They're trying to catch us, said Ernest. They want to get something on us. Who's they, I asked. The FBI, said (laughs) Ernest flatly. Maybe you're tired, honey. In any case, uh, you know, and they're going back and forth between Ida and the the Finca. Um, And so Hemingway Mm. is convinced that the FBI is is following him and after him. And and this is like driving people around him like a little nuts. Well, I wouldn't wouldn't be surprised they had a file on him. We know they did. They did that? Okay. They absolutely did. They absolutely were watching him. And he was absolutely being surveilled. Yeah. Okay. There it is. (laughs) I'm glad you said that, Aaron. That was going to be my like final kicker. I'm glad that you got it in. If you, uh, he was being followed by the FBI. I think they have Mm. a, what did I say? I have in my notes here. Uh, yeah, you can find the 122 page FBI dossier on Hemingway online as a PDF with records starting in 1942. Just Google FBI Hemingway. (laughs) Sweet dreams. When he was recruited by the NKVD, that's when the surveillance started. And we will talk about it on the after dark. All right. So now we're getting into the very, very end here. So he's continuing to work on the material for a movable feast. In 1959, he visits Spain to research a series of bullfighting articles commissioned by Life magazine. 
Life wanted 10,000 words. The manuscript grew out of control. He could not control or, or organize his writing. So Hotchner came down to Cuba to help him. Hotchner helped him trim the piece down to 40,000 words. Scribner's agreed to publish a full-length book version, The Dangerous Summer, 130,000 words. Hotchner said that Hemingway was hesitant, disorganized, and confused and had failing mm -hmm. eyesight. They left Cuba for the last time in July of 1960. He's trying to work in New York City, but they leave. He traveled alone to Spain to be photographed for the front cover of Life magazine. No big deal. <laughs> a few days later, the news is saying he's seriously ill and on the verge of dying. Mary's freaking out. Yeah. She she gets a cable from him saying reports false en route Madrid. Love, Papa. He was yeah. seriously ill, and he believed he was on the verge of a breakdown. Uh, he took to his bed. He retreated into silence. The Dangerous uh, Summer is published by Life, the first section of it. In September, it gets good reviews. He leaves Spain for New York, and he refused to leave Mary's apartment, presuming that he was being watched. She quickly took him to Idaho, where physician George Saviors met them at the train. He was constantly worried about money and his safety. He worried about his taxes and that he would never return to Cuba to retrieve the manuscripts that he had left in the bank vault. He became paranoid, thinking that the FBI was actively monitoring his movements and catch him. <laughs> the FBI had opened a file on him during World War II when he used the Pilar to patrol the waters off Cuba. And Hoover had an agent in Havana watch him during the 50s. Wow. So he was right. Yeah. yeah. Um, Mary had Saviors fly Hemingway to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Uh, we're going to cover this more in the after dark. We're going to read from John's great piece, John Rosengren. Uh, I've got a lot of kind of inside information about this, like deep cuts. Uh, and um, the, the way that they covered this up was, and it was almost like a lie to themselves, which is kind of perfect. Like initially, uh, it was like he would not, and this is, this is so sad. And this is kind of what I mean about the myth finally consuming and destroying him. Hemingway could not just go down to Boise or whatever the nearest town is and go see a psychiatrist or check in with like a psychiatric facility somewhere in Idaho. He mm -hmm. had to go to a facility that was big enough that had both psychiatric facilities and like regular old normie doctor like oh i just yeah. need hypertension i'm here hemingway's here for hypertension right uh and so they had to kind of cover it up yeah. if he had who knows what would have happened if he had just like kind of said no i'm in i've got but this is like hemingway in 1960 there's no way he's going to be like right <laughs> publicly checking in to like a, a mental war this is just like impossible to even right imagine that would right. happen yeah right. um all right, so they go to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota at the end of November for hypertension treatment as he told, you know, da-da-da. The That's FBI knew that Hemingway was at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, an agent documented that in a letter. That's fun. Now yeah. imagine what they imagine what they could do now. Right, right, right. All right, <laughs> fun. Um, Hemingway was checked in under his own doctor's name to maintain anonymity. There was an aura of secrecy around Hemingway. He was treated with ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, as many as 15 times in December of 1960, and by one account was released in ruins in January of 61. Now, this first round, he was awake. This was before they would sedate you. 
So he was eyes wide open, probably a bit in his mouth. Yeah. The Nobel Prize winning novelist 15 times. Yeah. Given ECT. Yeah. Barbaric. Uh, Well, they'll still give ECT to people. But the idea that it was awake, that he was awake, that's really rough to imagine. That's really, really tough. The second round, I believe he was anesthetized. Um, So I've got a little more here. Uh, uh, Someone named Reynolds gained access to Hemingway's records at the Mayo, which documented 10 ECT sessions. The doctors in Rochester told Hemingway that the depressive state for which he was being treated may have been caused by his long-term use of Reserpin and Ritalin. This is something I should have mentioned and I kind of hinted at it in that point I made about the very poor and the very rich. Hemingway was on a cocktail of pills. Was he? Friend, uh-huh. Yeah. Friends would give him pills. Doctors would give him pills. Cuban doctors would give him pills. Doctors in Idaho would give him pills. Pills, pills, pills. How, you, you don't say no to Hemingway. I'm feeling right. down. Okay, try this. All yeah. right. I yeah. can't sleep. Try this. Okay. Can't and work. then also like yeah. drinking. Great. Yeah. I mean, he did yeah. He did have that surge of productivity. I mean, that was probably was, what year was Ritalin invented? That was probably. I mean, that was probably on Ritalin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> probably. But this is what he told Hotchner about the therapy. And it was really, really rough um, because they told him, yeah, this is going to affect your memory. And it did. It did and does affect short term memory. But Hemingway was convinced it was going to be permanent. And he said, what is the sense of ruining my head and erasing my memory, which is my capital and putting me out of business? It was a brilliant cure, but we lost the patient. Oh, man. And now um, I've got a little bit here from how it was kind of about the discharge from. I'm just trying to bring us home, trying to. Yeah, man, this is. uh, uh. And and his his paranoia was he wrote a letter to his doctor, right? Mm-hmm. He, he, he wrote a statement on a diet order sheet. This is going to give you an insight into his state of mind. To whom it may concern, my wife Mary at no time believed or considered that I had ever committed any illegal act of any kind. She had no guilty knowledge of any of my finances nor relations with anyone and was assured by Dr. George Saviors that I was suffering from high blood pressure of a dangerous kind and degree and that she was being uh, booked under his name to avoid being bothered by the press. She knew nothing of any misdeeds nor illegal acts and had only the sketchiest outlines of my finances and only helped me in preparing my returns on material I furnished her. The bags that I carried had her labels on them, but she always believed from the time I met her in New York that the only reason I traveled as I did was to avoid the press, a practice I had followed for years. She was never an accomplice nor in any sense a fugitive and only followed the advice of a doctor friend that she trusted. Mm-hmm. And he signed that Ernest M. Hemingway. Does that sound like a guy who's like, in, yeah, in a in his right state of mind. No, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, so he's they, acting like he's a criminal. He's writing like he's a criminal. He's about to get busted. Yeah, he he. That's how he felt. That's crazy. So Kennedy uh, is elected. He's back after his first round of electroshock. A woman in he's back in Idaho. A woman in Washington was assembling a book of handwritten individual tributes to the Kennedys and sent Ernest a request for one, together with a specific kind of paper and the required size. In the village, I found the paper and had several sheets cut to the specifications. After lunch, Ernest sat down behind a desk in the corner of the living room to write the tribute, practicing first on ordinary paper. 
In the adjoining kitchen, I cleaned up our lunch things and fussed around with early preparations for dinner, thinking he would be finished any minute. At the desk, Ernest was still bent intently over his writing. I stretched out on the sofa to read, and after an hour said, Could I be of any help, Lamb? No, no, I have to do this. It only needs to be a few sentences, you know. I know. I know. But his pen hovered with nervous uncertainty. A sense of urgency, futility, almost a smell of desperation oozed out of him until I felt it clouded the big room. Hmm. In the sitting room, Ernest was still hunched over his desk after she comes back from a walk. A week later, he finished the three or four simple sentences of tribute. Here's another scene. He should have just sent that letter he sent to Jim James Jones. <laughs> um, <laughs> just, I'm kidding. One evening on our cable TV set presented, uh, excuse me, one evening our cable TV set presented a remarkably good production of Macbeth. As I sat watching, I felt Ernest hovering behind me, his attention riveted on the tragedy, his hands twitching. It's terrible, terrible, cruel. He was muttering, it's a great play. It's terrible, Ernest said, terrifying. I can't stand it. I turned off the TV set. Mm. I just like these moments uh, of, yeah. of getting into his mind. Um, the Mad King, right? Mm, like, like mm-hmm, that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I think I have a little more from... Let's see here. I want to make sure I find this. Here we go. Here's Mary. I wondered if we had not been more cruel than kind in preventing his suicide uh, then and there. Uh, Yeah. One second. Here we go. But now only bad whether detained George from uh, flying Ernest again to Rochester. A few days later, when Ernest insisted on coming to the house to get some things he needed, George sent our friend, big husky Don Anderson, and Joan Higgins, one of the nurses, back with him in the car. At the back door, Ernest was out of it a minute ahead of them, rushed through the kitchen where Kate was working, and had a shell in his shotgun before Don could reach him. Don managed to open the breach, and Joan picked out the shell before they got the gun away from Ernest and shoved him onto the little sofa. Upstairs, I barely heard the almost soundless scuffle, and it was over, all three of them puffing before I got down. So they've been, they've locked him up in the hospital after a, a suicide attempt. Um, there is a scene where he's standing in the vestibule of the home with two shotgun shells, and Mary finds him, and um, she calls the doctor, and uh, he comes and kind of takes it away. Jeez. Yeah. Oof. And she called the doctor, and yeah, and she's sort of hold, they're holding him now, and uh, they're getting ready to take him back to Mayo. All right, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, the weather clears; they're finally able to take him to Rochester. They have to land in Rapid City, and Hemingway tried to walk into the propeller of the plane when they oh were landed god. in Rapid City. Oh my god! Yeah. Yeah, dark, dark. Oh, wow. yeah, just like you can't so, leave him for a second. Yep. So he's suicidal, legitimately. He's yeah. standing in a part of the house with two shotgun shells. The shotgun, you know, 
like with the breach open, Mary right. has to call the doctor. The doctor comes and sedates him. Then when they, you know, they, they put him in the hospital because the weather's too bad to fly him back to Mayo, then, uh, you know, he when they bring him back to the house, he tries to grab the gun. Jeez. I mean, and, and you have to imagine, too, like he's he's probably coming. He's probably going in and out of like alcoholic withdrawal. Oh, that too. Uh, yeah. On top of everything else. Yeah. It's just, you know, I mean, yeah, it's that brutal. is a, that is a, yeah, that can be devastating. Right. Um, right. And he's also like, he's like one of the characters in Hellraiser. He's had, he's like a, a Cenobite. He's had so many injuries. He's just like, his, he's got scars everywhere. He's got scars right. in his head. He's got scars in his head. Busted I mean, up. Yeah. Busted yeah. up. Yeah. So he goes uh, back, back to Mayo. He is uh, now put under lock. I think it was the first time around that like the doctors kind of, and we're going to get into it in the after dark, but the doctors kind of like treated him like a celebrity. They invited him over to their houses. That's how we have those final images of Hemingway that people haven't seen yet. Um, oh, because okay. he's like swimming at the doctor's pool. Right. Like, right. you know, and they even took, at one point they even took him skeet shooting. What? Like, yeah no it's very very strange so we'll we'll get into it more so now they they're putting him under giving him an ect it's his second discharge mary shows up and he's grinning like a cheshire cat Hmm. when he arrives and she's convinced like he's not better uh she just thinks he's smooth talked them and She's right. Yeah. So I'm just going to read one final passage from how it was before we bring it in. Now, how, how it was is, I'm sorry, Mary's biography, right? How it was was Mary's okay. biography. Okay. Uh, so let's see. So she was in New York when she got the call. Then they go, she goes with a friend. They go to Minnesota. On Tuesday... June 27th, we rolled through blue greens, yellow greens, gold greens, black greens with an aluminum domes of white silos shining in the sun to stop for lunch at a roadside table near the town of Spearfish. Ernest wanted to stay there for the night, predicted he would find nothing further along. We would find nothing further along and that state troopers finding us sleeping beside the road would arrest us for carrying wine in the car. We had a couple of bottles in the trunk and I put them in the ditch before we drove on through uh, round mountains feathery with forests to Moorcraft, Wyoming, where we dined at a greasy cafe, which served us indubitably the worst coffee I had tasted since World War II. <laughs> Wednesday morning's country was a panorama of big skies, gray-green hills, and the sweet smell of sa- a sage. And as we went through the town of Spotted Horse with its painted cutout sign, its single gas station and post office, Ernest said, Spotted Horse, kind of limited. So they're making this drive <laughs> back. Um they uh they finally pull up to their house and catch him. George, I believe the doctor, having driven beautifully and amicably the seventeen thousand eight hundred and six or uh, seventy it's thousand seventeen hundred eighty six miles from Rochester. So they're they're finally back in Rochester. I think this is George Brown, not Saviors. I don't think the doctor would drive seventeen hundred miles. Um, now, Mary says, before I had left Ketchum, I had locked all the guns in a storeroom in the basement, leaving the keys among those on the kitchen windowsill. I thought of hiding the keys and decided that no one had a right to deny a man access to his possessions. 
And I also assumed that Ernest would not remember the storeroom. All right, here we go. So they go out to eat. Uh, As we wedged into the small far corner table, Ernest noticed a couple of men seating themselves at a small table farther inside and asked Susie, our waitress, and the long ago subject uh, of some infatuation. Not his, somebody else's. Mm -hmm. Who are those guys? Oh, they're a couple of salesmen from Twin Falls, I think, said Susie. The town was brimming with tourists. Not on Saturday night, said Ernest. They'd be home. Susie shrugged. They're FBI, Ernest muttered. Oh, come on, baby. They're showing no interest in us. How about a bottle of wine? George, who did not drink wine, drove us carefully home. And as I was undressing in the big front room upstairs, I sang out the old Italian folk song. And this is Tutti mi chiamana bianda, ma bianda io non sono. Ernest in his next room joined me in the next phrase, Porto Capelli Neri. And this is a song, something about like, they want me to be blonde, but my hair is brunette or black, which is kind of funny because Mary would dye her her hair different colors. Sir Hemingway would cut her hair short. We'll get into it a little more. Mm -hmm. All right. So Ernest uh, sang the next phrase with her and I huddled into my big sweet smelling bed. Ernest knew he was always welcome under my pink perforated blankets. Good night, my lamb. I called sleep. Well, good night, my kitten. He said his voice warm and friendly. The next morning, the sounds of a couple of drawers banging shut awakened me in days. I went downstairs, saw a crumpled heap of bathrobe and blood, the shotgun lying in the disintegrated flesh in the front vestibule of the sitting room. Mm. I ran for George. Well, he called the doctors. I went upstairs, called our friends, the Atkinsons, to ask if I might stay with them for the day. They came to collect me, and at their flat above the grocery store gave me a tranquilizing pill and put me to bed again. For an hour, I shook, unable to control my muscles. Then, in a flash of sanity, I wondered why I should be so destroyed by the sudden violence I had long but too vaguely anticipated. It might be partially shock at Ernest's deception, I thought, and dismissed the notion. He knew he could not confide in me. So the telephone's ringing constantly. Mm. And um, that's what happened. So mm. last words are good night, my kitten. Ooh. And the official report was the sheriff said he accidentally killed himself. Right. Alone in his room preparing to go hunting was the story. Yeah, I think that's probably something you do out of kind of respect, right? You just say, you know what? People don't need to know what happened, right? It's not yep. like he killed somebody else. It's just, right? Yeah, let it be an accident. Yep. He bought the gun at Abercrombie and Fitch. Yeah, I remember knowing, knowing that for yeah. some reason. It's funny. They used to be um, a legit sporting goods like store or outlet or whatever. He was 61 years old. Uh, the year was, I believe, 1960. And uh, I believe it was 1960. I'm going to double check. 61. 61. So he was 61 and the year was 61. Yeah. Yeah. So he wouldn't live live to see the Beatles. And um, there's a lot of theories. Family and friends flew to catch him for the funeral. Theories about what might have caused it. Mm. Mary was the one who confirmed finally five years later um, that he had shot himself a catholic priest officiated who Mm. believed the the death had been accidental 
Right. Yeah, I'm sure. And Alter Boy fainted at the head of the casket during the funeral. Hmm. Uh, Hemingway's brother Lester wrote, it seemed to me Ernest would have approved of it all. <laughs> he's, okay. he's buried in um, Ketchum. Yeah, I've, I've been there. I've been to the site and the memorial out there. And there, there really is the life of Hemingway. Let me get a few more things in here. Mm. Uh, mm. Some work was pu- uh, published posthumously. Mary released an edited version of A Movable Feast. A, the Garden of Eden, Eden finally came out. The work of Hemingway is still very much alive. It's worth reading. In uh, Sun Valley, there's a memorial for him just north of Sun Valley. And on the base, there's a eulogy, which Hemingway had written for a friend several decades earlier. Here's mm-hmm. what it says. Best of all, he loved the fall, the leaves yellow on cottonwoods, leaving floating uh, leaves float. Excuse me, I'm going to take this again. Best of all, he loved the fall, the leaves yellow on cottonwoods, leaves floating on trout streams and above the hills, the high blue windless skies. Now he will be part of them forever. Hmm. That is the life of Ernest Hemingway on Art of Darkness. He influenced everybody. Everybody. He influenced you. He influenced the way you think because we all are, in a way, children of the Hemingway century. And you cannot deny it. You can reject it. You can uh, be the person who goes, ah, the Beatles are overrated. And I don't want to read Hemingway. You owe it to yourself, even if you want to consciously reject his style, even if if you find him to be a bestial hypocrite, which indeed he was, and a kind of a monster. Yeah. Uh, you owe it to yourself to know at least a little bit about Hemingway. And before you uh, throw the cannon out or start boulderizing it, actually maybe read the work. Yeah. What do you think, yeah. Brad? Give it a shot. Give it a shot. Yeah. yeah read some of the short yeah. stories. Read, uh, you know, maybe read A Farewell to Arms. I mean, I think you can argue about what the best novel of his is, but A Farewell Farewell to Arms is my favorite. Um, and yeah, yeah. Give it a shot. I, You know, the thing you said, there is some rejection of the style a little bit. Um, but, you know, I think all of those rejections, it, it's such a potent, he's had such a potent effect on literary style that even the rejections of it are in conversation with it. So everybody's contending with Hemingway, even people who are, you know, not on the same page as him. So And uh, Aaron Gwynn, his his Mac, is texted me saying his Mac is about to die. Yeah. So yeah, we lost well, him we'll a little bit ago. <laughs> without him, but that's fine. Aaron, yeah. Aaron Gwynn is an absolute beast. He is a, yeah. a fabulous novelist in his own right. Uh, yeah. We are going to be reading one of his novels as part of our bookends book club for Patreon. That's right. You can go to artofdarkpod.com slash book dash club to find information about that. We got to close this out. Then we will come back for Patreon. Uh, I'm going to tease that now. And we're going to do a little more about the Soviet uh, spy business with Mm -hmm. Hemingway. We're going to hear from Hunter S. Thompson. Okay. We're going to go more into the gender bending, which I think is so interesting. And we're going to talk about a little more of his time at Mayo Clinic. Okay. Great. Sounds good. Plenty. Plenty, plenty for the after dark for <laughs> patreon last time i'll say it patreon.com slash art of dark pod brad Oof. what would Ernest hemingway be doing now yeah i mean this is one where it's really like what part of Ernest? what what you know moment of Ernest hemingway's life are we extending i mean i think if you know you assume that he's 
kept his wits about him, he would have continued trying to write that one true perfect sentence. Um, this isn't a guy who's going to get interested in other mediums. And you know what I mean? He's not going to be like, oh, you know what? Maybe I'll try working in film. Maybe I'll try doing. He's not going to do that. He's going to just write a book every three to 10 years. Um, and he's going to keep trying to make that perfect sentence, that perfect paragraph. So um, for that, I, I love him for that. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's went, kind of my answer. Pretty, pretty straightforward. He, I think he was aware that he had kind of broken his own mind and he had gone too far in his own life. I mm -hmm. think that's where a lot of where the ache in uh, the old man in the sea comes from. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I think he true. felt old. And he yeah. was, he was, yeah, he'd, old, he's he'd, one of the oldest 61s to ever live. Yeah. He, yeah. He'd lived multiple lives. I mean, you can meet that. guys that are in there and women that are in their fifties and sixties and they're like yeah. vital and, right. and that's what you want. Right. Hemingway yeah. was not was doing not okay do no. by the time he was 55 no, and he wrote hard. He lived a, oh yeah. He was, he was ride or die. And eventually it got to him and a, and a troubled character. And I think a perfect subject for art of darkness. Yeah, absolutely. We yeah. love our listeners. Thank you for sticking with us. We genuinely appreciate the comments, the feedback. Somebody joined our telegram. Well, while we were recording oh, t.me cool. slash yeah. art of dark cool. pod, that's a fun chat. You never know what you're going to find in there. We got, some good stuff coming up yeah yeah Brad, tease what you got what you got coming up next yeah i mean we're uh very soon we're doing an episode on david foster wallace i think you're going to be surprised with how many correspondences between the life of dfw and ernest Hemingway. there are many um and uh before that we've got um a special darkroom episode with um tess lewis and jesse stevens uh the translator and uh the writer of the introduction respectively of um a very new new translation of Ernst Jünger's um on the marble cliffs so that should be an interesting conversation coming up very soon I've really enjoyed doing this and I appreciate you listening, Brad, and being yeah. uh, uh, the best co-host in the business. It's a <laughs> yeah, lot fun, of fun. Yeah, and absolutely. I, I just want to, yeah, and I think we went five and a half hours, if my math yeah. is right. I don't yeah, know who's counting. Like that. Yeah, that's all right. We didn't quite go Crowley length. <laughs> but, you know, and Hemingway deserved this. I had to do this, this mm -hmm. for him. He's so well documented. He's such a huge figure. He lived such a mm -hmm. wild life. And what's wild is you can talk about him for five, six hours and still feel like you haven't. Yeah, still got some stuff to cover. Yeah. Anything except the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> Boom. Just remember. That's the name of the that could be the episode name of the episode, Ernest Hemingway's tip. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no, no. I like Ernest Hemingway out too far. I like that. Yeah, I think that has a nice good. ring to yeah. it. I yeah. and, you know, and as we sign off for now, we're gonna be coming back for the after dark for Patreon, but mm -hmm. for now, we could take 15, 20 minutes here, Brad, take a little breath, catch our, you know, yeah. uh, take a little break, catch our breath. Just a reminder between listening to this and listening to the, the after dark, mm -hmm. you can, you can quickly Google FBI Hemingway. That's right. And find the 122 page <laughs> dossier they had yeah. on him. And yeah. that's, uh, that's only like what we know about. Right, right, right. That's the stuff that comes out in a FOIA request or whatever. Yeah, yeah. There's Sweet more. Dreams. Yeah. Sleep well. <laughs>